Nasawada reasoned with her further, but as Elva had promised, it proved to be a futile prospect. At last Nasawada asked Angela, Eragon, and Sephira to intervene. Angela refused on the grounds that she could not improve on Nasawada's words, and that she believed Elva's choice was a personal one, and therefore the girl ought to be able to do as she wished without being harried like an eagle by a flock of jays. Eragon was of a similar opinion, but he consented to say, Elva, I cannot tell you what you should do. Only you can determine that. But do not reject Nasuada's request out of hand. She is trying to save us all from Galbatorix, and she needs our support if we are to have any chance of success. The future is hidden to me, but I believe that your ability might be the perfect weapon against Galbatorix. You could predict his every attack. You could tell us exactly how to counteract his wars. And above all else, you would be able to sense where Galbatorix is vulnerable, where he is most weak, and what we could do to hurt him. You will have to do better than that, Ryder, if you want to change my mind. I don't want to change your mind, said Aragon. I only want to make sure you have given due consideration to the implications of your decision, and that you are not being overly hasty. The girl shifted, but did not respond. Then Sephira asked, What is in your heart, O shining brow? Elva answered in a soft tone, with no trace of malice. I have spoken my heart, Sephira. Any other words would be redundant. If Nasawada was frustrated by Elva's obstinacy, she did not allow it to show, although her expression was stern, as befitted the discussion. She said, I do not agree with your choice, Elva, but we will abide by it, for it is obvious that we cannot sway you. I suppose I cannot fault you, as I have no experience with the suffering you are exposed to, on a daily basis, and if I were in your position it is possible I would act no differently. Aragon, if you will. At her bidding, Aragon knelt in front of Elva. Her lustrous, violet eyes bored into him as he placed her small hands between his larger ones. Her flesh burned against his as if she had a fever. Will it hurt, Shade Slayer? Greta asked, the old woman's voice quavering. It shouldn't, but I do not know for sure. Removing spells is a much more inexact art than casting them. Magicians rarely, if ever, attempt it because of the challenges it poses. The wrinkles on her face contorted with worry. Greta patted Elva on the head, saying, Oh, be brave, my plum, be brave. She did not seem to notice the look of irritation Elva directed at her. Aragon ignored the interruption. Elva, listen to me. There are two different methods for breaking an enchantment. One is for the magician who originally cast the spell to open himself to the energy that fuels our magic. That's the part I always had difficulty with, said Angela. It's why I rely more on potions and plants and objects that are magical in and of themselves than upon incantations. If you don't mind... Her cheeks dimpling, Angela said, I'm sorry. Proceed. 
Right, growled Aragon. One is for the original magician to open himself or herself, Angela interjected. Will you please let me finish? Sorry. Aragon saw Nasawada fight back a smile. He opens himself to the flow of energy within his body, and speaking in the ancient language recants not only the words of his spell, but also the intention behind it. This can be quite difficult, as you might imagine. Unless the magician has the right intent, he will end up altering the original spell instead of lifting it, and then he would have to unsay two intertwined spells. The other method is to cast a spell that directly counteracts the effects of the original spell. It does not eliminate the original spell, but if done properly, it renders it harmless. With your permission, this is the method I intend to use. A most elegant solution, Angela proclaimed. But who, pray tell, provides the continuous stream of energy needed to maintain this counterspell? And since someone must ask, what can go wrong with this particular method? Aragon kept his gaze fixed on Elva. The energy will have to come from you, he told her, pressing her hands with his. It won't be much, but it will still reduce your stamina by a certain amount. If I do this, you will never be able to run as far or lift as many pieces of firewood as someone who does not have a similar incantation leeching off them. Why can't you provide the energy? asked Elva, arching an eyebrow. You are the one who is responsible for my predicament, after all. I would, but the farther away I got from you, the harder it would be to send the energy to you. And if I went too far, a mile, say, or maybe a bit more, the effort would kill me. As for what can go wrong, the only risk is that I will word the counterspell improperly and it won't block all of my blessing. If that happens, I will simply cast another counterspell. And if that falls short as well, he paused, then I can always resort to the first method I explained. I would prefer to avoid that, however. It is the only way to completely do away with a spell, but if the attempt were to go amiss, and it very well might, you could end up worse off than you are now. Elva nodded. I understand. Have I your permission to proceed, then? When she dipped her chin again, Eragon took a deep breath, readying himself. His eyes half-closed from the strength of his concentration. He began to speak in the ancient language. Each word fell from his tongue with the weight of a hammer blow. He was careful to enunciate every syllable, every sound that was foreign to his own language, so as to avoid a potentially tragic mishap. The counterspell was burned into his memory. He had spent many hours during his trip from Hellgrind inventing it, agonizing over it, challenging himself to devise better alternatives, all in anticipation of the day he would attempt to atone for the harm he had caused Elva. As he spoke, Sephira channeled her strength into him, and he felt her supporting him and watching closely, ready to intervene if she saw in his mind that he was about to mangle the incantation. The counterspell was very long and very complicated, 
for he had sought to address every reasonable interpretation of his blessing. As a result, a full five minutes passed before Aragon uttered the last sentence, word, and then syllable. In the silence that followed, Elva's face clouded with disappointment. I can still sense them, she said. Nasawada leaned forward in her seat. Who? You, him, her, everyone who's in pain, they haven't gone away. The urge to help them, that's gone. But this agony still courses through me. Nasawada leaned forward in her throne. Aragon? He frowned. I must have missed something. Give me a little while to think and I'll put together another spell that may do the trick. There are a few other possibilities I considered, but... He trailed off, troubled by the fact that the counterspell had not performed as expected. Moreover, deploying a spell specifically to block the pain Elva was feeling would be far more difficult than trying to undo the blessing as a whole. One wrong word, one poorly constructed phrase, and he might destroy her sense of empathy or preclude her from ever learning how to communicate with her mind, or inhibit her own sense of pain, so she would not immediately notice when she was injured. Aragon was in the midst of consulting with Sephira, when Elva said, No. Puzzled, he looked at her. An ecstatic glow seemed to emanate from Elva. Her round, pearl-like teeth gleamed as she smiled, her eyes flashing with triumphant joy. No, don't try again. But Elva, why would... Because I don't want any more spells feeding off me. And because I just realized I can ignore them. She gripped the arms of her chair, trembling with excitement. Without the urge to aid everyone who is suffering, I can ignore their troubles and it doesn't make me sick. I can ignore the man with the amputated leg. I can ignore the woman who just scalded her hand. I can ignore them all, and I feel no worse for it. It's true, I can't block them perfectly, not yet at least. But, oh, what a relief! Silence! Blessed silence! No more cuts, scrapes, bruises, or broken bones. No more petty worries of air-headed youths, no more anguish of abandoned wives or cockholded husbands, no more the thousands of unbearable injuries of an entire war, no more the gut-wrenching panic that precedes the final darkness. With tears starting down her cheeks, she laughed, a husky warble that set Aragon's scalp a tingle. What madness is this? asked Sephira. Even if you can put it out of your mind, why remain shackled to the pain of others when Aragorn may yet be able to free you of it? Elva's eyes glowed with unsavory glee. I will never be like ordinary people. If I must be different, then let me keep that which sets me apart. As long as I can control this power, as it seems I now can, I have no objection to carrying this burden, for it shall be by my choice, and not forced upon me by your magic, Aragon. 
Ha! From now on I shall answer to no one and no thing. If I help anyone, it will be because I want to. If I serve the Varden, it will be because my conscience tells me I should, and not because you ask me to, Nasawada, or because I'll throw up if I don't. I will do as I please, and woe unto those who oppose me, for I know all their fears, and shall not hesitate to play upon them, in order to fulfil my wishes. Helfer, exclaimed Greta, do not say such terrible things. You cannot mean them. The girl turned toward her so sharply, her hair fanned out behind her. Ah, yes, I had forgotten about you, my nursemaid. Ever faithful, always fussing. I am grateful to you for adopting me after my mother died, and for the care you have given me since Father Dur. But I do not require your assistance any more. I will live alone, tend to myself, and be beholden to no one. Cowed, the old woman covered her mouth with the hem of her sleeve and shrank back. What Elva said appalled Aragon. He decided that he could not allow her to retain her ability if she was going to abuse it. With Sephira's assistance, for she agreed with him, he picked the most promising of the new counterspells he had been contemplating earlier and opened his mouth to deliver the lines. Quick as a snake, Elva clamped a hand over his lips, preventing him from speaking. The pavilion shook as Sephira snarled, nearly deafening Aragon with his enhanced hearing. As everyone reeled, save for Elva, who kept her hand pressed against Aragon's face, Sephira said, Let him go, hatchling! Drawn by Sephira's snarl, Nasuada's six guards charged inside, brandishing their weapons, while Blodgarm and the other elves ran up to Sephira and stationed themselves on either side of her shoulders, pulling back the wall of the tent so they could all see what was happening. Nasuada gestured, and the Nighthawks lowered their weapons, but the elves remained poised for action. Their blades gleamed like ice. Neither the commotion she had engendered nor the swords levelled at her seemed to perturb Elva. She cocked her head and gazed at Aragon as if he were an unusual beetle she had found crawling along the edge of her chair, and then she smiled with such a sweet, innocent expression he wondered why he did not have greater faith in her character. In a voice like warm honey she said, Aragon, cease. If you cast that spell, you will hurt me as you hurt me once before. You do not want that. Every night, when you lay yourself down to sleep, you will think of me, and the memory of the wrong you have committed will torment you. What you were about to do was evil, Aragon. Are you the judge of the world? Will you condemn me in the absence of wrongdoing, merely because you do not approve of me? That way lies the depraved pleasure of controlling others for your own satisfaction. Galbatorix would approve. She released him then, but Aragon was too troubled to move. She had struck at his very core, and he had no counter-arguments with which to defend himself, for her questions and observations were the very ones he directed at himself. Her understanding of him sent a chill crawling down his spine. 
I am grateful to you also, Aragon, for coming here today to correct your mistake. Not everyone is as willing to acknowledge and confront their shortcomings. However, you have earned no favor with me today. You have righted the scales as best you could, but that is only what any decent person ought to have done. You have not compensated me for what I have endured, nor can you. So when next we cross paths, Aragon Shadeslayer, count me not as a friend or foe. I am ambivalent toward you, Ryder. I am just as prepared to hate you as I am to love you. The outcome is yours alone to decide. Sephira, you gave me the star upon my brow, and you have always been kind to me. I am, and shall always remain, your faithful servant. Lifting her chin to maximize her three-and-a-half-foot height, Elva surveyed the interior of the pavilion. Aragon, Sephira, Nasawada, Angela, good day. And with that she swept off toward the entrance. The nighthawks parted ranks as she passed between them and went outside. Aragon stood, feeling unsteady. What sort of monster have I created? The two Urgle nighthawks touched the tip of each of their horns, which he knew was how they warded off evil. To Nasawada, he said, I'm sorry. I seem to have only made things worse for you, for all of us. Calm as a mountain lake, Nasawada arranged her robes before answering, No matter. The game has gotten a little more complicated, that is all. It is to be expected, the closer we get to Urubane and Galbatorix. A moment later, Aragon heard the sound of an object rushing through the air toward him. He flinched, but fast as he was, he was too slow to avoid a stinging slap that knocked his head to one side and sent him staggering against a chair. He rolled across the seat of the chair and sprang upright, his left arm lifted to ward off an oncoming blow, his right arm pulled back, ready to stab with the hunting knife he had snatched from his belt during the maneuver. To his astonishment, he saw that it was Angela who had struck him. The elves were gathered inches behind the fortune-teller, ready to subdue her if she should attack him again, or to escort her away should Aragon order it. Solombum was at her feet, teeth and claws bared, and his hair standing on end. Right then Aragon could care less about the elves. What did you do that for? he demanded. He winced as his split lower lip stretched, tearing the flesh farther apart. Warm, metallic-tasting blood trickled down his throat. Angela tossed her head. Now I'm going to have to spend the next ten years teaching Elva how to behave. That's not what I had in mind for the next decade. Teach her? exclaimed Aragon. She won't let you. She'll stop you as easily as she stopped me. Humph, not likely. She doesn't know what bothers me, nor what might be about to hurt me. I saw to that the day she and I first met. Would you share this spell with us? Nasawada asked. After how this has turned out, it seems prudent for us to have a means of protecting ourselves from Elva. No, I don't think I will, said Angela. Then she too marched out of the pavilion, and Solombum stalked after her, waving his tail ever so gracefully. 
the elves sheathed their blades and retreated to a discreet distance from the tent. Asawada rubbed her temples with a circular motion. Magic, she cursed. Magic, agreed Aragon. The pair of them started as Greta cast herself upon the ground and began to weep and wail while pulling at her thin hair, beating herself on the face and ripping at her bodice. Oh, my poor dear, I've lost my lamb, lost. What will become of her all alone? Oh, woe is me, my own little blossom rejecting me. It's a shameful reward it is for the work I've done, bending my back like a slave I have. What a cruel, hard world, always stealing your happiness from you. She groaned. My plum, my rose, my pretty sweet pea, gone, and no one to look after her. Shadeslayer, will you watch over her? Aragon grasped her by the arm and helped her to her feet, consoling her with assurances that he and Sephira would keep a close eye on Elva. If only, as Sephira said to Aragon, because she might attempt to slip a knife between our ribs. Gifts of Gold Aragon stood next to Sephira, fifty yards from Nasawada's crimson pavilion. Glad to be free of all the commotion that had surrounded Elva, he gazed up at the clear azure sky and rolled his shoulders, already tired from the events of the day. Sephira intended to fly out to the Jeet River and bathe herself in its deep, slow-moving water, but his own intentions were less definite. He still needed to finish oiling his armor, prepare for Roran and Katrina's wedding, visit with Jode, locate a proper sword for himself, and also... He scratched his chin. How long will you be gone? he asked. Sephira unfurled her wings in preparation for flight. A few hours. I'm hungry. Once I am clean, I am going to catch two or three of those plump deer I've seen nibbling the grass on the western bank of the river. The Varden have shot so many of them, though, I may have to fly a half-dozen leagues toward the spine before I find any game worth hunting. Don't go too far, he cautioned, else you might encounter the Empire. I won't, but if I happen upon a lone group of soldiers, she licked her chops, I would enjoy a quick fight. Besides, humans taste just as good as deer. Sephira, you wouldn't. Her eyes sparkled. Maybe, maybe not. It depends on whether they are wearing armor. I hate biting through metal, and scooping my food out of a shell is just as annoying. I see. He glanced over at the nearest elf, a tall, silver-haired woman. The elves won't want you to go alone. Will you allow a couple of them to ride on you? Otherwise it will be impossible for them to keep pace. Not today. Today I hunt alone. With a sweep of her wings she took off, soaring high overhead. As she turned west toward the Jeet River, her voice sounded in his mind, fainter than before 
because of the distance between them. When I return, we will fly together, won't we, Aragon? Yes, when you return, we will fly together, just the two of us. Her pleasure at that caused him to smile as he watched her arrow away toward the west. Aragon lowered his gaze as Blodgarm ran up to him, lithe as a forest cat. The elf asked where Sephira was going and seemed displeased with Aragon's explanation, but if he had any objections, he kept them to himself. Right, Aragon said to himself as Blodgarm rejoined his companions. First things first. He strode through the camp until he found a large square of open space where thirty-some Varden were practicing with a wide assortment of weapons. To his relief, they were too busy training to notice his presence. Crouching, he lay his right hand palm upward on the trampled earth. He chose the words he would need from the ancient language, then murmured, Kulder, Raisa lam yet un malthene unen boller. The soil beside his hand appeared unchanged although he could feel the spell sifting through the dirt for hundreds of feet in every direction. Not more than five seconds later, the surface of the earth began to boil like a pot of water left to sit for too long over a high flame, and it acquired a bright yellow sheen. Aragon had learned from Oromis that wherever one went, the land was sure to contain minute particles of nearly every element, and while they would be too small and scattered, to mine with traditional methods, a knowledgeable magician could, with great effort, extract them. From the centre of the yellow patch, a fountain of sparkling dust arched up and over, landing in the middle of Aragon's palm. There, each glittering moat melded into the next until three spheres of pure gold, each the size of a large hazelnut, rested on his hand. Letter, said Aragon and released the magic. He sat back on his heels and braced himself against the ground as a wave of weariness washed over him. His head drooped forward and his eyelids descended halfway as his vision flickered and dimmed. Taking a deep breath, he admired the mirror-smooth orbs in his hand while he waited for his strength to return. So pretty, he thought. If only I could have done this when we were living in Palancar Valley. It would almost be easier to mine the gold, though. A spell hasn't taken so much out of me since I carried Sloane down from the top of Hellgrind. He pocketed the gold and set out again through the camp. He found a cook tent and ate a large lunch which he needed after casting so many arduous spells, then headed toward the area where the villagers from Carverhal were staying. As he approached, he heard the ring of metal striking metal, Curious, he turned in that direction. Aragon stepped around a line of three wagons parked across the mouth of the lane and saw Horst standing in a thirty-foot gap between the tents, holding one end of a five-foot-long bar of steel. The other end of the bar was bright cherry red and rested on the face of a massive two-hundred-pound anvil that was staked to the top of a low, wide stump. On either side of the anvil, Horst's burly sons, Albrecht and Baldor, alternated striking the steel with sledgehammers, which they swung over their heads in huge circular blows. A makeshift forge glowed several feet behind the anvil, 
The hammering was so loud Aragon kept his distance, until Albrecht and Baldor had finished spreading the steel, and Horst had returned the bar to the forge. Waving his free arm, Horst said, Oh, Aragon! Then he held up a finger, forestalling Aragon's reply, and pulled a plug of felted wool out of his left ear. Ah, now I can hear again. What brings you about, Aragon? While he spoke, his sons scooped more charcoal into the forge from a bucket and set about tidying up the tongs, hammers, dies, and other tools that lay on the ground. All three men gleamed with sweat. I wanted to know what was causing such a commotion, said Aragon. I should have guessed it was you. No one else can create as big an uproar as someone from Carvajal. Horst laughed. His thick, spade-shaped beard pointed up toward the sky until his mirth was exhausted. Ha ha ha! That tickles my pride, it does. And aren't you the living truth of it, eh? We all are, Aragon replied. You, me, Roran, everyone from Carvajal. Alagese will never be the same once the lot of us are done. He gestured at the forge and the other equipment. Why are you here? I thought that all the smiths were... So they are, Aragon, so they are. However, I convinced the captain who's in charge of this part of the camp to let me work closer to our tent. Horst tugged at the end of his beard. It's on account of Elaine, you know. This child, it goes hard with her, and no wonder, considering what we went through to get here. She's always been delicate, and now I worry that, well, he shook himself like a bear ridding itself of flies. Maybe you could look in on her when you get a chance and see if you can ease her discomfort. I'll do that, Aragon promised. With a satisfied grunt, Horst lifted the bar partway out of the coals to better judge the color of the steel. Plunging the bar back into the center of the fire, he jerked his beard toward Albrecht. Here now, give it some air. It's almost ready. As Albrecht began to pump the leather bellows, Horst grinned at Aragon. When I told the Vard and I was a smith, they were so happy you would have thought I was another dragon rider. They don't have enough metal workers, you see and they gave me what tools I was missing, including that anvil. When we left Carvajal, I wept at the prospect that I would not have the opportunity to practice my craft again. I am no swordsmith, but here, ah, here there is enough work to keep Albrecht, Baldor, and me busy for the next fifty years. It doesn't pay very well, but at least we're not stretched out on a rack in Galvatorix's dungeons. Or the Razak could be nibbling on our bones, observed Baldor. Aye, that too. Horst motioned for his sons to take up the sledgehammers again, and then, holding the felt plug beside his left ear, said, Is there anything else you wish of us, Aragon? The steel is ready, and I cannot leave it in the fire any longer without weakening it. Do you know where Gedrick is? Gedrick? The furrow between Horst's eyebrows deepened. He should be practicing the sword and spear along with the rest of the men. That away, about a quarter of a mile. Horst pointed with a thumb. Aragon thanked him and departed in the direction Horst had indicated. The repetitive ring of metal striking metal resumed, 
clear as the peals of a bell and as sharp and piercing as a glass needle stabbing the air. Aragon covered his ears and smiled. It comforted him that Horst had retained his strength of purpose, and that despite the loss of his wealth and home, he was still the same person he had been in Carvajal. Somehow the smith's consistency and resiliency renewed Aragon's faith that if only they could overthrow Galbatorix, everything would be all right in the end, and his life and those of the villagers from Carvajal would regain a semblance of normalcy. Aragon soon arrived at the field where the men of Carvajal were drilling with their new weapons. Gedrick was there, as Horst had suggested he would be, sparring with Fisk, Darman, and Morn. A quick word on the part of Aragon with the one-armed veteran who was leading the drills was sufficient to secure Gedrick's temporary release. The tanner ran over to Aragon and stood before him, his gaze lowered. He was short and swarthy, with a jaw like a mastiff's, heavy eyebrows, and arms thick and gnarled from stirring the foul-smelling vats where he had cured his hides. Although he was far from handsome, Aragon knew him to be a kind and honest man. What can I do for you, Shadeslayer? Gedrick mumbled. You have already done it, and I have come here to thank and repay you. I? How have I helped you, Shadeslayer? He spoke slowly, cautiously, as if afraid Aragon was setting a trap for him. Soon after I ran away from Carvajal, you discovered that someone had stolen three oxides from the drying hut by the vats, am I right? Gedrick's face darkened with embarrassment, and he shuffled his feet. Ah, well, now, I didn't lock that hut, you know. Anyone might have snuck in and carried those hides off. Besides, given what's happened since, I can't see as it's much important. I destroyed most of my stock before we trooped into the spine to keep the Empire and those filthy Razak from getting their claws on anything of use. Whoever took those hides saved me from having to destroy three more. So let bygones be bygones, I say. Perhaps, said Aragon, but I still feel honour bound to tell you that it was I who stole your hides. Gedrick met his gaze then, looking at him as if he were an ordinary person, without fear, awe, or undue respect, as if the tanner were re-evaluating his opinion of Aragon. I stole them, and I'm not proud of it, but I needed the hides. Without them, I doubt I would have survived long enough to reach the elves in Duweldenwarden. I always preferred to think that I had borrowed the hides, but the truth is, I stole them, for I had no intention of returning them. Therefore, you have my apologies. And since I am keeping the hides, or what is left of them, it seems only right to pay you for them. From within his belt, Aragon removed one of the spheres of gold, hard, round, and warm from the heat of his flesh, and handed it to Gedrick. Gedrick stared at the shiny metal pearl, his massive jaw clamped shut, the lines around his thin-lipped mouth harsh and unyielding. He did not insult Aragon by weighing the gold in his hand, nor by biting it. But when he spoke, he said, I cannot accept this, Aragon. I was a good tanner, but the leather I made was not worth this much. Your generosity does you credit, but it would bother me to keep this gold. 
I would feel as if I hadn't earned it. Unsurprised, Aragon said, You would not deny another man the opportunity to haggle for a fair price, would you? No. Good. Then you cannot deny me this. Most people haggle downward. In this case, I have chosen to haggle upward. But I will still haggle as fiercely as if I were trying to save myself a handful of coins. To me, the hides are worth every ounce of that gold, and I would not pay you a copper less, not even if you held a knife to my throat. Gedrick's thick fingers closed around the gold orb. Since you insist, I will not be so churlish as to keep refusing you. No one can say that Gedrick Ostfenson allowed good fortune to pass him by because he was too busy protesting his own unworthiness. My thanks, Shadeslayer. He placed the orb in a pouch on his belt, wrapping the gold in a patch of wool cloth to protect it from scratches. Garrow did right by you, Aragon. He did right by both you and Roran. He may have been sharp as vinegar and as hard and dry as a winter rutabaga, but he raised the two of you well. He would be proud of you, I think. Unexpected emotion clogged Aragon's chest. As Gedrick turned to rejoin the other villagers, he paused. If I may ask, Aragon, why were those hides worth so much to you? What did you use them for? Aragon chuckled. Use them for? Why, with Brom's help, I made a saddle for Sephira out of them. She doesn't wear it as often as she used to, not since the elves gave us a proper dragon saddle, but it served us well through many a scrape and fight, and even the Battle of Farthendur. Astonishment raised Gedrick's eyebrows, exposing pale skin that normally lay hidden in deep folds. Like a split in blue-gray granite, a wide grin spread across his jaw, transforming his features. A saddle, he breathed. Imagine me tanning the leather for a rider's saddle, and without a hint of what I was doing at the time, no less. No, not a rider. The rider. He who will finally cast down the black tyrant himself. If only my father could see me now. Kicking up his heels, Gedrick danced an impromptu jig. With his grin undiminished, he bowed to Aragon and trotted back to his place among the villagers, where he began to relate his tale to everyone within earshot. Eager to escape before the lot of them could descend upon him, Aragon slipped away between the rows of tents, pleased with what he had accomplished. It might take me a while, he thought but I always settle my debts. Before long, he arrived at another tent, close to the eastern edge of the camp. He knocked on the pole between the two front flaps. With a sharp sound, the entrance was yanked aside to reveal Jode's wife, Helen, standing in the opening. She regarded Aragon with a cold expression. You've come to talk with him, I suppose? If he's here which Aragon knew perfectly well he was, for he could sense Jode's mind as clearly as Helen's. For a moment Aragon thought Helen might deny the presence of her husband, but then she shrugged and moved aside. You might as well come in, then. Aragon found Jode sitting on a stool, poring over an assortment of scrolls, books and sheaves of loose papers 
that were piled high on a cot bare of blankets. A thin shock of hair hung across Joe's forehead, mimicking the curve of the scar that stretched from his scalp to his left temple. Aragon, he cried as he saw him, the lines of concentration on his face clearing. Welcome, welcome. He shook Aragon's hand and then offered him the stool. Here, I shall sit on the corner of the bed. No, please, you are our guest. Would you care for some food or drink? Nasawada gives us an extra ration, so do not restrain yourself for fear that we will go hungry on your account. It is poor fare compared with what we served you in Tirm, but then no one should go to war and expect to eat well, not even a king. A cup of tea would be nice, said Aragon. Tea and biscuits it is. Jode glanced at Helen. Snatching the kettle off the ground, Helen braced it against her hip, fit the nipple of a waterskin in the end of the spout, and squeezed. The kettle reverberated with a dull roar as a stream of water struck the bottom. Helen's fingers tightened around the neck of the waterskin, restricting the flow to a languorous trickle. She remained thus, with the detached look of a person performing an unpleasant task while the water droplets drummed out a maddening beat against the inside of the kettle. An apologetic smile flickered across Jode's face. He stared at a scrap of paper beside his knee as he waited for Helen to finish. Aragon studied a wrinkle in the side of the tent. The bombastic trickle continued for over three minutes. When the kettle was finally full, Helen removed the deflated waterskin from the spout, hung it on a hook on the center pole of the tent, and stormed out. Aragon raised an eyebrow at Jode. Jode spread his hands. My position with the Varden is not as prominent as she had hoped, and she blames me for the fact. She agreed to flee Tirm with me, expecting, or so I believe, that Nasawada would vault me into the inner circle of her advisers, or grant me lands and riches fit for a lord or some other extravagant reward for my help stealing Sephira's egg those many years ago. What Helen did not bargain on was the unglamorous life of a common swordsman, sleeping in a tent, fixing her own food, washing her own clothes, and so on, it's not that wealth and status are her only concerns, but you have to understand. She was born into one of the richest shipping families of Tirm, and for most of our marriage I was not unsuccessful in my own ventures. She is unused to such privations as these, and she has yet to reconcile herself to them. His shoulders rose and fell a fraction of an inch. My own hope? was that this adventure, if it deserves such a romantic term, would narrow the rifts that have opened between us in recent years. But, as always, nothing is ever as simple as it seems. Do you feel that the Varden ought to show you greater consideration? asked Aragon. For myself, no. For Helen? Jode hesitated. I want her to be happy. My reward was in escaping from Gilead with my life when Brom and I were attacked by Morzan, his dragon, and his men, in the satisfaction of knowing that I had helped strike a crippling blow against Galbatorix, 
in being able to return to my previous life and yet still help further the Varden's cause, and in being able to marry Helen. Those were my rewards, and I am more than content with them. Any doubts I had vanished the instant I saw Sophia fly out of the smoke of the burning plains. I do not know what to do about Helen, though. But I forget myself. These are not your troubles, and I should not lay them upon you. Aragon touched a scroll with the tip of his index finger. Then tell me, why so many papers? Have you become a copyist? The question amused Jode. Oh, hardly, although the work is often as tedious. Since it was I who discovered the hidden passageway into Galbatorix's castle in Urubane, and I was able to bring with me some of the rare books from my library in Tirm, Nasawada has set me to searching for similar weaknesses in the other cities of the Empire. If I could find mention of a tunnel that led underneath the walls of Drasleona, for example, it might save us a great deal of bloodshed. Where are you looking? Everywhere I can. Jode brushed back the lock of hair that was hanging over his forehead. Histories, myths, legends, poems, songs, religious tracts, the writings of riders, magicians, wanderers, madmen, obscure potentates, various generals, anyone who might have knowledge of a hidden door or a secret mechanism or something of that ilk that we might turn to our advantage. The amount of material I have to sift through is immense for all of the cities have stood for hundreds of years, and some antedate the arrival of humans in Allegasia. Is it likely you will actually find anything? No, not likely. It is never likely that you will succeed in ferreting out the secrets of the past, but I may still prevail, given enough time. I have no doubt that what I am searching for exists in each of the cities. They are too old not to contain surreptitious ways in and out through their walls. However, it is another question entirely whether records of those ways exist, and whether we possess those records. People who know about concealed trapdoors and the like usually want to keep the information to themselves. Jode grasped a handful of the papers next to him on the cot and brought them closer to his face, then snorted and tossed the papers away. I'm trying to solve riddles invented by people who didn't want them to be solved. He and Aragon continued talking about other, less important matters, until Helen reappeared, carrying three mugs of steaming hot red clover tea. As Aragon accepted his mug, he noted that her earlier anger seemed to have subsided and he wondered if she had been listening outside to what Jode had said about her. She handed Jode his mug, and from somewhere behind Aragon procured a tin plate laden with flat biscuits and a small clay pot of honey. Then she withdrew a few feet and stood leaning against the centre pole, blowing on her own mug. As was polite, Jode waited until Aragon had taken a biscuit from the plate and consumed a bite of it before saying, to what do I owe the pleasure of your company, Aragon? Unless I am mistaken, this is no idle visit. Aragon sipped his tea. After the Battle of the Burning Plains, I promised I would tell you how Brom died. That is why I have come.
A grey pallor replaced the colour in Jode's cheeks. Oh, I don't have to, if that's not what you want, Aragon quickly pointed out. With an effort, Jode shook his head. No, I do. You merely caught me by surprise. When Jode did not ask Helen to leave, Aragon was uncertain whether he should continue. But then he decided that it did not matter if Helen or anyone else heard his story. In a slow, deliberate voice, Aragon began to recount the events that had transpired since he and Brom had left Jode's house. He described their encounter with the band of Urgles, their search for the Razak in Drasliona, how the Razak had ambushed them outside the city, and how the Razak had stabbed Brom as they fled from Murtag's attack. Aragon's throat constricted as he spoke of Brom's last hours, of the cool sandstone cave where he had lain, of the feelings of helplessness that had assailed Aragon as he watched Brom slipping away, of the smell of death that had pervaded the dry air, of Brom's final words, of the sandstone tomb Aragon had made with magic, and of how Sephira had transformed it into pure diamond. If only I had known what I know now, Aragon said, then I could have saved him. Instead, unable to summon words past the tightness in his throat, he wiped his eyes and gulped at his tea. He wished it was something stronger. A sigh escaped Jode. And so ended Brom. Alas, we are all far worse off without him. If he could have chosen the means of his death, though, I think he would have chosen to die like this in the service of the Varden, defending the last free dragon rider. Were you aware that he had been a rider himself? Jode nodded. The Varden told me before I met him. He seemed as if he was a man who revealed little about himself, observed Helen. Jode and Aragon laughed. <laughs> that he was, said Jode. I still have not recovered from the shock of seeing him and you, Aragon, standing on our doorstep. Brom always kept his own counsel, but we became close friends when we were travelling together, and I cannot understand why he let me believe he was dead for what, sixteen, seventeen years? Too long! What's more, since it was Brom who delivered Sephira's egg to the Varden after he slew Morzan in Gilead, the Varden couldn't very well tell me they had her egg without revealing that Brom was still alive. So I've spent the better part of two decades convinced that the one great adventure of my life had ended in failure, and that as a result we had lost our only hope of having a dragon rider to help us overthrow Galbatorix. The knowledge was no easy burden, I can assure you. With one hand, Jode rubbed his brow. When I opened our front door and realized whom I was looking at, I thought that the ghosts of my past had come to haunt me. Brom said he kept himself hidden to ensure that he would still be alive to train the new rider when he or she should appear. But his explanation has never entirely satisfied me. Why was it necessary for him to cut himself off from nearly everyone he knew or cared about? What was he afraid of? What was he protecting? Jode fingered the handle of his mug. 
I cannot prove it, but it seems to me that Brom must have discovered something in Gilead when he was fighting Morzan and his dragon. Something so momentous, it moved Brom to abandon everything that was his life up until then. It's a fanciful conjecture, I admit, but I cannot account for Brom's actions, except by postulating that there was a piece of information he never shared with me, nor another living soul. Again Jode sighed, and he drew a hand down his long face. After so many years apart, I had hoped Brom and I might ride together once more. But fate had other ideas, it seems. And then to lose him a second time, but a few weeks after discovering he was still alive, was a cruel joke for the world to play. Helen swept past Aragon and went to stand by Jode, touching him on the shoulder. He offered her a wan smile and wrapped an arm around her narrow waist. I'm glad that you and Sephira gave Brahm a tomb even a dwarf king might envy. He deserved that and more for all he did for Alagasia. Although once people discover his grave, I have a horrible suspicion they will not hesitate to break it apart for the diamond. If they do, they will regret it, muttered Aragon. He resolved to return to the site at the earliest opportunity and place wards around Brom's tomb to protect it from grave robbers. Besides, they will be too busy hunting gold lilies to bother Brom. What? Nothing. It's not important. The three of them sipped their tea. Helen nibbled on a biscuit. Then Aragon asked, You met Morzan, didn't you? They were not the friendliest of occasions, but yes, I met him. What was he like? As a person? I really couldn't say. Although I'm well acquainted with tales of his atrocities. Every time Brom and I crossed paths with him, he was trying to kill us, or rather capture, torture, and then kill us, none of which are conducive to establishing a close relationship. Aragon was too intent to respond to Jode's humour. Jode shifted on the bed. As a warrior, Morzan was terrifying. We spent a great deal of time running away from him, I seem to remember. Him and his dragon, that is. Few things are as frightening as having an enraged dragon chasing you. How did he look? You seem inordinately interested in him. Aragon blinked once. I'm curious. He was the last of the Forsworn to die, and Brom was the one who slew him. And now Morzan's son is my mortal enemy. Let me see, then, said Jode. He was tall. He had broad shoulders. His hair was dark, like a raven's feathers. And his eyes were different colours. One was blue and one was black. His chin was bare, and he was missing the tip of one of his fingers, I forget which. Handsome he was, in a cruel, haughty manner. And when he spoke, he was most charismatic. His armour was always polished bright, whether male or a breastplate, as if he had no fear of being spotted by his enemies, which I suppose he hadn't. When he laughed, it sounded as if he were in pain. What of his companion? The woman, Selina, did you meet her as well? Jode laughed. If I had, I would not be here today. 
Morzan may have been a fearsome swordsman, a formidable magician, and a murderous traitor, but it was that woman of his who inspired the most terror in people. Morzan only used her for missions that were so repugnant, difficult, or secretive that no one else would agree to undertake them. She was his black hand, and her presence always signalled imminent death, torture, betrayal, or some other horror. Aragon felt sick hearing his mother described thusly. She was utterly ruthless, devoid of either pity or compassion. It was said that when she asked Morzan to enter his service, he tested her by teaching her the word for heal in the ancient language, for she was a spellcaster as well as a common fighter, and then pitting her against twelve of his finest swordsmen. How did she defeat them? She healed them of their fear and their hate, and all the things that drive a man to kill. And then, while they stood, grinning at each other like idiot sheep, she went up to the men and cut their throats. Are you feeling well, Eragon? You are as pale as a corpse. I'm fine. What else do you remember? Joe tapped the side of his mug. Precious little concerning Selina. She was always somewhat of an enigma. No one besides Morzan even knew her real name until just a few months before Morzan's death. To the public at large, she has never been anything other than the Black Hand. The Black Hand we have now, the collection of spies, assassins, and magicians who carry out Galbatorix's low skullduggery, is Galbatorix's attempt to recreate Selina's usefulness to Morzan. Even among the Varden, only a handful of people were privy to her name, and most of them are mouldering in graves now. As I recall, it was Brom who discovered her true identity. Before I went to the Varden with the information concerning the secret passageway into Castle Illyria, which the elves built millennia ago and which Galbatorix expanded upon to form the black citadel that now dominates Urubane, before I went to them... Brom had spent a rather significant length of time spying on Morzan's estate, in the hope he might unearth a hitherto unsuspected weakness of Morzan's. I believe Brom gained admittance to Morzan's hall by disguising himself as a member of the serving staff. It was then that he found out what he did about Selina. Still, we never did learn why she was so attached to Morzan. Perhaps she loved him. In any event, she was utterly loyal to him, even to the point of death. Soon after Brom killed Morzan, word reached the Varden that sickness had taken her. It is as if the trained hawk was so fond of her master she could not live without him. She was not entirely loyal, thought Aragon. She defied Morzan when it came to me, even though she lost her life as a result. If only she could have rescued Murtag as well. As for Jode's accounts of her misdeeds, Aragon chose to believe that Morzan had perverted her essentially good nature. For the sake of his own sanity, Aragon could not accept that both his parents had been evil. She loved him, he said, staring at the murky dregs at the bottom of his mug. In the beginning, she loved him. Maybe not so much later. Murtag is her son. Jode raised an eyebrow. Indeed. You have it from Murtag himself, I suppose? 
Aragon nodded. Well, that explains a number of questions I always had. Murtag's mother. I'm surprised that Brom didn't uncover that particular secret. Morzan did everything he could to conceal Murtag's existence, even from the other members of the Forsworn. Knowing the history of those power-hungry, backstabbing knaves, he probably saved Murtag's life. More's the pity, too. Silence crept among them then, like a shy animal ready to flee at the slightest motion. Aragon continued to gaze into his mug. A host of questions bedeviled him, but he knew that Jode could not answer them, and it was unlikely anyone else could either. Why had Brom hidden himself in Carverhall? To keep watch over Aragon, the son of his most hated foe? Had it been some cruel joke giving Aragon Zarok his father's blade, and why had Brom not told him the truth about his parentage? He tightened his grip on the mug and, without meaning to, shattered the clay. The three of them started at the unexpected noise. Here, let me help you with that, said Helen, bustling forward and dabbing at his tunic with a rag. Embarrassed, Aragon apologized several times, to which both Jode and Helen responded by assuring him it was a small mishap and not to worry himself about it. While Helen picked up the shards of fire-hardened clay, Jode began to dig through the layers of books, scrolls, and loose papers that covered the bed, saying, Ah, it had nearly slipped my mind. I have something for you, Aragon, that might prove useful. If only I can find it here. With a pleased exclamation, he straightened, flourishing a book which he handed to Aragon. It was Domia Aberwirda, The Dominance of Fate, a complete history of Alagasia written by Heslant the monk. Aragon had first seen it in Jode's library in Tirm. He had not expected that he would ever get a chance to examine it again. Savouring the feeling, he ran his hands over the carved leather on the front cover, which was shiny with age, then opened the book and admired the neat rows of runes within, lettered in glossy red ink. Awed by the size of the knowledge hoard he held, Aragon said, You wish me to have this? I do, asserted Jode. He moved out of the way as Helen retrieved a fragment of the mug from under the bed. I think you might profit by it. You are engaged in historic events, Aragon, and the roots of the difficulties you face lie in happenings from decades, centuries, and millennia ago. If I were you, I would study at every opportunity the lessons history has to teach us, for they may help you with the problems of today. In my own life, reading the record of the past has often provided me with the courage and the insight to choose the correct path. Aragon longed to accept the gift, but still he hesitated. Brom said that Domia Aberwirda was the most valuable thing in your house, and rare as well. Besides, what of your work? Don't you need this for your research? Domia Aberwirda is valuable, and it is rare, said Jode, but only in the Empire, where Galbatorix burns every copy he finds and hangs their unfortunate owners. Here in the camp I have already had six copies foisted upon me by members of King Orin's court, and this is hardly what one would call a great centre of learning. However, I do not part with it lightly. 
and only because you can put it to better use than I can. Books should go where they will be most appreciated and not sit unread gathering dust on a forgotten shelf. Don't you agree? I do. Aragon closed Domia Aberwirda and again traced the intricate patterns on the front with his fingers, fascinated by the swirling designs that had been chiselled into the leather. Thank you. I shall treasure it for as long as it is mine to watch over. Jode dipped his head and leaned back against the wall of the tent, appearing satisfied. Turning the book on its edge, Eragon examined the lettering on the spine. What was Hesland a monk of? A small, secretive sect called the Arcana, that originated in the area by Kuasta. Their order, which has endured for at least five hundred years, believes that all knowledge is sacred. End of a smile lent Jode's features a mysterious cast. They have dedicated themselves to collecting every piece of information in the world and preserving it against a time when they believe an unspecified catastrophe will destroy all the civilizations in Allegasia. It seems a strange religion, Aragon said. Are not all religions strange to those who stand outside of them? countered Jode. Aragon said, I have a gift for you as well, or rather, for you, Helen. She tilted her head, a quizzical frown on her face. Your family was a merchant family, yes? She jerked her chin in an affirmative. Were you very familiar with the business yourself? Lightning sparked in Helen's eyes. If I had not married him, she motioned with a shoulder, I would have taken over the family affairs when my father died. I was an only child, and my father taught me everything he knew. That was what Eragon had hoped to hear. To Jode, he said, You claimed that you are content with your lot here with the Varden. And so I am, mostly. I understand. However, you risked a great deal to help Brom and me, and you risked even more to help Roran and everyone else from Carvajal. The Palancar pirates. Aragon chuckled and continued, Without your assistance, the Empire would surely have captured them. And because of your act of rebellion, you both lost all that was dear to you in Tirm. We would have lost it anyway. I was bankrupt, and the twins had betrayed me to the Empire. It was only a matter of time before Lord Ristart had me arrested. Maybe, but you still helped Roran. Who can blame you if you were protecting your own necks at the same time? The fact remains that you abandoned your lives in Tiam in order to steal the Dragonwing along with Roran and the villagers. And for your sacrifice, I will always be grateful. So this is part of my thanks. Sliding a finger underneath his belt, Aragon removed the second of the three gold orbs and presented it to Helen. She cradled it as gently as if it were a baby robin, while she gazed at it with wonder, and Jode craned his neck to see over the edge of her hand. Aragon said, It's not a fortune, but if you are clever you should be able to make it grow. What Nasawada did with lace taught me that there is a great deal of opportunity for a person to prosper in war. Oh, yes, breathed Helen. War is a merchant's delight. For one, 
Nasawada mentioned to me last night at dinner that the dwarves are running low on mead, and as you might suspect, they have the means to buy as many casks as they want, even if the price were a thousandfold of what it was before the war. But then that's just a suggestion. You may find others who are more desperate to trade if you look for yourself. Aragon staggered back a step as Helen rushed at him and embraced him. Her hair tickled his chin. She released him, suddenly shy. Then her excitement burst forth again, and she lifted the honey-coloured globe in front of her nose and said, Thank you, Aragon. Oh, thank you. She pointed at the gold. This I can use. I know I can. With it, I'll build an empire even larger than my father's. The shiny orb disappeared within her clenched fist. You believe my ambition exceeds my abilities? It shall be as I have said. I shall not fail. Aragon bowed to her. I hope that you succeed, and that your success benefits us all. Aragon noticed that hard cords stood out in Helen's neck as she curtsied and said, You are most generous, Shadeslayer. Again, I thank you. Yes, thank you, said Jode, rising from the bed. I cannot think that we deserve this. Helen shot him a furious look, which he ignored. But it is most welcome, nevertheless. Improvising, Aragon added, And for you, Jode, your gift is not from me, but Sapphira. She has agreed to let you fly on her when you both have a spare hour or two. It pained Aragon to share Sapphira, and he knew that she would be upset he had not consulted her before volunteering her services. But after giving Helen the gold, he would have felt guilty about not giving Jode something of equal value. A film of tears glazed Jode's eyes. He grasped Aragon's hand and shook it, and still holding it, said, I cannot imagine a higher honour. Thank you. You don't know how much you have done for us. Extricating himself from Jode's grip, Aragon edged toward the entrance to the tent, while excusing himself as gracefully as he could and making his farewells. Finally, after yet another round of thanks on their part, and a self-deprecating, it was nothing. He managed to escape outdoors. Aragon hefted Domia Aberwirda, and then glanced at the sun. It would not be long until Sephira returned, but he still had time to attend to one other thing. First, though, he would have to stop by his tent. He did not want to risk damaging Domia Aberwirda by carrying it with him across the camp. I own a book, he thought, delighted. He set off at a trot, clasping the book against his chest, as Blodgarm and the other elves followed close behind. I Need a Sword Once Domia Aberwirda was safely ensconced in his tent, Aragon went to the Varden's armory a large open pavilion filled with racks of spears, swords, pikes, bows, and crossbows. Mounds of shields and leather armor filled slatted crates. The more expensive mail, tunics, quafts, and leggings hung on wooden stands. Hundreds of conical helmets gleamed like polished silver. Bales of arrows lined the pavilion, and among them sat a score or more fletchers. 
busy refurbishing arrows whose feathers had been damaged during the Battle of the Burning Plains. A constant stream of men rushed in and out of the pavilion, some bringing weapons and armour to be repaired, others new recruits coming to be outfitted, and still others ferrying equipment to different parts of the camp. Everyone seemed to be shouting at the top of their lungs, and in the centre of the commotion stood the man Eragon had hoped to see, Frederick, the Varden's weapon master. Blodgarm accompanied Eragon as he strode into the pavilion toward Frederick. As soon as they stepped underneath the cloth roof, the men inside fell silent, their eyes fixed on the two of them. Then they resumed their activities, albeit with quicker steps and quieter voices. Raising an arm in welcome, Frederick hurried to meet them. As always, he wore his suit of hairy oxide armour, which smelled nearly as offensive as the animal must have in its original form, as well as a massive two-handed sword hung crosswise over his back, the hilt projecting above his right shoulder. Shade Slayer, he rumbled. How can I help you this fine afternoon? I need a sword. Frederick's smile broke through his beard. Ah, I wondered if you'd be visiting me about that. When you set out for Hellgrind without a blade in hand, I thought, well, maybe you're beyond such things now. Maybe you can do all your fighting with magic. No, not yet. Well, I can't say as I'm sorry. Everyone needs a good sword, no matter how skilled they may be with conjuring. In the end, it always comes down to steel against steel. Just you watch, that's how this fight with the Empire will be resolved, with the point of a sword being driven through Galbatorix's accursed heart. <laughs> I'd wager a year's wages that even Galbatorix has a sword of his own, and that he uses it too, despite him being able to gut you like a fish with a flick of his finger. Nothing can quite compare to the feel of fine steel in your fist. While he spoke, Frederick led them toward a rack of swords that stood apart from the others. What kind of sword are you looking for? he asked. That Zarok you had was a one-handed sword, if I remember rightly, with a blade about two thumbs wide, two of my thumbs in any case, and of a shape equally suited for both the cut and thrust, yes? Aragon indicated that was so, and the weapon master grunted and began to pull swords off the rack and swing them through the air, only to replace them with seeming dissatisfaction. Elf blades tend to be thinner and lighter than ours or the dwarves, on account of the enchantments they forge into the steel. If we made ours as delicate as theirs, the swords wouldn't last more than a minute in a battle, before bending, breaking, or chipping so badly you couldn't cut soft cheese with them. <laughs> His eyes darted toward Blodgarm. Isn't that so, elf? Even as you say, human, responded Blodgarm in a perfectly modulated voice. Frederick nodded and examined the edge of another sword, then snorted and dropped it back on the rack which means whatever sword you choose will probably be heavier than you're used to. That shouldn't pose much difficulty for you, Shadeslayer, but the extra weight may still upset the timing of your blows. I appreciate the warning, said Aragon. Not at all, 
said Frederick. That's what I'm here for, to keep as many of the Varden from getting killed as I can, and to help them kill as many of Galbatorix's blasted soldiers as I can. It's a good job. Leaving the rack, he lumbered over to another one, hidden behind a pile of rectangular shields. Finding the right sword for someone is an art unto itself. A sword should feel like an extension of your arm, as if it had grown out of your very flesh. You shouldn't have to think about how you want it to move. You should simply move it as instinctively as an egret his beak or a dragon her claws. The perfect sword is intent incarnate. What you want, so it does. You sound like a poet. With a modest expression, Frederick half shrugged. I've been picking weapons for men who were about to march into combat for twenty-six years. It seeps into your bones after a while, turns your mind to thoughts of fate and destiny, and whether that young fellow I sent off with a built pike would still be alive if I had given him a mace instead. Frederick paused with a hand hovering over the middle sword on the rack and looked at Aragon. Do you prefer to fight with or without a shield? With, Aragon said, but I can't carry one around with me all the time, and there never seems to be one handy when I'm attacked. Frederick tapped the hilt of the sword and gnawed on the edge of his beard. Hmm, so you need a sword you can use by itself, but that's not too long to use with every kind of shield from a buckler to a wall shield. That means a sword of medium length, easy to wield with one arm. It has to be a blade you can wear at all occasions, elegant enough for a coronation, and tough enough to fend off a band of cull. He grimaced. It's not natural what Nassauard has done. Allying us with those monsters, it can't last. The likes of us and them were never meant to mix. He shook himself. It's a pity you only want a single sword. Or am I mistaken? No. Sephira and I travel far too much to be lugging around a half-dozen blades. I suppose you're right. Besides, a warrior like you isn't expected to have more than one weapon. The curse of the named blade, I call it. What's that? Every great warrior, said Frederick, wields a sword... It's usually a sword that has a name. Either he names it himself, or once he proves his prowess with some extraordinary feat, the bards name it for him. Thereafter, he has to use that sword. It's expected of him. If he shows up to a battle without it, his fellow warriors will ask where it is, and they will wonder if he is ashamed of his success, and if he is insulting them by rejecting the acclaim they have bestowed upon him and even his enemies may insist upon waiting to fight until he fetches his famed blade. Just you watch. As soon as you fight Murtag or do anything else memorable with your new sword, the Varden will insist upon giving it a title, and they will look to see it on your hip from then on. He continued speaking while he proceeded to a third rack. I never thought I would be fortunate enough to help a rider choose his weapon. What an opportunity! It feels as if this is a culmination of my work with the Varden. Plucking a sword from the rack, 
Frederick handed it to Aragon. Aragon tilted the tip of the sword up and down, then shook his head. The shape of the hilt was wrong for his hand. The weapon master did not seem disappointed. To the contrary, Aragon's rejection seemed to invigorate him, as if he relished the challenge Aragon posed. He presented another sword to Aragon, and again Aragon shook his head. The balance was too far forward for his liking. What worries me, Frederick said, returning to the rack, is that any sword I give you will have to withstand impacts that would destroy an ordinary blade. What you need is dwarf work. Their smiths are the finest, besides the elves, and sometimes they even exceed them. Frederick peered at Aragon. Hold now! I've been asking the wrong questions. How was it you were taught to block and parry? Was it edge on edge? I seem to recall you doing something of the kind when you dueled Arya in Farthendur. Aragon frowned. What of it? What of it? <laughs> Frederick guffawed. Not to be disrespectful, Shadeslayer, but if you hit the edge of a sword against that of another, you will cause grave damage to both. That might not have been a problem with an enchanted blade like Zarok, but you can't do it with any of the swords I have here, not unless you want to replace your sword after every battle. An image flashed in Aragon's mind of the chipped edges of Murtag's sword, and he felt irritated with himself for having forgotten something so obvious. He had become accustomed to Zarok, which never dulled, never showed signs of wear, and so far as he knew was impervious to most spells. He was not even sure it was possible to destroy a rider's sword. You need not worry about that. I will protect the sword with magic. Must I wait all day for a weapon? One more question, Shadeslayer. Will your magic last forever? Aragon's frown deepened. Since you ask, no. Only one elf understands the making of a rider's sword, and she has not shared her secrets with me. What I can do is transfer a certain amount of energy into a sword. The energy will keep it from getting damaged until the blows that would have damaged the sword exhaust the store of energy, at which point the sword will revert to its original state, and odds are shatter in my grip the next time I close with my opponent. Frederick scratched his beard. I'll take your word for it, Shadeslayer. The point being, if you hammer on soldiers long enough, you'll wear out your spells. And the harder you hammer, the sooner the spells will vanish, eh? Exactly. Then you should still avoid going edge on edge, as it will wear out your spells faster than most any other move. I don't have time for this, Aragon snapped, his impatience overflowing. I don't have the time to learn a completely different way of fighting. The Empire might attack at any moment. I have to concentrate on practicing what I do know, not trying to master a whole new set of forms. Frederick clapped his hands. I know just the thing for you, then. Going to a crate filled with arms, he began digging through it, talking to himself as he did. First this, then that. <sighs> and then we'll see where we stand. From the bottom of the crate, he pulled out a large black mace with a flanged head. Frederick wrapped a knuckle against the mace, 
You can break swords with this. You can split mail and batter in helms, and you won't do it the slightest bit of harm, no matter what you hit. It's a club, Aragon protested. A metal club. What of it? With your strength, you can swing it as if it were light as a reed. You'll be a terror on the battlefield with this. You will. Aragon shook his head. No, smashing things isn't how I prefer to fight. Besides, I would never have been able to kill Durza by stabbing him through the heart if I'd been carrying a mace instead of a sword. Then I have only one more suggestion, unless you insist upon a traditional blade. From another part of the pavilion, Frederick brought Aragon a weapon he identified as a falchion. It was a sword, but not a type of sword Aragon was accustomed to, although he had seen them among the Varden before. The falchion had a polished, disc-shaped pommel, bright as a silver coin. A short grip made of wood covered with black leather, a curved crossguard carved with a line of dwarf runes, and a single-edged blade that was as long as his outstretched arm. And had a thin fuller on either side, close to the spine. The falchion was straight until about six inches from the end, where the back of the blade flared upward in a small peak before gently curving down to the needle-sharp tip. This widening of the blade reduced the likelihood that the point would bend or snap when driven through armor, and lent the end of the falchion a fang-like appearance. Unlike a double-edged sword, the falchion was made to be held with the blade and crossguard. Perpendicular to the ground, the most curious aspect of the falchion, though, was the bottom half inch of the blade, including the edge, which was pearly grey and substantially darker than the mirror-smooth steel above. The boundary between the two areas was wavy, like a silk scarf rippling in the wind. Aragon pointed at the grey band. I've not seen that before. What is it? The Thrikensdal," said Frederick. "The dwarves invented it. They temper the edge and the spine separately. The edge they make hard, harder than we dare with the whole of our blades. The middle of the blade and the spine they anneal, so that the back of the falchion is softer than the edge, soft enough to bend and flex and survive the stress of battle without fracturing like a frost-ridden file." Do the dwarves treat all their blades thusly? Frederick shook his head. Only their single-edged swords and the finest of their double-edged swords. He hesitated, and uncertainty crept into his gaze. You understand why I chose this for you, Shadeslayer? Yes. Aragon understood. With the blade of the falchion at right angles to the ground, unless he deliberately tilted his wrist. Any blows he caught on the sword would strike the flat of the blade, saving the edge for attacks of his own. Wielding the falchion would require only a small adjustment to his fighting style. Striding out of the pavilion, he assumed a ready position with the falchion. Swinging it over his head, he brought it down upon the head of an imaginary foe. Then twisted and lunged, beat aside an invisible spear, sprang six yards to his left. And in a brilliant but impractical move, spun the blade behind his back, passing it from one hand to the next as he did so. His breathing and heartbeat calm as ever, he returned to where Frederick and Blodgarm were waiting. The speed and balance of the falchion had impressed Aragon. 
It was not the equal of Zarok, but it was still a superb sword. You chose well, he said. Frederick detected the reticence in his bearing, however, for he said, And yet you are not entirely pleased, Shadeslayer? Aragon twirled the falchion in a circle, then grimaced. I just wish it didn't look so much like a big skinny knife. I feel rather ridiculous with it. Oh, pay no heed if your enemies laugh. They'll not be able to once you lop off their heads. Amused, Aragon nodded. I'll take it. One moment, then, said Frederick, and disappeared into the pavilion, returning with a black leather scabbard decorated with silver scrollwork. He handed the scabbard to Aragon and asked, Did you ever learn how to sharpen a sword, Shadeslayer? You wouldn't have had need with Zarok, would you? No, Aragon admitted. But I am a fair hand with a whetstone. I can hone a knife until it is so keen it will cut a thread draped over it. Besides, I can always true up the edge with magic if I have to. Frederick groaned and slapped his thighs, knocking loose a dozen or so hairs from his oxide leggings. Oh, no! A razor-thin edge is just what you don't want on a sword. The bevel has to be thick, thick and strong. A warrior has to be able to maintain his equipment properly, and that includes knowing how to sharpen his sword. Frederick insisted then on procuring a new whetstone for Aragon and showing him exactly how to put a battle-ready edge on the falchion while they sat in the dirt beside the pavilion. Once he was satisfied that Aragon could grind an entirely new edge on the sword, he said, You can fight with rusty armor, you can fight with a dented helmet, but if you want to see the sun rise again, never fight with a dull sword. If you've just survived a battle and you're tired as a man who has climbed one of the Beor Mountains and your sword isn't sharp as it is now, it doesn't matter how you feel, you plunk yourself down the first chance you get and pull out your whetstone and strop. Just as you would see to your horse or to Sephira before you attend to your own needs, so too you should care for your sword before yourself, because without it you're no more than helpless prey for your enemies. They had been sitting out in the late afternoon sun for over an hour, by the time the weapon master finally finished his instructions. As he did, a cool shadow slid over them, and Sephira landed close by. You waited, said Aragon. You deliberately waited. You could have rescued me ages ago, but instead you left me here to listen to Frederick go on about water stones, oil stones, and whether linseed oil is better than rendered fat for protecting metal from water. And is it? Not really. It's just not as smelly. But that's irrelevant. Why did you leave me to this doom? One of her thick eyelids drooped in a lazy wink. Don't exaggerate. Doom? You and I have far worse dooms to look forward to if we are not properly prepared. What the man with the smelly clothes was saying seemed important for you to know. Well, perhaps it was, he conceded. She arched her neck and licked the claws on her right foreleg. 
after thanking Frederick and bidding him farewell, and agreeing upon a meeting place with Blodgarn, Aragon fastened the falchion to the belt of Belot the Wise and clambered onto Sephira's back. He whooped and she roared as she raised her wings and surged up into the sky. Giddy, Aragon clung to the spike in front of him and watched the people and tents below dwindle away into flat, miniature versions of themselves. From above, the camp was a grid of grey, triangular peaks, the eastern faces of which were deep in shadow, giving the whole region a checkered appearance. The fortifications that encircled the camp bristled like a hedgehog, the white tips of the distant poles bright in the slanted sunlight. King Orin's cavalry was a mass of milling dots in the northwestern quadrant of the camp. To the east was the Urgul's camp, low and dark on the rolling plain. They soared higher. The cold, pure air stung Aragon's cheeks and burned in his lungs. He took only shallow breaths. Beside them floated a thick column of clouds looking as solid as whipped cream. Sephira spiralled around it, her ragged shadow racing across the plume. A lone scrap of moisture struck Aragon, blinding him for a few seconds and filling his nose and mouth with frigid droplets. He gasped and wiped his face. They rose above the clouds. A red eagle screeched at them as it flew past. Zephira's flapping became laboured, and Aragon began to feel light-headed. Stilling her wings, Zephira glided from one thermal to the next, maintaining her altitude, but ascending no farther. Aragon looked down. They were so high, height had ceased to matter, and things on the ground no longer seemed real. The Varden's camp was an irregularly shaped playing board covered with tiny grey and black rectangles. The Jeet River was a silver rope fringed with green tassels. To the south, the sulphurous clouds rising from the burning plains formed a range of glowing orange mountains, home to shadowy monsters that flickered in and out of existence. Aragon quickly averted his gaze. For perhaps half an hour, he and Sephira drifted with the wind, relaxing in the silent comfort of each other's company. An inaudible spell served to insulate Aragon from the chill. At last they were alone together, alone as they had been in Palankar Valley before the Empire had intruded upon their life. Sephira was the first to speak. We are the rulers of the sky! Here, at the ceiling of the world. Aragon reached up, as if from where he sat he could brush the stars. Banking to the left, Sephira caught a gust of warmer air from below, then leveled off again. You will marry Roran and Katrina tomorrow. What a strange thought that is. Strange Roran should marry, and strange I should be the one to perform the ceremony. Roran. Married. Thinking about it makes me feel older. Even we, who were boys but a short while ago, cannot escape the inexorable progress of time. So the generations pass, and soon it will be our turn to send our children out into the land to do the work that needs to be done. But not unless we can survive the next few months. Aye, there is that. Sephira wobbled as turbulence buffeted them. Then she looked back at him and asked, 
Ready? Go! Tilting forward, she pulled her wings close against her sides and plummeted toward the ground faster than a speeding arrow. Aragon laughed as the sensation of weightlessness overtook him. He tightened his legs around Sephira to keep himself from drifting away from her, then, overtaken by a surge of recklessness, released his grip and held his hands over his head. The disk of land below spun like a wheel as Sephira augured through the air. Slowing and then stopping her rotation, she rolled to the right until she was falling upside down. Sephira! cried Aragon and pounded her shoulder. A ribbon of smoke streaming from her nostrils, she righted herself and again pointed herself at the fast-approaching ground. Aragon's ears popped, and he worked his jaw as the pressure increased. Less than a thousand feet above the Varden's camp, and only a few seconds from crashing into the tents and excavating a large and bloody crater, Sephira allowed the wind to catch her wings. The subsequent jolt threw Aragon forward, and the spike he had been holding nearly stabbed him in the eye. With three powerful flaps, Sephira brought them to a complete halt. Locking her wings outstretched, she then began to gently circle downward. Now that was fun, exclaimed Aragon. There is no more exciting sport than flying, for if you lose, you die. Ah, but I have complete confidence in your abilities. You would never run us into the ground. Her pleasure at his compliment radiated from her. Angling toward his tent, she shook her head, jostling him, and said, I ought to be accustomed to it by now, but every time I come out of a dive like that, it makes my chest and wing arm so sore, the next morning I can barely move. He patted her. Well, you shouldn't have to fly tomorrow. The wedding is our only obligation, and you can walk to it. She grunted and landed amid a billow of dust, knocking over an empty tent with her tail in the process. Dismounting, Aragon left her grooming herself, with six of the elves standing nearby, and with the other six he trotted through the camp until he located the healer Gertrude. From her he learned the marriage rites he would need the following day, and he practiced them with her, that he might avoid an embarrassing blunder when the moment arrived. Then Aragon returned to his tent and washed his face and changed his clothes, before going with Sephira to dine with King Orin and his entourage, as promised. Late that night, when the feast was finally over, Aragon and Sephira walked back to his tent, gazing at the stars and talking about what had been and what yet might be. And they were happy. When they arrived at their destination, Aragon paused and looked up at Sephira, and his heart was so full of love he thought it might stop beating. Good night, Sephira. Good night, little one. Unexpected Guests The next morning Aragon went behind his tent, removed his heavy outer clothes, and began to glide through the poses of the second level of the Rimgar, the series of exercises the elves had invented. Soon his initial chill vanished. He began to pant from the effort and sweat coated his limbs, which made it difficult for him to keep hold of his feet or his hands, 
when contorted into a position that felt as if it were going to tear the muscles from his bones. An hour later he finished the Rimgar. Drying his palms on the corner of his tent, he drew the falchion and practiced his swordsmanship for another thirty minutes. He would have preferred to continue familiarizing himself with the sword for the rest of the day, for he knew his life might depend upon his skill with it. But Roran's wedding was fast approaching, and the villagers could use all the help they could get if they were to complete the preparations in time. Refreshed, Aragon bathed in cold water and dressed, and then he and Sephira walked to where Elaine was overseeing the cooking of Roran and Katrina's wedding feast. Blodgarm and his companions followed a dozen or so yards behind, slipping between the tents with stealthy ease. Ah, good, Aragon, Elaine said. I had hoped you would come. She stood with both her hands pressed into the small of her back to relieve the weight of her pregnancy. Pointing with her chin past a row of spits and cauldrons suspended over a bed of coals, past a clump of men butchering a hog, past three makeshift ovens built of mud and stone, and past a pile of kegs toward a line of planks set on stumps that six women were using as a counter, she said, There are still twenty loaves of bread dough that have to be kneaded. Will you see to it, please? Then she frowned at the calluses on his knuckles. And try not to get those in the dough, won't you? The six women standing at the planks, which included Felder and Burgett, fell silent when Aragon took his place among them. His few attempts to restart the conversation failed, but after a while, when he had given up on putting them at ease and was concentrating on his kneading, they resumed talking of their own accord. They spoke about Roran and Katrina and how lucky the two of them were, and of the villagers' life in the camp and of their journey thence. And then, without preamble, Felder looked over at Aragon and said, your dough looks a little sticky. Shouldn't you add some flour? Aragon checked the consistency. You're right. Thank you. Felder smiled, and after that the women included him in their conversation. While Aragon worked the warm dough, Sephira lay basking on a nearby patch of grass. The children from Carvajal played on and around her. Laughing shrieks punctuated the deeper thrum of the adults' voices. When a pair of mangy dogs started barking at Sephira, she lifted her head off the ground and growled at them. They ran away, yipping. Everyone in the clearing was someone Aragon had known while growing up. Horst and Fisk were on the other side of the spits, constructing tables for the feast. Kisselt was wiping the hog's blood off his forearms. Ulbrick, Balder, Mandel, and several other of the younger men were carrying poles wound with ribbons toward the hill where Roran and Katrina wished to be married. The tavern-keeper Morn was off mixing the wedding drink with his wife Tara holding three flagons and a cask for him. A few hundred feet away, Roran was shouting something at a mule driver who was attempting to run his charges through the clearing. Loring Delwyn and the boy Nolfrevrel stood clustered nearby, watching... With a loud curse, Roran grabbed the lead mule's harness and struggled to turn the animals round. The sight amused Aragon. He had never known Roran to get so flustered, nor to be so short-tempered. The mighty warrior is nervous ere his contest, observed Disold, one of the six women next to Aragon. The group laughed. 
Perhaps, Burgett said, stirring water into flour, he is worried his sword may bend in the battle. Gales of merriment swept the women. Aragon's cheeks flushed. He kept his gaze fixed on the dough in front of him and increased the speed of his kneading. Bawdy jokes were common at weddings, and he had enjoyed his share before, but hearing them directed at his cousin disconcerted him. The people who would not be able to attend the wedding were as much on Aragon's mind as those who could. He thought of Bird, Quimby, Pa, Hyder, young Elmond, Kelby, and the others who had died because of the Empire. But most of all he thought of Garrow, and wished his uncle was still alive to see his only son acclaimed a hero by the villagers and the Varden alike, and to see him take Katrina's hand and finally become a man in full. Closing his eyes, Aragon turned his face toward the noonday sun and smiled up at the sky, content. The weather was pleasant, the aroma of yeast, flour, roasting meat, freshly poured wine, boiling soups, sweet pastries and melted candies suffused the clearing. His friends and family were gathered around him for celebration and not for mourning, and for the moment he was safe and Sephira was safe. This is how life ought to be. A single horn rang out across the land, unnaturally loud. Then again, and again. Everyone froze, uncertain what the three notes signified. For a brief interval, the entire camp was silent except for the animals. Then the Varden's war drums began to beat. Chaos erupted. Mothers ran for their children and cooks dampened their fires while the rest of the men and women scrambled after their weapons. Aragon sprinted towards Sephira, even as she surged to her feet. Reaching out with his mind, he found Blodgarm, and once the elf lowered his defences somewhat, said, Meet us at the north entrance. We hear and obey, Shadeslayer. Aragon flung himself onto Sephira. The instant he got a leg over her neck, she jumped four rows of tents, landed, and then jumped a second time, her wings half-furled, not flying, but rather bounding through the camp like a mountain cat crossing a fast-flowing river. The impact of each landing jarred Aragon's teeth and spine and threatened to knock him off his perch. As they rose and fell, frightened warriors dodging out of their path, Aragon contacted Triana and the other members of Duvrangargata, identifying the location of each spellcaster and organizing them for battle. Someone who was not of Duvrangargata touched his thoughts. He recoiled, slamming walls up around his consciousness, before he realized that it was Angela the herbalist, and allowed the contact. She said, I am with Nasuada and Elva. Nasuada wants you and Sephira to meet her at the north entrance as soon as we can. Yes, yes, we're on our way. What of Elva? Does she sense anything? Pain, great pain. Yours, the Vardens, the others. I'm sorry, she's not very coherent right now. It's too much for her to cope with. I'm going to put her to sleep until the violence is at an end. Angela severed the connection. Like a carpenter, laying out and examining his tools before beginning a new project, Aragon reviewed the wards he had placed around himself, Sephira, Nasawada, Arya, and Roran. They all seemed to be in order. Sephira slid to a stop before his tent, furrowing the packed earth with her talons. 
he leaped off her back, rolling as he struck the ground. Bouncing upright, he dashed inside, undoing his sword belt as he went. He dropped the belt and the attached falchion into the dirt, and scrabbling under his cot, retrieved his armour. The cold, heavy rings of the male hauberk slid over his head and settled on his shoulders with a sound like falling coins. He tied on his arming cap, placed the coif over it, and then jammed his head into his helm. Snatching up the belt, he refastened it around his waist. With his greaves and his braces in his left hand, he hooked his little finger through the arm strap of his shield, grabbed Sephira's heavy saddle with his right hand, and burst out of the tent. Releasing his armour in a noisy clatter, he threw the saddle onto the mound of Sephira's shoulders and climbed after it. In his haste and excitement and his apprehension, he had trouble buckling the straps. Sephira shifted her stance. Hurry! You're taking too long! Yes, I'm moving as fast as I can. It doesn't help you're so blasted big. She growled. The camp swarmed with activity, men and dwarves streaming in jangling rivers toward the north, rushing to answer the summons of the war drums. Aragon collected his abandoned armor off the ground, mounted Sephira, and settled into the saddle. With a flash of downswept wings, a jolt of acceleration, a blast of swirling air, and the bitter complaint of bracers scraping against shield, Sephira took to the air. While they sped toward the northern edge of the camp, Aragon strapped the greaves to his shins, holding himself on Sephira merely with the strength of his legs. The bracers he wedged between his belly and the front of the saddle. The shield he hung from a neck spike. When the greaves were secure, he slid his legs through the row of leather loops on either side of the saddle, then tightened the slipknot on each loop. Aragon's hand brushed against the belt of Belot the Wise. He groaned, remembering that he had emptied the belt while healing Sephira in Hellgrind. Ah, I should have stored some energy in it. We'll be fine, said Sephira. He was just fitting on the braces when Sephira arched her wings, cupping the air with the translucent membranes, and reared, stalling to a standstill as she alighted upon the crest of one of the embankments that ringed the camp. Nasawada was already there, sitting upon her massive charger, Battlestorm. Beside her was Jormunda, also mounted, Arya on foot, and the current watch of the Nighthawks led by Kagra, one of the Urgles Aragon had met on the burning plains. Blodgarm and the other elves emerged from the forest of tents behind them and stationed themselves close to Aragon and Sephira. From a different part of the camp galloped King Orin and his retinue, reining in their prancing steeds as they drew near Nasawada. Close upon their heels came Nahim, chief of the dwarves and three of his warriors, the group of them riding ponies clad with leather and mail armor. Nargajvag ran out of the fields to the east, the cull's thudding footsteps preceding his arrival by several seconds. Nasawada shouted an order, and the guards at the north entrance pulled aside the crude wooden gate to allow Gajvag inside the camp, although if he had wanted, the cull probably could have knocked open the gate by himself. Who challenges? growled Gajvag, scaling the embankment with four inhumanly long strides. The horses shied away from the gigantic Urgle. Look! Nasawada pointed. Eragon was already studying their enemies. Roughly two miles away, five sleek boats, black as pitch, 
had landed upon the near bank of the Jeet River. From the boats there issued a swarm of men garbed in the livery of Galbatorix's army. The host glittered like wind-whipped water under a summer's sun, as swords, spears, shields, helmets, and mail ringlets caught and reflected the light. Arya shaded her eyes with a hand and squinted at the soldiers. I put their number between two hundred seventy and three hundred. Why so few? wondered Jormunder. King Orin scowled. Galbatorix cannot be mad enough to believe he can destroy us with such a paltry force. Orin pulled off his helm, which was in the shape of a crown, and dabbed his brow with the corner of his tunic. We could obliterate that entire group and not lose a man. Maybe, said Nasawada. Maybe not. Gnawing on the words, Garjvag added, The Dragon King is a false-tongued traitor, a rogue ram, but his mind is not feeble. He is cunning like a blood-hungry weasel. The soldiers assembled themselves in orderly ranks and then began marching toward the Varden. A messenger boy ran up to Nasawada. She bent in her saddle to listen, then dismissed him. Nargajvog, your people are safe within our camp. They are gathered near the east gate, ready for you to lead them. Garjvag grunted, but remained where he was. Looking back at the approaching soldiers, Nasawada said, I can think of no reason to engage them in the open. We can pick them off with archers once they are within range. And when they reach our breastwork, they will break themselves against the trenches and the staves. Not a single one will escape alive she concluded with evident satisfaction. When they have committed themselves, said Orin, my horsemen and I could ride out and attack them from the rear. They will be so surprised they will not even have a chance to defend themselves. The tide of battle may... Nasawada was replying, when the brazen horn that had announced the arrival of the soldiers sounded once more, so loudly that Aragon, Arya, and the rest of the elves covered their ears. Eragon winced with pain from the blast. Where is that coming from? he asked Sephira. A more important question, I think, is why the soldiers would want to warn us of their attack, if they are indeed responsible for this baying. Maybe it's a diversion, or... Eragon forgot what he was going to say as he saw a stir of motion on the far side of the Jeep River behind a veil of sorrowful willow trees, red as a ruby dipped in blood, red as iron hot to forge, red as a burning ember of hate and anger, thorn appeared above the languishing trees, and upon the back of the glittering dragon there sat Murtag in his bright steel armour, thrusting Zarok high over his head. They have come for us said Sephira. Aragon's gut twisted, and he felt Sephira's own dread like a current of bilious water running through his mind. Fire in the Sky As Aragon watched Thorn and Murtag rise high in the northern sky, he heard Nahim whisper, Basul, and then curse Murtag for killing Hrothgar the king of the dwarves. Arya spun away from the sight, 
Nasawada, your majesty, she said, her eyes flicking toward Orin. You have to stop the soldiers before they reach the camp. You cannot allow them to attack our defenses. If they do, they will sweep over these ramparts like a storm-driven wave and wreak untold havoc in our midst among the tents, where we cannot maneuver effectively. Untold havoc? Orin scoffed. Have you so little confidence in our prowess, Ambassador? Humans and dwarves may not be as gifted as elves, but we shall have no difficulty in disposing of these miserable wretches, I can assure you. The lines of Arya's face tightened. Your prowess is without compare, your majesty. I do not doubt it. But listen, this is a trap set for Aragon and Sephira. They, she flung an arm toward the rising figures of Thorn and Murtag, have come to capture Aragon and Sephira and spirit them away to Urubain. Galbatorix would not have sent so few men unless he was confident they could keep the Varden occupied long enough for Murtag to overwhelm Aragon. Galbatorix must have placed spells on those men, spells to aid them in their mission. What those enchantments might be I do not know, but of this I am certain. The soldiers are more than they appear, and we must prevent them from entering this camp. Emerging from his initial shock, Aragon said, You don't want to let Thorn fly over the camp. He could set fire to half of it with a single pass. Nasawada clasped her hands over the pommel of her saddle, seemingly oblivious to Murtag and Thorn and to the soldiers, who were now less than a mile away. But why not attack us while we were unawares? she asked. Why alert us to their presence? It was Nahim who answered, because they would not want Aragon and Sephira to get caught up in the fighting on the ground. No, unless I am mistaken, their plan is for Aragon and Sephira to meet Thorn and Murtag in the air, while the soldiers assail our position here. Is it wise, then, to accommodate their wishes, to willingly send Aragon and Sephira into this trap? Nasawada raised an eyebrow. Yes, insisted Arya for we have an advantage they could not suspect. She pointed at Blodgarm. This time Aragon shall not face Murtag alone. He will have the combined strength of thirteen elves supporting him. Murtag will not be expecting that. Stop the soldiers before they reach us, and you will have frustrated part of Galbatorix's design. Send Sephira and Aragon up with the mightiest spellcasters of my race bolstering their efforts, and you will disrupt the remainder of Galbatorix's scheme. You have convinced me, said Nasawada. However, the soldiers are too close for us to intercept them any distance from the camp with men on foot. Orin. Before she finished, the king had turned his horse around and was racing toward the north gate of the camp. One of his retinue winded a trumpet, a signal for the rest of Orin's cavalry to assemble for a charge. To Garjvag, Nasuada said, King Orin will require assistance. Send your rams to join him. Lady Nightstalker. Throwing back his massive horned head, Garjvag loosed a wild, wailing bellow. The skin on the back of Aragon's arms and neck prickled as he listened to the Urgle's savage howl. With a snap of his jaws, 
Garjvag ceased his belling and then grunted, They will come. The cull broke into an earth-shattering trot and ran toward the gate where King Orin and his horsemen were gathered. Four of the Varden dragged open the gate. King Orin raised his sword, shouted, and galloped out of the camp, leading his men toward the soldiers in their gold-stitched tunics. A plume of cream-colored dust billowed out from underneath the hooves of the horses, obscuring the arrowhead-shaped formation from view. Jormunder, said Nasawada. Yes, my lady. Order two hundred swordsmen and a hundred spearmen after them, and have fifty archers station themselves seventy to eighty yards away from the fighting. I want these soldiers crushed, Jormunder, obliterated, ground out of existence. The men are to understand that no quarter is to be given or accepted. Jormunder bowed. And tell them that although I cannot join them in this battle on account of my arms, my spirit marches with them. My lady. As Jormunder hurried off, Nahim urged his pony closer to Nasawada. What of mine own people, Nasawada? What role shall we play? Nasawada frowned at the thick, choking dust that drifted across the rolling expanse of grass. You can help guard our perimeter. If the soldiers should somehow win free of... She was forced to pause as four hundred ergols, more had arrived since the Battle of the Burning Plains, pounded out of the center of the camp, through the gate, and onto the field beyond, roaring incomprehensible war cries the whole while. As they vanished into the dust, Nasawada resumed speaking. If the soldiers should win free, your axes will be most welcome in the lines. The wind gusted toward them, carrying with it the screams of dying men and horses, the shivery sound of metal sliding over metal, the clink of swords glancing off helmets, the dull impact of spears on shields, and underlying it all, a horrible, humorless laughter that issued from a multitude of throats and continued without pause throughout the mayhem. It was, Aragon thought, the laughter of the insane. Nahim pounded his fist against his hip. By Morgothal, we are not ones to stand by idly when there is a fight to be had. Release us, Nasawada, and let us hew a few necks for you. No, exclaimed Nasawada. No, no, and no. I have given you my orders, and I expect you to abide by them. This is a battle of horses and men and ergols, and perhaps even dragons. It is not a fit place for dwarves. You would be trampled like children. At Nahim's outraged oath, she raised a hand. I am well aware you are fearsome warriors. No one knows that better than I, who fought beside you in Farthandur. However, not to put too fine a point on it, you are short by our standards, and I would rather not risk your warriors in a fray such as this, where your stature might be your undoing. Better to wait here on the high ground, where you stand taller than anyone who tries to climb this berm, and let the soldiers come to you. If any soldiers do reach us, they shall be warriors of such tremendous skill. I want you and your people there to repel them, for one might as well try to uproot a mountain as defeat a dwarf. Still displeased, Nahim grumbled some response, but whatever he said was lost 
as the Varden Nasawada had deployed, filed through the cleft in the embankment where the gate had been. The noise of tramping feet and clattering equipment faded as the men drew away from the camp. Then the wind stiffened into a steady breeze, and from the direction of the fighting, the grim giggle again wafted toward them. A moment later, a mental shout of incredible strength overwhelmed Aragon's defences and tore through his consciousness, filling him with agony as he heard a man say, Ah, no! Help me! They won't die! Angvard, take them! They won't die! The link between their minds vanished then, and Aragon swallowed hard as he realised the man had been killed. Nasawada shifted in her saddle. Her expression strained. Who was that? You heard him too? It seems we all did, said Arya. I think it was Barden, one of the spellcasters who rides with King Orin, but... Aragorn! Thorn had been circling higher and higher while King Orin and his men engaged the soldiers, but now the dragon hung motionless in the sky, halfway between the soldiers and the camp and Murtag's voice, augmented with magic, echoed forth across the land. Aragorn, I see you there, hiding behind Nasuada's skirts. Come, fight me, Aragorn. It is your destiny. Or are you a coward, Shade Slayer? Sephira answered for Aragorn by lifting her head and roaring even louder than Murtag's thunderous speech then discharging a twenty-foot-long jet of crackling blue fire. The horses close to Sephira, including Nasawada's, bolted away, leaving Sephira and Aragorn alone on the embankment with the elves. Walking over to Sephira, Arya placed a hand on Aragorn's left leg and looked up at him with her slanted green eyes. Accept this from me, Shurtugal, she said, and he felt a surge of energy flow into him. Eka Elrun Ono, he murmured to her. Also in the ancient language, she said, Be careful, Aragon. I would not want to see you broken by Murtag. I... It seemed as if she were going to say more, but she hesitated, then removed her hand from his leg and retreated to stand by Blodgarm. Fly well, Bjartskuller, the elves sang out as Sephira launched herself off the embankment. As Sephira winged her way toward Thorn, Aragon joined his mind first with her and then with Arya, and through Arya with Blodgarm and the eleven other elves. By having Arya serve as the focal point for the elves, Aragon was able to concentrate on the thoughts of Arya and Sephira. He knew them so well that their reactions would not distract him in the middle of a fight. Aragon grasped the shield with his left hand, and unsheathed his falchion. Holding it upraised, so he would not accidentally stab Sephira's wings as she flapped, nor slash her shoulders nor her neck, which were in constant motion. I'm glad I took the time last night to reinforce the falchion with magic, he said to Sephira and Arya. Let us hope your spells hold, Sephira answered. Remember, said Arya, remain as close to us as you can. The more distance you place between us, the harder it is for us to maintain this bond with you. Thorn did not dive at Sephira, nor otherwise attack her as she neared him, but rather slid away on rigid wings, 
allowing her to rise to his level unmolested. The two dragons balanced upon the thermals, facing each other across a gap of fifty yards, the tips of their barbed tails twitching, both of their muzzles wrinkled with ferocious snarls. He's bigger, observed Sephira. It's not been two weeks since we last fought, and he has grown another four feet, if not more. She was right. Thorn was longer from head to tail and deeper in the chest than he had been when they first clashed over the burning plains. He was barely older than a hatchling, but he was already nearly as large as Sephira. Aragon reluctantly shifted his gaze from the dragon to the rider. Murtag was bareheaded, and his long black hair billowed behind him like a sleek mane. His face was hard, harder than Aragon had ever seen before, and Aragon knew that this time Murtag would not, could not, show him mercy. The volume of his voice substantially reduced, but still louder than normal, Murtag said, You and Sephira have caused us a great deal of pain, Aragon. Galbatorix was furious with us for letting you go, and after the two of you killed the Razak, he was so angry he slew five of his servants and then turned his wrath upon Thorn and me. We have both suffered horribly on account of you. We shall not do so again. He drew back his arm, as if Thorn were about to lunge forward and Murtag were preparing to slash at Aragon and Sephira. Wait, cried Aragon. I know of a way you can both free yourselves of your oaths to Galbatorix. An expression of desperate longing transformed Murtag's features, and he lowered Zarok a few inches. Then he scowled and spat toward the ground and shouted, I don't believe you. It's not possible. It is. Just let me explain. Murtag seemed to be struggling with himself, and for a while Aragon thought he might refuse. Swinging his head around, Thorn looked back at Murtag, and something passed between them. Blast you, Aragon, said Murtag, and lay Zarok across the front of his saddle. Blast you for baiting us with this. We had already made peace with our lot, and you have to tantalize us with the spectre of a hope we had abandoned. If this proves to be a false hope, brother, I swear I'll cut off your right hand before we present you to Galbatorix. You won't need it for what you will be doing in Urubain. A threat of his own occurred to Aragon, but he suppressed it. Lowering the falchion, he said, Galbatorix would not have told you, but when I was among the elves, Aragon, do not reveal anything more about us, exclaimed Arya. I learned that if your personality changes, so does your true name in the ancient language. Who you are isn't cast in iron, Murtag. If you and Thorn can change something about yourselves, your oaths will no longer bind you, and Galbatorix will lose his hold on you. Thorn drifted several yards closer to Sephira. Why didn't you mention this before? Murtag demanded. I was too confused at the time. A scant fifty feet separated Thorn and Sephira by then. The red dragon's snarl had subsided to a faint warning curl of his upper lip, and in his sparkling crimson eyes, 
appeared a vast, puzzled sadness, as if he hoped Sephira or Aragon might know why he had been brought into the world merely so Galbatorix could enslave him, abuse him, and force him to destroy other beings' lives. The tip of Thorn's nose twitched as he sniffed at Sephira. She sniffed him in return, and her tongue darted out of her mouth as she tasted his scent. Pity for Thorn welled up inside Aragon and Sephira together, and they wished they could speak with him directly, but they dared not open their minds to him. With so little distance between them, Aragon noticed the bundles of cords that ridged Murtag's neck, and the forked vein that pulsed in the middle of his forehead. I am not evil, said Murtag. I've done the best I could under the circumstances. I doubt you would have survived as well as I did if our mother had seen fit to leave you in Urbane and hide me in Carvajal. Perhaps not. Murtag banged his breastplate with his fist. Aha! Then how am I supposed to follow your advice? If I am already a good man, if I have already done as well as could be expected, how can I change? Must I become worse than I am? Must I embrace Galbatorix's darkness in order to free myself of it? That hardly seems like a reasonable solution. If I succeeded in so altering my identity, you would not like who I had become, and you would curse me as strongly as you curse Galbatorix now. Frustrated, Aragon said, Yes, but you do not have to become better or worse than you are now, only different. There are many kinds of people in the world and many ways to behave honorably. Look at someone whom you admire, but who has chosen paths other than your own through life, and model your actions upon his. It may take a while, but if you can shift your personality enough, you can leave Galbatorix and you can leave the Empire, and you and Thorn could join us in the Varden, where you would be free to do as you wish. What of your own oaths to avenge Hrothgar's death? Sephira asked. Aragon ignored her. Murtag sneered at him. So you are asking me to be that which I am not? If Thorn and I are to save ourselves, we must destroy our current identities. Your cure is worse than our affliction. I'm asking you to allow yourself to grow into something other than you are now. It's a difficult thing to do, I know, but people remake themselves all the time. Let go of your anger, for one, and you can turn your back on Galbatorix once and for all. Let go of my anger, Murtag laughed. I'll let go of my anger when you forget yours over the Empire's role in the death of your uncle and the raising of your farm. Anger defines us, Aragon, and without it you and I would be a feast for maggots. Still, his eyes half-lidded, Murtag tapped Zarok's crossguard, the cords in his neck softening, although the vein that split his forehead remained swollen as ever. The concept is intriguing, I admit. Perhaps we can work on it together. When we are in Urubain. That is, if the king permits us to be alone with each other. Of course, he may decide to keep us permanently separated. I would, if I were in his position. Aragon tightened his fingers around the hilt of the falchion. 
You seem to think we will accompany you to the capital. Oh, but you will, brother. A crooked smile stretched Murtag's mouth. Even if we wanted to, Thorn and I could not change who we are in an instant. Until such time as we may have that opportunity, we shall remain beholden to Galbatorix, and he has ordered us in no uncertain terms to bring him the two of you. Neither of us is willing to brave the king's displeasure again. We defeated you once before. It will be no great achievement to do so again. A spurt of flame escaped from between Sephira's teeth, and Aragon had to stifle a similar response in words. If he lost control of his temper now, bloodshed would be unavoidable. Please, Murtag, Thorn, will you not at least try what I've suggested? Have you no desire to resist Galbatorix? You will never cast off your chains unless you are willing to defy him. You underestimate Galbatorix, Aragon, growled Murtag. He has been creating nameslaves for over a hundred years, ever since he recruited our father. Do you think he is unaware that a person's true name may vary over the course of his life? He is sure to have taken precautions against that eventuality. If my true name were to change this very moment, or Thorns, most likely it would trigger a spell that would alert Galbatorix to the change and force us to return to him in Urubain so he could bind us to him again. But only if he could guess your new names. He is most adept at the practice. Murtag raised Zarok off the saddle. We may make use of your suggestion in the future, but only after careful study and preparation, so that Thorn and I do not regain our freedom, only to have Galbatorix steal it back from us directly afterward. He hefted Zarok the sword's iridescent blade shimmering. Therefore we have no choice but to take you with us to Urubain. Will you go peacefully? Unable to contain himself any longer, Aragon said, I would sooner tear out my own heart. Better to tear out my hearts, Murtag replied, then stabbed Zarok overhead and shouted a wild war cry. Roaring in unison, Thorn flapped twice, fast, to climb above Sephira. He twisted in a half-circle as he rose, so his head would be over Sephira's neck, where he could immobilize her with a single bite at the base of her skull. Sephira did not wait for him. She tipped forward, rotating her wings in their shoulder sockets, so that for the span of a heartbeat she pointed straight down, her wings still parallel with the dust-smeared ground, supporting her entire unstable weight. Then she pulled in her right wing and swung her head to the left and her tail to the right, spinning in a clockwise direction. Her muscular tail struck Thorn across his left side just as he sailed over her, breaking his wing in five separate places. The jagged ends of Thorn's hollow flight bones pierced his hide and stuck out between his flashing scales. Globules of steaming dragon blood rained down upon Aragon and Sephira. A droplet splashed against the back of Aragon's quaff and seeped through the mail to his bare skin. It burned like hot oil. He scrabbled at his neck, trying to wipe off the blood. His roar converting into a whine of pain, Thorn tumbled past Sephira, unable to stay aloft. Well done! 
Aragon shouted to Saphira as she righted herself. Aragon watched from above as Murtag removed a small round object from his belt and pressed it against Thorn's shoulder. Aragon sensed no surge of magic from Murtag, but the object in his hand flared and Thorn's broken wing jerked as his bones snapped back in place and muscles and tendons rippled and the tears in them vanished. Lastly, the wounds in Thorn's hide sealed over. How did he do that? Aragon exclaimed. Arya answered. He must have imbued the item with a spell of healing beforehand. We should have thought of that ourselves. His injuries mended. Thorn halted his fall and began to ascend towards Saphira with prodigious speed, searing the air in front of him with a boiling spear of sullen red fire. Saphira dove at him, spiralling around the Tower of Flame. She snapped at Thorn's neck, causing him to shy away, and raked his shoulders and chest with her front claws, and buffeted him with her huge wings. The edge of her right wing clipped Murtag, knocking him sideways in his saddle. He recovered quickly and slashed at Saphira, opening up a three-foot rent in the membrane of her wing. Hissing, Saphira kicked Thorn away with her hind legs and released a jet of fire, which split and passed harmlessly on either side of Thorn. Aragon felt through Saphira the throbbing of her wound. He stared at the bloody gash, thoughts racing. If they had been fighting any magician besides Murtag, he would not dare to cast a spell while engaged in hostilities, for the magician would most likely believe he or she was about to die, and would counter with a desperate, all-out magical attack. It was different with Murtag. Aragon knew Galbatorix had ordered Murtag to capture, not kill, him and Saphira. No matter what I do, Aragon thought, he will not attempt to slay me. It was safe then, Aragon decided, to heal Saphira. And, he belatedly realized, he could attack Murtag with any spells he desired, and Murtag would not be able to respond with deadly force. But he wondered why Murtag had used an enchanted object to cure Thorn's hurts, instead of casting the spell himself. Saphira said, Perhaps he wants to preserve his strength, or perhaps he wanted to avoid frightening you. It would not please Galbatorix if by using magic, Murtag caused you to panic, and you killed yourself or Thorn or Murtag as a result. Remember, the king's great ambition is to have all four of us under his command, not dead, where we are beyond his reach. That must be it. Aragon agreed. As he prepared to mend Saphira's wing, Arya said, Wait, do not. What? Why? Can't you feel Saphira's pain? Let my brethren and I tend to her. It will confuse Murtag, and this way the effort shall not weaken you. Aren't you too far away to work such a change? Not when the lot of us pool our resources. And Aragon, we recommend you refrain from striking at Murtag with magic until he attacks with mind or magic himself. He may yet be stronger than you, even with the thirteen of us lending our strength. We do not know. It is better not to test yourself against him until there is no other alternative. And if I cannot prevail, all of Alagazia will fall to Galbatorix. Aragon sensed Arya concentrating. Then the cut in Saphira's wing ceased weeping tears of blood, 
and the raw edges of the delicate cerulean membrane flowed together without a scab or a scar. Sephira's relief was palpable. With a tinge of fatigue, Arius said, Guard yourself better if you can. This was not easy. After Sephira had kicked him, Thorn flailed and lost altitude. He must have assumed that Sephira meant to harry him downward, where it would be harder for him to evade her attacks because he fled west a quarter of a mile. When he finally noticed that Sephira was not pursuing him, he circled up and around until he was a good thousand feet higher than she was. Drawing in his wings, Thorn hurtled towards Sephira, flames flickering in his open maw, his ivory talons outstretched, Murtag brandishing Zarok on his back. Eragon nearly lost his grip on the falchion as Sephira folded one wing and flipped upside down with a dizzying wrench, then extended the wing again to slow her descent. If he craned his head backward, Eragon could see the ground below them. Or was it above them? He gritted his teeth and concentrated on maintaining his hold on the saddle. Thorn and Sephira collided. And to Eragon, it was as if Sephira had crashed into the side of a mountain. The force of the impact drove him forward, and he banged his helmet against the neck spike in front of him, denting the thick steel. Dazed, he hung loose from the saddle and watched as the discs of the heavens and the earth reversed themselves, spinning without a discernible pattern. He felt Sephira shudder as Thorn battered her exposed belly. Aragon wished there had been time to dress her in the armor the dwarves had given her. A glittering ruby leg appeared around Sephira's shoulder, mauling her with bloody claws. Without thinking, Aragon hacked at it, shattering a line of scales and severing a bundle of tendons. Three of the toes on the foot went limp. Aragon hacked again. Snarling, Thorn disengaged from Sephira. He arched his neck, and Aragon heard an inrush of air as the stocky dragon filled his lungs. Aragon ducked, burying his face in the corner of his elbow. A ravening inferno engulfed Sephira. The heat of the fire could not harm them. Aragon's wards prevented that. But the torrent of incandescent flames was still blinding. Sephira veered to the left out of the churning fire. By then Murtag had repaired the damage to Thorn's leg, and Thorn again flung himself at Sephira, grappling with her as they plummeted in sickening lurches toward the grey tents of the Varden. Sephira managed to clamp her teeth on the horned crest that projected from the rear of Thorn's head, despite the points of bone that punctured her tongue. Thorn bellowed and thrashed like a hooked fish, trying to pull away, but he was no match for the iron muscles of Sephira's jaws. The two dragons drifted downward side by side like a pair of interlocked leaves. Eragon leaned over and slashed crosswise at Murtag's right shoulder, not intending to kill him, but rather to injure him severely enough to end the fight. Unlike during their clash over the burning plains, Eragon was well rested. With his arm as fast as an elf's, he was confident Murtag would be defenceless before him. Murtag lifted his shield and blocked the falchion. His reaction was so unexpected, Eragon faltered, then barely had time to recoil and parry as Murtag retaliated, swinging Zarok at him, the blade humming through the air with inordinate speed. The stroke jarred Eragon's shoulder. Pressing the attack, 
Murtag struck at Aragon's wrist, and then, when Aragon dashed aside Zarok, thrust underneath Aragon's shield, and stabbed through the fringe of his male hauberk and his tunic and the waist of his breeches, and into his left hip. The tip of Zarok embedded itself in bone. The pain shocked Aragon like a splash of frigid water, but it also lent his thoughts a preternatural clarity and sent a burst of uncommon strength coursing through his limbs. As Murtag withdrew Zarok, Aragon yelled and lunged at Murtag, who, with a flip of his wrist, trapped the falchion beneath Zarok. Murtag bared his teeth in a sinister smile. Without pause, Aragon yanked the falchion free, fainted toward Murtag's right knee, then whipped the falchion in the opposite direction and sliced Murtag across the cheek. You should have worn a helmet, said Aragon. They were so close to the ground then, only a few hundred feet, that Sephira had to release Thorn, and the two dragons separated before Aragon and Murtag could exchange any more blows. As Sephira and Thorn spiralled upward, racing each other toward a pearl-white cloud gathering over the tents of the Varden, Aragon lifted his hauberk and tunic and examined his hip. A fist-sized patch of skin was discoloured where Zarok had crushed the mail against his flesh. In the middle of the patch was a thin red line, two inches long, where Zarok had pierced him. Blood oozed from the wound, soaking the top of his breeches. Being hurt by Zarok, a sword that had never failed him in moments of danger and that he still regarded as rightfully his, unsettled him. To have his own weapon turned against him was wrong. It was a warping of the world and his every instinct rebelled against it. Zephira wobbled as she flew through an eddy of air and Aragon winced, renewed pain lancing up his side. It was fortunate, he concluded, that they were not fighting on foot, for he did not think his hip would bear his weight. Arya, he said, do you want to heal me, or shall I do it myself and let Murtag stop me if he can? We shall attend to it for you, Arya said. You may be able to catch Murtag by surprise if he believes you are still wounded. Oh, wait! Why? I have to give you permission, otherwise my wards will block the spell. The phrase did not leap into Aragon's mind at first, but eventually he remembered the construction of the safeguard and in the ancient language whispered, I agree to let Arya, daughter of Islanzadi, cast a spell on me. We shall have to talk about your wards when you are not so distracted. What if you were unconscious? How could we minister to you then? It seemed like a good idea after the burning plains. Murtag immobilized us both with magic. I don't want him or anyone else to be able to cast spells on us without our consent. Nor should they, but there are more elegant solutions than yours. Eragon squirmed in the saddle as the elves' magic took effect, and his hip began to tingle and itch as if covered with flea bites. When the itching ceased, he slid a hand under his tunic and was delighted to feel nothing but smooth skin. Right, he said, rolling his shoulders. Let us teach them to fear our names. The pearl-white cloud looming large before them, Sephira twisted to the left, and then while Thorn was struggling to turn, plunged into the heart of the cloud. Everything went cold and damp and white. Then Sephira shot out of the far side, exiting only a few feet above and behind Thorn. 
Roaring with triumph, Sephira dropped upon Thorn and seized him by the flanks, sinking her claws deep into his thighs and along his spine. She snaked her head forward, caught Thorn's left wing in her mouth, and clamped down with the snick of razor teeth cutting through meat. Thorn writhed and screamed, a horrible sound Eragon had not suspected dragons were capable of producing. I have him, said Sephira. I can tear off his wing, but I would rather not. Whatever you are going to do, do it before we fall too far. His face pale beneath smeared gore, Murtag pointed at Eragon with Zarok, the sword trembling in the air, and a mental ray of immense power invaded Eragon's consciousness. The foreign presence groped after his thoughts, seeking to grab a hold and subdue them and subject them to Murtag's approval. As on the burning plains, Eragon noticed that Murtag's mind felt as if it contained multitudes, as if a confused chorus of voices was murmuring beneath the turmoil of Murtag's own thoughts. Eragon wondered if Murtag had a group of magicians assisting him, even as the elves were him. Difficult as it was, Eragon emptied his mind of everything but an image of Zarok. He concentrated on the sword with all his might, smoothing the plane of his consciousness into the calm of meditation, so Murtag would find no purchase with which to establish a foothold in Eragon's being. And when Thorn flailed underneath them and Murtag's attention wavered for an instant, Eragon launched a furious counterattack clutching at Murtag's consciousness. The two of them strove against each other in grim silence while they fell, wrestling back and forth in the confines of their minds. Sometimes Eragon seemed to gain the upper hand, sometimes Murtag, but neither could defeat the other. Eragon glanced at the ground, rushing up at them, and realized that their contest would have to be decided by other means. Lowering the falchion so it was level with Murtag, Eragon shouted, Letter! The same spell Murtag had used on him during their previous confrontation. It was a simple piece of magic. It would do nothing more than hold Murtag's arms and torso in place, but it would allow them to test themselves directly against one another and determine which of them had the most energy at their disposal. Murtag mouthed a counterspell, the words lost in thorn snarling and in the howling of the wind. Eragon's pulse raced as the strength ebbed from his limbs. When he had nearly depleted his reserves and was faint from the effort, Sephira and the elves poured the energy from their bodies into his, maintaining the spell for him. Across from him, Murtag had originally appeared smug and confident, but as Eragon continued to restrain him, Murtag's scowl deepened and he pulled back his lips, baring his teeth, and the whole while, they besieged each other's minds. Eragon felt the energy Arya was funneling into him decrease once, then twice, and he assumed that two of the spellweavers under Blodgarm's command had fainted. Murtag can't hold out much longer, he thought, and then had to struggle to regain control of his mind, for his lapse of concentration had granted Murtag entry. The force from Arya and the other elves declined by half, and even Sephira began to shake with exhaustion. Just as Eragon became convinced Murtag would prevail, Murtag uttered an anguished shout, 
and a great weight seemed to lift off Aragon as Murtag's resistance vanished. Murtag appeared astonished by Aragon's success. What now? Aragon asked Arya and Sephira. Do we take them as hostages? Can we? Now, said Sephira, I must fly. She released Thorn and pushed herself away from him, raising her wings and laboriously flapping as she endeavoured to keep them aloft. Aragon looked over her shoulder and had a brief impression of horses and sun-streaked grass hurtling toward them. Then it was as if a giant struck him from underneath, and his sight went black. The next thing Aragon saw was a swath of Sephira's neck scales an inch or two in front of his nose. The scales shone like cobalt-blue ice. Aragon was dimly aware of someone reaching out to his mind from across a great distance, their consciousness projecting an intense sense of urgency. As his faculties returned, he recognized the other person as Arya. She said, End the spell, Aragon! It will kill us all if you keep it up! End it! Murtag is too far away! Wake up, Aragon, or you will pass into the void! With a jolt, Aragon sat upright in the saddle, barely noticing that Sephira was crouched amid a circle of King Orin's horsemen. Arya was nowhere to be seen. Now that he was alert again, Aragon could feel the spell he had cast on Murtag still draining his strength, and in ever-increasing amounts. If not for the aid of Sephira and Arya and the other elves, he would have already died. Aragon released the magic then looked for Thorn and Murtag on the ground. There, said Sephira, and motioned with her snout. Low in the northwestern sky, Aragon saw Thorn's glittering shape, the dragon winging his way up the Jeet River, fleeing toward Galbatorix's army some miles distant. How? Murtag healed Thorn again, and Thorn was lucky enough to land on the slope of a hill. He ran down it, then took off before you regained consciousness. From across the rolling landscape, Murtag's magnified voice boomed. Do not think you have won, Aragon, Sephira. We shall meet again, a promise, and Thorn and I shall defeat you then, for we shall be even stronger than we are now. Aragon clenched his shield and his falchion so tightly he bled from underneath his fingernails. Do you think you can overtake him? I could, but the elves would not be able to help you from so far away, and I doubt we could prevail without their support. We might be able... Aragon stopped and pounded his leg in frustration. Blast it! I'm an idiot! I forgot about Aaron. We could have used the energy in Brom's ring to help defeat them. You had other things on your mind. Anyone might have made the same mistake. Maybe. But I still wish I had thought of Aaron sooner. We could still use it to capture Thorn and Murtag. And then what? asked Sephira. How could we keep them as prisoners? Would you drug them, like Durza drugged you in Gilead? Or do you just want to kill them? I don't know. We could help them to change their true names, to break their oaths to Galbatorix, 
Letting them wander around unchecked, though, is too dangerous. Arya said, In theory, you are right, Terragon, but you are tired. Sephira is tired, and I would rather Thorn and Murtag escape than we lose the two of you because you were not at your best. But, but, we do not have the capabilities to safely detain a dragon and rider for an extended period, and I do not think killing Thorn and Murtag would be as easy as you assume, Aragon. Be grateful we have driven them off, and rest easy, knowing we can do so again when next they dare to confront us. So saying, she withdrew from his mind. Aragon watched until Thorn and Murtag had vanished from sight, then he sighed and rubbed Sephira's neck. I could sleep for a fortnight. As could I. You should be proud. You outflew Thorn at nearly every turn. Yes, I did, didn't I? She preened. It was hardly a fair competition. Thorn does not have my experience. Nor your talent, I should think. Twisting her neck, she licked the upper part of his right arm the male hauberk tinkling, and then gazed down at him with sparkling eyes. He managed a ghost of a smile. I suppose I should have expected it, but it still surprised me that Murtag was as fast as me. More magic on the part of Galbatorix, no doubt. Why did your wards fail to deflect Zarok, though? They saved you from worse blows when we fought the Razak. I'm not sure. Murtag or Galbatorix might have invented a spell I had not thought to guard against. Or it could just be that Zarok is a rider's blade, and as Glader said, The swords Runan forged excel at cutting through enchantments of every kind, and it is only rarely they are affected by magic. Exactly. Aragon stared at the streaks of dragon blood on the flat of the falchion, weary. When will we be able to defeat our enemies on our own? I couldn't have killed Durza if Arya hadn't broken the Star Sapphire, and we were only able to prevail over Murtag and Thorn with the help of Arya and twelve others. We must become more powerful. Yes, but how? How has Galbatorix amassed his strength? Has he found a way to feed off the bodies of his slaves, even when he is hundreds of miles away? Oh, I don't know. A runnel of sweat coursed down Aragon's brow and into the corner of his right eye. He wiped off the perspiration with the palm of his hand, then blinked, and again noticed the horsemen gathered around him and Sephira. What are they doing here? Looking beyond, he realized Sephira had landed close to where King Orin had intercepted the soldiers from the boats. Not far off to her left, Hundreds of men, urgles and horses, milled about in panic and confusion. Occasionally the clatter of swords or the scream of a wounded man broke through the uproar, accompanied by snatches of demented laughter. I think they are here to protect us, said Sephira. Us? From what? Why haven't they killed the soldiers yet? Where? Aragon abandoned his question as Arya, Blodgarm, and four other haggard-looking elves sprinted up to Sephira from the direction of the camp. Raising a hand in greeting, Aragon called, Arya, what's happened? No one seems to be in command. 
To Aragon's alarm, Arya was breathing so hard she was unable to speak for a few moments. Then, the soldiers proved more dangerous than we anticipated. We do not know how. Duvrangergata has heard nothing but gibberish from Orin spellcasters. Regaining her breath, Arya started examining Saphira's cuts and bruises. Before Aragon could ask more, a collection of excited cries from within the maelstrom of warriors drowned out the rest of the tumult, and he heard King Orin shout, Back! Back, all of you! Archers, hold the line! Blast you, no one! Move! We have him! Saphira had the same thought as Aragon. Gathering her legs under her, she leaped over the ring of horsemen, startling the horses so they bucked and ran, and made her way across the corpse-strewn battlefield toward the sound of King Orin's voice, brushing aside men and ergles alike as if they were so many stalks of grass. The rest of the elves hurried to keep up, swords and bows in hand. Saphira found Orin sitting on his charger at the leading edge of the tightly packed warriors staring at a lone man forty feet away. The king was flushed and wild-eyed, his armor besmirched with filth from combat. He had been wounded under his left arm, and the shaft of a spear protruded several inches from his right thigh. When Saphira's approach caught his attention, his face registered sudden relief. Good, good, you're here, he muttered, as Saphira crawled abreast of his charger. We needed you, Saphira. And you, Shadeslayer? One of the archers edged forward a few inches. Orin waved his sword at him and yelled, Back! I'll have the head of anyone who doesn't remain where he is. I swear by Angvard's crown. Then Orin resumed glaring at the lone man. Eragon followed his gaze. The man was a soldier of medium height, with a purple birthmark on his neck and brown hair plastered flat by the helmet he had been wearing. His shield was a splintered ruin. His sword was notched, bent, and broken, missing the last six inches. River mud caked his male hose. Blood sheeted from a gash along his ribs. An arrow fletched with white swan feathers had impaled his right foot and pinned it to the ground, three quarters of the shaft buried in the hard dirt. From the man's throat a horrid, gurgling laugh emanated, it rose and fell with a drunken cadence, pitching from note to note as if the man were about to begin shrieking with horror. "'What are you?' shouted King Orin. When the soldier did not immediately respond, the king cursed and said, "'Answer me, or I'll let my spellcasters at you. Be you man or beast, or some ill-spawned demon? In what foul pit did Galbatorix find you and your brothers?' Are you kin of the Razak? The king's last question acted like a needle driven into Aragon. He straightened bolt upright, every sense tingling. The laughter paused for a moment. Man, I am a man. You are like no man I know. I wanted to assure the future of my family. Is that so foreign to you, Surden? Give me no riddles, you fork-tongued wretch. Tell me how you became as you are and speak honestly, lest you convince me to pour boiling lead down your throat and see if that pains you. The unbalanced chuckles intensified. Then the soldier said, You cannot hurt me, Surden. No one can. 
The king himself made us impervious to pain. In return, our families will live in comfort for the rest of their lives. You can hide from us, but we will never stop pursuing you, even when ordinary men would drop dead from exhaustion. You can fight us, but we will continue killing you as long as we have an arm to swing. You cannot even surrender to us, for we take no prisoners. You can do nothing but die and return this land to peace. With a gruesome grimace, the soldier wrapped his mangled shield hand around the arrow and with the sound of tearing flesh pulled the shaft out of his foot. Lumps of crimson meat clung to the arrowhead as it came free. The soldier shook the arrow at them, then threw the missile at one of the archers, wounding him in the hand. His laugh louder than ever, the soldier lurched forward, dragging his injured foot behind him. He raised his sword as if he intended to attack. Shoot him! shouted Orin. Bowstrings twanged like badly tuned lutes. Then a score of spinning arrows leaped toward the soldier, and an instant later struck him in the torso. Two of the arrows bounced off his gambeson. The remainder penetrated his ribcage. His laughter reduced to a wheezing chuckle as blood seeped into his lungs. The soldier continued moving forward, painting the grass underneath him bright scarlet. The archers shot again, and arrows sprouted from the man's shoulders and arms, but he did not stop. Another volley of arrows followed close upon the last. The soldier stumbled and fell as an arrow split his left kneecap and others skewered his upper legs and one passed entirely through his neck, punching a hole in his birthmark, and whistled out across the field, trailing a spray of blood. And still the soldier refused to die. He began to crawl, dragging himself forward with his arms, grinning and giggling as if the whole world were an obscene joke that only he could appreciate. A cold tingle shivered down Aragon's spine as he watched. King Orin swore violently, and Aragon detected a hint of hysteria in his voice. Jumping off his charger, Orin threw his sword and his shield into the dirt, and then pointed at the nearest Urgle. Give me your axe! Startled, the grey-skinned Urgle hesitated, then surrendered his weapon. King Orin limped over to the soldier, raised the heavy axe with both hands, and with a single blow, chopped off the soldier's head. The giggling ceased. The soldier's eyes rolled and his mouth worked for another few seconds, and then he was still. Orin grasped the head by the hair and lifted it so all could see. They can be killed, he declared. Spread the word that the only sure way of stopping these abominations is to behead them, that or bash in their skulls with a mace or shoot them in the eye from a safe distance. Greytooth, where are you? A stout, middle-aged horseman urged his mount forward. Orin threw him the head which he caught. Mount that on a pole by the north gate of the camp. Mount all of their heads. Let them serve as a message to Galbatorix that we do not fear his underhanded tricks, and we shall prevail in spite of them. Striding back to his charger, Orin returned the axe to the Urgle, then picked up his own weapons. A few yards away, Aragon spotted Nargajvog standing among a cluster of cull. Aragon spoke a few words to Sephira, 
and she sidled over to the Urgles. After exchanging nods, Aragon asked Garjvog, Were all the soldiers like that? He gestured toward the arrow-riddled corpse. All men with no pain. You hit them and you think them dead. Turn your back and they hamstring you. Garjvog scowled. I lost many rams today. We have fought droves of humans' firesword, but never before these laughing ghouls. It is not natural. It makes us think they are possessed by hornless spirits, that maybe the gods themselves have turned against us. Nonsense, scoffed Aragon. It is merely a spell by Galbatorix, and we shall soon have a way to protect ourselves against it. Notwithstanding his outer confidence, the concept of fighting enemies who felt no pain unsettled him as much as it did the Urgles. Moreover, from what Garjvag had said, he guessed that maintaining morale among the Vardom was going to be even more difficult for Nasuada once everyone learned about the soldiers. While the Vardon and the Urgles set about collecting their fallen comrades, stripping the dead of useful equipment and beheading the soldiers, and dragging their truncated bodies into piles to burn. Aragon, Sephira, and King Orin returned to the camp, accompanied by Arya and the other elves. Along the way, Aragon offered to heal Orin's leg, but the king refused, saying, I have my own physicians, Shadeslayer. Nasawada and Jormunda were waiting for them by the north gate. Accosting Orin, Nasawada said, What went wrong? Aragon closed his eyes as Orin explained how at first the attack on the soldiers had seemed to go well. The horsemen had swept through their ranks, dealing what they had thought were death blows left and right, and had suffered only one casualty during their charge. When they had engaged the remaining soldiers, however, many of those they had struck down before rose up and rejoined the fight. Orin shuddered. We lost our nerve then. Any man would have. We did not know if the soldiers were invincible or if they were even men at all. When you see an enemy coming at you with bones sticking out of his calf, a javelin through his belly, and half his face sheared away, and he laughs at you, it's a rare man who can stand his ground. My warriors panicked. They broke formation. It was utter confusion. Slaughter. When the Urgles and your warriors, Nasawada, reached us, they became caught up in the madness. He shook his head. I've never seen the like of it, not even on the burning plains. Nasawada's face had grown pale, even with her dark skin. She looked at Aragon and then Arya. How could Galpatorix have done this? It was Arya who answered. Block most, but not all, of a person's ability to feel pain. Leave just enough sensation so they know where they are and what they are doing, but not so much that pain can incapacitate them. The spell would require only a small amount of energy. Nasawada wet her lips. Again speaking to Orin, she said, Do you know how many we lost? A tremor racked Orin. He doubled over, pressed a hand against his leg, gritted his teeth and growled, Three hundred soldiers against what was the size of the force you sent two hundred swordsmen a hundred spearmen fifty archers those 
plus the Urgles, plus my cavalry, say around a thousand strong, against three hundred foot soldiers on an open field. We slew every last one of the soldiers. What it cost us, though, the king shook his head. We won't know for sure until we count the dead, but it looked to me as if three quarters of your swordsmen are gone, more of the spearmen, some archers. Of my cavalry few remain, fifty, seventy. Many of them were my friends. Perhaps a hundred, a hundred and fifty urgles dead. Over all, five or six hundred to bury, and the better part of the survivors wounded. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. His jaw going slack, Orin slumped to the side and would have fallen off his horse if Arya had not sprung forward and caught him. Nasuada snapped her fingers, summoning two of the Varden from among the tents, and ordered them to take Orin to his pavilion, and then to fetch the king his healers. We have suffered a grievous defeat, no matter that we exterminated the soldiers, Nasuada murmured. She pressed her lips together, sorrow and despair mixed in equal portions in her expression. Her eyes glimmered with unshed tears. Stiffening her back, she fixed Aragon and Sephira with an iron gaze. How fared it with the two of you? She listened without moving while Aragon described their encounter with Murtag and Thorn. Afterward, she nodded. That you would be able to escape their clutches was all we dared hope. However, you accomplished more than that. You proved that Galbatorix has not made Murtag so powerful that we have no hope of defeating him. With a few more spellcasters to help you, Murtag would have been yours to do with as you pleased. For that reason, he will not dare confront Queen Islanzadi's army by himself, I think. If we can gather enough spellcasters around you, Aragon, I believe we can finally kill Murtag and Thorn the next time they come to abduct the pair of you. Don't you want to capture them? Aragon asked. I want a great number of things, but I doubt I shall receive very many of them. Murtag and Thorn may not be trying to kill you, but if the opportunity presents itself, we must kill them without hesitation. Or do you see it otherwise? No. Shifting her attention to Arya, Nasuada asked, Did any of your spellweavers die during the contest? Some fainted, but they have all recovered, thank you. Nasuada took a deep breath and looked northward her eyes focused on infinity. Aragon, please inform Triana that I want Duvrangar Gatta to figure out how to replicate Galbatorix's spell. Despicable as it is, we must imitate Galbatorix in this. We cannot afford not to. It won't be practical for all of us to be unable to feel pain. We would hurt ourselves far too easily. But we should have a few hundred swordsmen, volunteers, who are immune to physical suffering. My lady, so many dead, said Nasuada. She twisted her reins in her hands. We have remained in one place for too long. It is time we force the Empire onto the defensive again. She spurred Battlestorm away from the carnage that lay before the camp, the stallion tossing his head and gnawing on his bit. Your cousin, Aragon, begged me to allow him to take part in today's fighting. I refused on account of his impending marriage which pleased him not, although I suspect his betrothed feels otherwise. Would you do me the favour of notifying me if they still intend to proceed with the ceremony today? 
after so much bloodshed, it would hearten the Varden to attend a marriage. I will let you know as soon as I find out. Thank you. You may go now, Aragon. The first thing Aragon and Sephira did upon leaving Nasawada was to visit the elves who had fainted during their battle with Murtag and Thorn, and thank them and their companions for their assistance. Then Aragon, Arya, and Blodgarm attended to the hurts Thorn had dealt Sephira, mending her cuts and scratches and a few of her bruises. When they finished, Aragon located Triana with his mind and conveyed Nasuada's instructions. Only then did he and Sephira seek out Roran. Bloodgarm and his elves accompanied them. Arya left to attend to business of her own. Roran and Katrina were arguing, quietly and intensely, when Aragon spotted them standing by the corner of Horst's tent. They fell silent as Aragon and Sephira drew near. Katrina crossed her arms and stared away from Roran, while Roran gripped the top of his hammer thrust through his belt and scuffed the heel of his boot against a rock. Stopping in front of them, Aragon waited a few moments, hoping they would explain the reason for their quarrel. But instead, Katrina said, Are either of you injured? Her eyes flicked from him to Sephira and back. We were, but no longer. That is so... strange. We heard tales of magic in Carverhall, but I never really believed them. They seemed so impossible. But here there are magicians everywhere. Did you wound Murtag and Thorn badly? Is that why they fled? We bested them, but we caused them no permanent harm. Aragon paused, and when neither Roran nor Katrina spoke, he asked if they still wanted to get married that day. Nasawada suggested you proceed, but it might be better to wait. The dead have yet to be buried, and there is much that needs doing. Tomorrow would be more convenient and more seemly. No, said Roran, and ground the tip of his boot against the rock. The Empire could attack again at any moment. Tomorrow might be too late. If, if somehow I died before we were wed, what would become of Katrina or our... He faltered, and his cheeks reddened. Her expression softening, Katrina turned to Roran and took his hand. She said, Besides, the food has been cooked, the decorations have been hung, and our friends have gathered for our marriage. It would be a pity if all those preparations were for nothing. Reaching up, she stroked Roran's beard, and he smiled at her and placed an arm around her. I don't understand half of what goes on between them, Aragon complained to Sephira. When shall the ceremony take place then? In an hour, said Roran. Man and Wife Four hours later, Aragon stood on the crest of a low hill dotted with yellow wildflowers. Surrounding the hill was a lush meadow that bordered the Jeet River, which rushed past a hundred feet to Aragon's right. The sky was bright and clear. Sunshine bathed the land with a soft radiance. The air was cool and calm and smelled fresh, as if it had just rained. Gathered in front of the hill were the villagers from Carverhall, none of whom had been injured during the fighting, and what seemed to be half of the men of the Varden. 
Many of the warriors held long spears mounted with embroidered pennants of every colour. Various horses, including Snowfire, were picketed at the far end of the meadow. Despite Nasuada's best efforts, organising the assembly had taken longer than anyone had reckoned. Wind tousled Aragon's hair, which was still wet from washing, as Sephira glided over the congregation and alighted next to him, fanning her wings. He smiled and touched her on the shoulder. Little one. Under normal circumstances, Aragon would have been nervous about speaking in front of so many people and performing such a solemn and important ceremony. But after the earlier fighting, everything had assumed an air of unreality, as if it were no more than a particularly vivid dream. At the base of the hill stood Nasawada, Arya, Nahim, Jormunda, Angela, Elva, and others of importance. King Orin was absent, as his wounds had proved to be more serious than they had first appeared, and his healers were still laboring over him in his pavilion. The king's prime minister, Erwin, was attending in his stead. The only Urgals present were the two in Nasawada's private guard. Aragon had been there when Nasawada had invited Nargajvog to the event, and he had been relieved when Garjvag had had the good sense to decline. The villagers would never have tolerated a large group of Urgals at the wedding. As it was, Nasawada had difficulty convincing them to allow her guards to remain. With a rustle of cloth, the villagers and the Varden parted, forming a long, open path from the hill to the edge of the crowd. Then, joining their voices, the villagers began to sing the ancient wedding songs of Palankar Valley. The well-worn verses spoke of the cycle of the seasons, of the warm earth that gave birth to a new crop each year, of the spring calving, of nesting robins and spawning fish, and of how it was the destiny of the young to replace the old. One of Blodgarm's spellcasters, a female elf with silver hair, withdrew a small gold harp from a velvet case and accompanied the villagers with notes of her own, embellishing upon the simple themes of their melodies, lending the familiar music a wistful mood. With slow, steady steps, Roran and Katrina emerged from either side of the crowd at the far end of the path, turned toward the hill, and, without touching, began to advance toward Aragon. Roran wore a new tunic he had borrowed from one of the Varden. His hair was brushed, his beard was trimmed, and his boots were clean. His face beamed with inexpressible joy. All in all, he seemed very handsome and distinguished to Aragon. However, it was Katrina who commanded Aragon's attention. Her dress was light blue, as befitted a bride at her first wedding, of a simple cut, but with a lace train that was twenty feet long and carried by two girls. Against the pale fabric, her free-flowing locks glowed like polished copper. In her hands was a posy of wildflowers. She was proud, serene, and beautiful. Aragon heard gasps from some of the women as they beheld Katrina's train. He resolved to thank Nasawada for having Duvrangargata make the dress for Katrina, for he assumed it was she who was responsible for the gift. Three paces behind Roran walked Horst, and at a similar distance behind Katrina walked Burgit, careful to avoid stepping on the train.
when Rora and Katrina were halfway to the hill, a pair of white doves flew out from the willow trees lining the Jeet River. The doves carried a circlet of yellow daffodils clutched in their feet. Katrina slowed and stopped as they approached her. The birds circled her three times north to east, and then dipped down and laid the circlet upon the crown of her head before returning to the river. Did you arrange that? Aragon murmured to Arya. She smiled. At the top of the hill, Roran and Katrina stood motionless before Aragon, while they waited for the villagers to finish singing. As the final refrain faded into oblivion, Aragon raised his hands and said, Welcome, one and all. Today we have come together to celebrate the union between the families of Roran Garrison and Katrina Ismira's daughter. They are both of good reputation, and to the best of my knowledge, no one else has a claim upon their hands. If that not be the case, however, or if any other reason exists that they should not become man and wife, then make your objections known before these witnesses, that we may judge the merit of your arguments. Aragon paused for an appropriate interval, then continued, who here speaks for Roran Garrison? Horst stepped forward. Roran has neither father nor uncle, so I, Horst Ostrickson, speak for him as my blood. And who here speaks for Katrina Ismira's daughter? Burgett stepped forward. Katrina has neither mother nor aunt, so I, Burgett Madras' daughter, speak for her as my blood. Despite her vendetta against Roran, by tradition it was Burgett's right and responsibility to represent Katrina, as she had been a close friend of Katrina's mother. It is right and proper. What, then, does Roran Garrison bring to this marriage, that both he and his wife may prosper? He brings his name, said Horst. He brings his hammer. He brings the strength of his hands and he brings the promise of a farm in Carverhall, where they may both live in peace. Astonishment rippled through the crowd as people realized what Roran was doing. He was declaring in the most public and binding way possible that the Empire would not stop him from returning home with Katrina and providing her with the life she would have had if not for Galbatorix's murderous interference. Roran was staking his honour as a man and a husband on the downfall of the Empire. Do you accept this offer, Burgett Mardras' daughter? Aragon asked. Burgett nodded. I do. And what does Katrina Ismira's daughter bring to this marriage, that both she and her husband may prosper? She brings her love and devotion, with which she shall serve Roran Garrison. She brings her skills at running a household, and she brings a dowry. Surprised, Aragon watched as Burgett motioned, and two men who were standing next to Nasuada came forward, carrying a metal casket between them. Burgett undid the clasp to the casket, then lifted open the lid and showed Aragon the contents. He gaped as he beheld the mound of jewellery inside. She brings with her a gold necklace studded with diamonds. She brings a brooch set with red coral from the southern sea and a pearl net to hold her hair. 
She brings five rings of gold and electrum. The first ring, as Burgett described each item, she lifted it from the casket so all might see she spoke the truth. Bewildered, Aragon glanced at Nasawada and noted the pleased smile she wore. After Burgett had finished her litany and closed the casket and fastened the lock again, Aragon asked, Do you accept this offer, Horst Ostrickson? I do. Thus your families become one, in accordance with the law of the land. Then for the first time Aragon addressed Roran and Katrina directly. Those who speak for you have agreed upon the terms of your marriage. Roran, are you pleased with how Horst Ostrickson has negotiated on your behalf? I am. And Katrina, are you pleased with how Burgett Madras' daughter has negotiated on your behalf? I am. Roran Stronghammer, son of Garrow, do you swear then by your name and by your lineage that you shall protect and provide for Katrina Ismira's daughter while you both yet live? I, Roran Stronghammer, son of Garrow, do swear by my name and by my lineage that I shall protect and provide for Katrina Ismira's daughter while we both yet live. Do you swear to uphold her honour, to remain steadfast and faithful to her in the years to come, and to treat her with the proper respect, dignity, and gentleness? I swear I shall uphold her honour, remain steadfast and faithful to her in the years to come, and treat her with the proper respect, dignity, and gentleness. And do you swear to give her the keys to your holdings, such as they may be, and to your strongbox where you keep your coin, by sunset tomorrow, so she may tend to your affairs as a wife should? Roran swore he would. Katrina, daughter of Ismira, do you swear by your name and by your lineage that you shall serve and provide for Roran Garrison while you both yet live? I. Katrina, daughter of Ismira, do swear by my name and by my lineage that I shall serve and provide for Roran Garrison while we both yet live. Do you swear to uphold his honour, to remain steadfast and faithful to him in the years to come, to bear his children while you may, and to be a caring mother for them? I swear I shall uphold his honour Remain steadfast and faithful to him in the years to come. Bear his children while I may, and be a caring mother for them. And do you swear to assume charge of his wealth and his possessions, and to manage them responsibly, so he may concentrate upon those duties that are his alone? Katrina swore she would. Smiling, Aragon drew a red ribbon from his sleeve and said, Cross your wrists. Roran and Katrina extended their left and right arms respectively and did as he instructed. Laying the middle of the ribbon across their wrists, Aragon wound the strip of satin three times around and then tied the ends together with a bow knot. As is my right as a dragon rider, I now declare you man and wife. The crowd erupted into cheers. Leaning toward each other, 
Roran and Katrina kissed, and the crowd redoubled their cheering. Safira dipped her head toward the beaming couple, and as Roran and Katrina separated, she touched each of them on the brow with the tip of her snout. Live long, and may your love deepen with every passing year, she said. Roran and Katrina turned toward the crowd and raised their joined arms skyward. Let the feast begin, Roran declared. Aragon followed the pair as they descended from the hill and walked through the press of shouting people toward two chairs that had been set at the forefront of a row of tables. There Roran and Katrina sat, as the king and queen of their wedding. Then the guests lined up to offer their congratulations and present gifts. Aragon was first. His grin as large as theirs, he shook Roran's free hand and inclined his head toward Katrina. Thank you, Aragon, Katrina said. Yes, thank you, Roran added. The honour was mine. He looked at both of them, then burst out laughing. What? demanded Roran. You! The two of you are as happy as fools! Eyes sparkling, Katrina laughed and hugged Roran. That we are. Growing sober, Aragon said, You must know how fortunate you are to be here today, together. Roran, if you had not been able to rally everyone and travel to the burning plains, and if the Razak had taken you, Katrina, to Urubain, neither of you would have... Yes, but I did and they didn't, interrupted Roran. Let us not darken this day with unpleasant thoughts about what might have been. That is not why I mention it. Aragon glanced at the line of people waiting behind him, making sure they were not close enough to eavesdrop. All three of us are enemies of the Empire, and as today has demonstrated, we are not safe even here among the Varden. If Galbatorix can, he will strike at any one of us, including you, Katrina, in order to hurt the others. So I made these for you. From the pouch at his belt, Aragon withdrew two plain gold rings, polished until they shone. The previous night he had moulded them out of the last of the gold orbs he had extracted from the earth. He handed the larger one to Roran and the smaller one to Katrina. Roran turned his ring, examining it, then held it up against the sky, squinting at the glyphs in the ancient language carved into the inside of the band. It's very nice. But how can these help protect us? I enchanted them to do three things, said Aragon. If you ever need my help or Sephira's, twist the ring once around your finger and say, Help me, Shadeslayer, help me, Brightscales and we will hear you, and we will come as fast as we can. Also, if either of you is close to death, your ring will alert us, and you, Roran, or you, Katrina, depending on who is in peril. And so long as the rings are touching your skin, you will always know how to find each other, no matter how far apart you may be. He hesitated, then added, I hope you will agree to wear them. Of course we will, said Katrina. Roran's chest swelled, and his voice became husky. Thank you, he said. Thank you. I wish we had had these 
before she and I were separated in Carvajal. Since they only had one free hand apiece, Katrina slid Roran's ring on for him, placing it on the third finger of his right hand, and he slid Katrina's on for her, placing it on the third finger of her left hand. I have another gift for you as well, said Aragon. Turning, he whistled and waved. Pushing his way through the crowd, a groom hurried toward them, leading Snowfire by the bridle. The groom handed Aragon the reins to the stallion, then bowed and withdrew. Aragon said, Roran, you will need a good steed. This is Snowfire. He was bronze to begin with, then mine. And now I am giving him to you. Roran ran his eyes over Snowfire. He's a magnificent beast. The finest. Will you accept him? With pleasure. Aragon summoned back the groom and returned Snowfire to his care, instructing him that Roran was the stallion's new owner. As the man and horse left, Aragon looked at the people in line who were carrying presents for Roran and Katrina. Laughing, he said, The two of you may have been poor this morning, but you'll be rich by this evening. If Sephira and I ever have a chance to settle down, we'll have to come live with you in the giant hall you will build for all of your children. Whatever we build, it will hardly be large enough for Sephira, I think, said Roran. But you will always be welcome with us, said Katrina, both of you. After congratulating them once more, Aragon ensconced himself at the end of a table and amused himself by throwing scraps of roast chicken towards Sephira and watching her snap them out of the air. He remained there until Nasawada had spoken with Roran and Katrina, handing them something small he could not see. Then he intercepted Nasawada as she was departing the festivities. What is it, Aragon? she asked. I cannot linger. Was it you who gave Katrina her dress and her dowry? I? Do you disapprove? I'm grateful you were so kind to my family, but I wonder... Yes? Isn't the Varden desperate for gold? We are, Nasawada said, but not so desperate as before. Since my scheme with the lace, and since I triumphed in the trial of the long knives, and the wandering tribes swore absolute fealty to me, and granted me access to their riches, we are less likely to starve to death and more likely to die because we don't have a shield or a spear. Her lips twitched in a smile. What I gave Katrina is insignificant compared with the vast sums this army requires to function. And I do not believe I have squandered my gold. Rather, I believe I have made a valuable purchase. I have purchased prestige and self-respect for Katrina, and by extension I have purchased Roran's goodwill. I may be overly optimistic, but I suspect his loyalty will prove far more valuable than a hundred shields or a hundred spears. You are always seeking to improve the Varden's prospects, aren't you? Aragon said. Always. As you should be. Nasawada started to walk away from him, then returned and said, Sometime before sunset, come to my pavilion, and we will visit the men who were wounded today. There are many we cannot heal, you know. It will do them good to see that we care about their welfare and that we appreciate their sacrifice. Aragon nodded. I will be there. Good. 
Hours passed as Aragon laughed and ate and drank and traded stories with old friends. Mead flowed like water, and the wedding feast became ever more boisterous. Clearing a space between the tables, the men tested their prowess against one another with feats of wrestling and archery and bouts with quarterstaves. Two of the elves, a man and a woman, demonstrated their skill with swordplay, awing the onlookers with the speed and grace of their dancing blades, and even Arya consented to perform a song, which sent shivers down Aragorn's spine. Throughout, Roran and Katrina said little, preferring to sit and gaze at each other, oblivious to their surroundings. When the bottom of the orange sun touched the distant horizon, however, Aragorn reluctantly excused himself. With Sephira by his side, he left the sounds of revelry behind and walked to Nasuada's pavilion, breathing deeply of the cool evening air to clear his head. Nasuada was waiting for him in front of her red command tent. The nighthawks gathered close around. Without saying a word, she, Aragorn, and Sephira made their way across the camp to the tents of the healers where the injured warriors lay. For over an hour, Nasuada and Aragon visited with the men who had lost their limbs or their eyes, or had contracted an incurable infection in the course of fighting the Empire. Some of the warriors had been injured that morning. Others, as Aragon discovered, had been wounded on the burning plains and had yet to recover, despite all the herbs and spells lavished upon them. Before they had set forth among the rows of blanket-covered men, Nasuada had warned Aragon not to tire himself further by attempting to heal everyone he met, but he could not help muttering a spell here and there to ease pain or to drain an abscess or to reshape a broken bone or to remove an unsightly scar. One of the men Aragon met had lost his left leg below the knee, as well as two fingers on his right hand. His beard was short and grey and his eyes were covered with a strip of black cloth. When Aragon greeted him and asked how he fared, the man reached out and grasped Aragon by the elbow with the three fingers of his right hand. In a hoarse voice, the man said, Ah, Shade Slayer, I knew you would come. I have been waiting for you ever since the light. What do you mean? The light that illuminated the flesh of the world. In a single instant, I saw every living thing around me. From the largest to the smallest, I saw my bones shining through my arms. I saw the worms in the earth and the gore crows in the sky and the mites on the wings of the crows. The gods have touched me, Shade Slayer. They gave me this vision for a reason. I saw you on the field of battle, you and your dragon, and you were like a blazing sun among a forest of dim candles and I saw your brother, your brother and his dragon, and they too were like a son. The nape of Aragon's neck prickled as he listened. I have no brother, he said. The maimed swordsman cackled. <laughs> you cannot fool me, Shadeslayer. I know better. The world burns around me, and from the fire I hear the whisper of mines and I learn things from the whispers. You hide yourself from me now, but I can still see you, a man of yellow flame with twelve stars floating around your waist 
and another star brighter than the others upon your right hand. Eragon pressed his palm against the belt of Beloth the Wise, checking that the twelve diamonds sewn within were still concealed. They were. Listen to me, Shade Slayer, whispered the man, pulling Eragon toward his lined face. I saw your brother, and he burned. But he did not burn like you. Oh, no. The light from his soul shone through him, as if it came from somewhere else. He, he was a void, a shape of a man, and through that shape came the brilliance that burned. Do you understand? Others illuminated him. Where were these others? Did you see them as well? The warrior hesitated. I could feel them, close at hand, raging at the world as if they hated everything in it. But their bodies were hidden from my sight. They were there and not there. I cannot explain better than that. I would not want to get any closer to those creatures, Shadeslayer. They aren't human of that, I'm sure. And their hate, it was like the largest thunderstorm you've ever seen, crammed into a tiny glass bottle. And when the bottle breaks, Aragon murmured, Exactly, Shade Slayer. Sometimes I wonder if Galbatorix has managed to capture the gods themselves and make them his slaves. But then I laugh and call myself a fool. Whose gods, though? The dwarves? Those of the wandering tribes? Does it matter, Shade Slayer? A god is a god, regardless of where he comes from. Aragon grunted. Perhaps you're right. As he left the man's pallet, one of the healers pulled Aragon aside. She said, Forgive him, my lord. The shock of his wounds has driven him quite mad. He's always ranting about suns and stars and glowing lights he claims to see. Sometimes it seems as if he knows things he shouldn't. But don't you be deceived. He gets them from the other patients. They gossip all the time, you know. It's all they have to do, poor things. I am not a lord, Aragon said, and he is not mad. I'm not sure what he is, but he has an uncommon ability. If he gets better or worse, please inform one of Duvrangargata. The healer curtsied. As you wish, Shadeslayer. I'm sorry for my mistake, Shadeslayer. How was he hurt? A soldier cut off his fingers when he tried to block a sword with his hand. Later, one of the missiles from the Empire's catapults landed upon his leg, crushing it beyond repair. We had to amputate. The men who were beside him said that when the missile struck, he immediately began screaming about the light, and when they picked him up, they noticed that his eyes had turned pure white. Even his pupils have disappeared. Ah, you have been most helpful. Thank you. It was dark when Aragon and Nasawada finally left the healer's tents. Nasawada sighed and said, Now I could use a mug of mead. Aragon nodded, staring down between his feet. They started back to her pavilion, and after a while she asked, What are you thinking, Aragon? 
that we live in a strange world, and I'll be lucky if I ever understand more than a small portion of it. Then he recounted his conversation with the man, which she found as interesting as he had. You should tell Arya about this, said Nasawada. She might know what these others could be. They parted at her pavilion. Nasawada going inside to finish reading a report, while Aragon and Sephira continued on to Aragon's tent. There Sephira curled up on the ground and prepared to sleep, as Aragon sat next to her and gazed at the stars, a parade of wounded men marching before his eyes. What many of them had told him continued to reverberate through his mind. We fought for you, Shade Slayer. Whispers in the Night Roran opened his eyes and stared at the drooping canvas overhead. A thin, grey light pervaded the tent, leeching objects of their colour, rendering everything a pale shadow of its daylight self. He shivered. The blankets had slid down to his waist, exposing his torso to the cold night air. As he pulled them back up, he noticed that Katrina was no longer by his side. He saw her sitting by the entrance to the tent, staring up at the sky. She had a cloak wrapped over her shift. Her hair fell to the small of her back, a dark, tangled bramble. A lump formed in Roran's throat as he studied her. Dragging the blankets with him, he sat beside her. He placed an arm around her shoulders and she leaned against him, her head and neck warm against his chest. He kissed her on the brow. For a long while he contemplated the glimmering stars with her and listened to the regular pattern of her breathing, the only sound besides his own in the sleeping world. Then she whispered, The constellations are shaped differently here. Have you noticed? Aye. He shifted his arm, fitting it against the curve of her waist and feeling the slight bulge of her growing belly. What woke you? She shivered. I was thinking. Oh. Starlight gleamed in her eyes as she twisted in his arms and gazed at him. I was thinking about you and us, and our future together. Those are heavy thoughts for so late at night. Now that we are married, how do you plan to care for me and for our child? Is that what worries you? He smiled. You won't starve. We have gold enough to assure that. Besides, the Varden would always see to it that Aragon's cousins have food and shelter. Even if something were to happen to me, they would continue to provide for you and the baby. Yes, but what do you intend to do? Puzzled, he searched her face for the source of her agitation. I am going to help Aragon end this war so we can return to Palancar Valley and settle down without fear of soldiers dragging us off to Urabane. What else would I do? You will fight with the Varden, then? You know I will. As you would have fought today, if Nasawada had let you? Yes. What of our baby, though? An army on the march is no place to raise a child. We cannot run away and hide from the Empire, Katrina. Unless the Varden win, Galbatorix will find and kill us, or he will find and kill our children or our children's children. 
and I do not think the Varden will achieve victory unless everyone does their utmost to help them. She placed a finger over his lips. You are my only love. No other man shall ever capture my heart. I will do everything I can to lighten your burden. I will cook your meals, mend your clothes, and clean your armour. But once I give birth, I will leave this army. Leave? He went rigid. That's nonsense. Where would you go? Douth, perhaps. Remember, Lady Alaris offered a sanctuary, and some of our people are still there. I would not be alone. If you think I'm going to let you and our newborn child go tramping across Allegasia by yourselves, then you don't need to shout. I'm not... Yes, you are. Clasping his hand between hers and pressing it against her heart, she said, It's not safe here. If it were only the two of us, I could accept the danger, but not when it is our baby who might die. I love you, Roran, I love you so much. But our child has to come before anything we want for ourselves. Otherwise, we do not deserve to be called parents. Tears shone in her eyes, and he felt his own eyes dampen. It was you, after all, who convinced me to leave Carval and hide in the spine when the soldiers attacked. This is no different. The stars swam before Roran as his vision blurred. I would rather lose an arm than be parted from you again. Katrina began to cry then, her quiet sobs shaking his body. I don't want to leave you, either. He tightened his embrace and rocked back and forth with her. When her weeping subsided, he whispered in her ear, I would rather lose an arm than be parted from you, but I would rather die than allow anyone to hurt you or our child. If you are going to leave, you should leave now, while it's still easy for you to travel. She shook her head. No, I want Gertrude as my midwife. She's the only one I trust. Besides, if I have any difficulty... I would rather be here, where there are magicians trained in healing. Nothing will go wrong, he said. As soon as our child is born, you will go to Aberon, not Douth. It is less likely to be attacked. And if Aberon becomes too dangerous, then you will go to the Beor Mountains and live with the dwarves. And if Galbatorix strikes at the dwarves, then you will go to the elves in Duweldenvarden. And if Galbatorix attacks Duweldenvarden, I will fly to the moon and raise our child among the spirits who inhabit the heavens. And they will bow down to you and make you their queen as you deserve. She snuggled closer to him. Together they sat and watched as one by one the stars vanished from the sky, obscured by the glow spreading in the east. When only the morning star remained, Roran said, You know what this means, don't you? What? I'll just have to ensure we kill every last one of Galbatorix's soldiers, capture all the cities in the Empire, defeat Murtag and Thorn, and behead Galbatorix and his turncoat dragon before your time comes. That way, there will be no need for you to go away. She was silent for a moment, then said, If you could, I would be very happy. They were about to return to their cot, when out of the glimmering sky there sailed a miniature ship, woven of dry strips of grass. The ship hovered in front of their tent, 
rocking upon invisible waves of air and almost seemed to be looking at them with its dragon-head-shaped prow. Roran froze, as did Katrina. Like a living creature, the ship darted across the path before their tent, then it swooped up and around, chasing an errant moth. When the moth escaped, the ship glided back toward the tent, stopping only inches from Katrina's face. Before Roran could decide if he should snatch the ship out of the air, it turned and flew off toward the morning star, vanishing once more into the endless ocean of the sky, leaving them to gaze after it in wonder. Orders Late that night, visions of death and violence gathered along the edges of Aragon's dreams, threatening to overwhelm him with panic. He stirred with unease, wanting to break free but unable to do so. Brief, disjointed images of stabbing swords and screaming men and Murtag's angry face flashed before his eyes. Then Aragon felt Sephira enter his mind. She swept through his dreams like a great wind, brushing aside his looming nightmare. In the silence that followed, she whispered, All is well, little one. Rest easy. You are safe, and I am with you. Rest easy. A sense of profound peace crept over Aragon. He rolled over and drifted off into happier memories, comforted by his awareness of Sephira's presence. When Aragon opened his eyes an hour before sunrise, he found himself lying underneath one of Sephira's vein-webbed wings. She had her tail wrapped around him, and her side was warm against his head. He smiled and crawled out from under her wing, even as she lifted her head and yawned. Good morning, he said. She yawned again and stretched like a cat. Aragon bathed, shaved with magic, cleaned the falchion scabbard of dried blood from the previous day, and then dressed in one of his elf tunics. Once he was satisfied he was presentable, and Sephira had finished her tongue bath, they walked to Nasawada's pavilion. All six of the current shift of nighthawks were standing outside, their seamed faces set into their usual grim expressions. Aragon waited while a stocky dwarf announced them, then he entered the tent, and Sephira crawled around to the open panel where she could insert her head and participate in the discussion. Eragon bowed to Nasawada where she sat in a high-backed chair, carved with blooming thistles. My lady, you asked me to come here to talk about my future. You said you had a most important mission for me. I did, and I do, said Nasawada. Please, be seated. She indicated a folding chair next to Eragon. Tilting the sword at his waist so it would not catch, he settled into the chair. As you know, Galbatorix has sent battalions to the cities of Aros, Feinster, and Bellatona in an attempt to prevent us from taking them by siege, or, failing that, to slow our progress and force us to divide our own troops so we would be more vulnerable to the depredations of the soldiers who are camped north of us. After yesterday's battle, our scouts reported that the last of Galbatorix's men withdrew to parts unknown. I was going to strike at those soldiers days ago, but I had to refrain, since you were absent. Without you, Murtag and Thorn could have slaughtered our warriors with impunity, 
and we had no way of discovering whether the two of them were among the soldiers. Now that you are with us again, our position is somewhat improved, although not as much as I had hoped, given that we must now also contend with Galbatorix's latest artifice, these men without pain. Our only encouragement is that the two of you, along with Islanzadi's spellcasters, have proved you can fend off Murtag and Thorn. Upon that hope depends our plan for victory. That red runt is no match for me, said Sephira. If he did not have Murtag protecting him, I would trap him against the ground and shake him by the neck until he submitted to me and acknowledged me as leader of the hunt. I am sure you would, said Nasawada, smiling. Aragon asked, What course of action have you decided upon then? I have decided upon several courses, and we must undertake them all simultaneously if any are to be successful. First, we cannot push farther into the Empire, leaving cities behind us that Galbatorix still controls. To do that would be to expose ourselves to attacks from both the front and the rear, and to invite Galbatorix to invade and seize Surda while we were absent. So I have already ordered the Varden to march north, to the nearest place where we can safely cross the Jeet River. Once we are on the other side of the river, I will send warriors south to capture Aros, while King Orin and I continue with the remainder of our forces to Feinster, which, with your help and Sephira's, should fall before us without too much trouble. While we are engaged in the tedious business of tramping across the countryside, I have other responsibilities for you, Aragon. She leaned forward in her seat. We need the full help of the dwarves. The elves are fighting for us in the north of Alagasia. The Surdens have joined with us body and mind, and even the Urgles have allied themselves with us. But we need the dwarves. We cannot succeed without them, especially now that we must contend with soldiers who cannot feel pain. Have the dwarves chosen a new king or queen yet? Nasawada grimaced. Nahim assures me that the process is moving apace. But, like the elves, dwarves take a longer view of time than we do. A pace for them might mean months of deliberations. Don't they realize the urgency of the situation? Some do, but many oppose helping us in this war, and they seek to delay the proceedings as long as possible, and to install one of their own upon the marble throne in Trondheim. The dwarves have lived in hiding for so long they have become dangerously suspicious of outsiders. If someone hostile to our aims wins the throne, we shall lose the dwarves. We cannot allow that to happen, nor can we wait for the dwarves to resolve their differences at their usual pace. But, she raised a finger, from so far away I cannot effectively intervene in their politics. Even if I were in Trondheim, I could not ensure a favourable outcome. The dwarves do not take kindly to anyone who is not of their clans meddling in their government. So I want you, Eragon, to travel to Trondheim in my stead, and do what you can to ensure that the dwarves choose a new monarch in an expeditious manner, and that they choose a monarch who is sympathetic to our cause. Me? But King Hrothgar adopted you into Durgrimstingetum. According to their laws and customs, you are a dwarf, Aragon. 
You have a legal right to participate in the hall meets of the Injitum, and as Oric is set to become their chief, and as he is your foster brother and a friend of the Vardens, I am sure he will agree to let you accompany him into the secret councils of the thirteen clans, where they elect their rulers. A proposal seemed preposterous to Aragon. What about Murtag and Thorn? When they return, as they surely will, Sephira and I are the only ones who can hold our own against them, albeit with some assistance. If we are not here, no one will be able to stop them from killing you or Arya or Orin or the rest of the Varden. The gap between Nasuada's eyebrows narrowed. You dealt Murtag a stinging defeat yesterday. Most likely he and Thorn are winging their way back to Urubain even as we speak, so Galbatorix may interrogate them about the battle and chastise them for their failure. He will not send them to attack us again until he is confident that they can overwhelm you. Murtag is surely uncertain about the true limits of your strength now, so that unhappy event may yet be some while off. Between now and then, I believe you will have enough time to travel back and forth between Farthendur. You could be wrong, argued Aragon. Besides, how would you keep Galbatorix from learning about our absence and attacking while we are gone? I doubt you have found all of the spies he has seeded among us. Nasawada tapped her fingers on the arms of her chair. I said I wanted you to go to Farthendur, Eragon. I did not say I wanted Sephira to go as well. Turning her head, Sephira released a small puff of smoke that drifted toward the peak of the tent. I'm not about to... Let me finish, please, Aragon. He clamped shut his jaw and glared at her, his left hand tight around the pommel of the falchion. You are not beholden to me, Sephira, but my hope is that you will agree to stay here while Aragon journeys to the dwarves, so that we can deceive the Empire and the Varden as to Aragon's whereabouts. If we can hide your departure, she gestured at Aragon, from the masses, no one will have any reason to suspect you are not still here. We will only have to devise a suitable excuse, then, to account for your sudden desire to remain in your tent during the day. Perhaps that you and Sephira are flying sorties into enemy territory at night, and so must rest while the sun is up. In order for the ruse to work, however, Blodgarm and his companions will have to stay here as well, both to avoid arousing suspicion and for reasons of defence. If Murtag and Thorn reappear while you are gone, Arya can take your place on Sephira. Between her, Blodgarm's spellcasters, and the magicians of Duvrangelgata, we should have a fair chance of thwarting Murtag. In a harsh voice, Aragon said, If Sephira doesn't fly me to Farthendur, then how am I supposed to travel there in a timely fashion? By running. You told me yourself you ran much of the distance from Helgrind. I expect that without having to hide from soldiers or peasants, you can traverse many more leagues each day on the way to Farthendur than you were able to in the Empire. Again, Nasawada drummed the polished wood of her chair. Of course it would be foolish to go alone. Even a powerful magician can die of a simple accident in the far reaches of the wilderness if he has no one to help him. Shepherding you through the Beor Mountains would be a waste of Arya's talents. 
and people would notice if one of Blodgarm's elves disappeared without explanation. Therefore I have decided that a cull should accompany you, as they are the only other creatures capable of matching your pace. A cull? exclaimed Aragon, unable to contain himself any longer. You would send me among the dwarves with a cull by my side? I cannot think of any race the dwarves hate more than the Urgles. They make bows out of their horns. If I walked into Farthendur with an Urgle, the dwarves would not pay heed to anything I had to say. I am well aware of that, said Nasawada, which is why you will not go directly to Farthendur. Instead, you will first stop at Bregan Hold on Mount Thardor, which is the ancestral home of the Injitum. There you will find Oric, and there you can leave the cull while you continue on to Farthendur in Oric's company. Staring somewhat beyond Nasawada, Aragon said, And what if I do not agree with the path you have chosen? What if I believe there are other, safer ways to accomplish what you desire? What ways would those be, pray tell? asked Nasawada, her fingers pausing in midair. I would have to think about it. But I'm sure they exist. I have thought about it, Aragon, and at great length. Having you act as my emissary is our only hope of influencing the succession of the dwarves. I was raised among dwarves, remember, and I have a better understanding of them than most humans. I still believe it's a mistake, he growled. Send Jormunder instead, or one of your other commanders. I won't go, not while... You won't? said Nasuada, her voice rising. A vassal who disobeys his lord is no better than a warrior who ignores his captain on the field of battle and may be punished similarly. As your liege lord, then, Aragon, I order you to run to Farthendur, whether you want to or not, and to oversee the choosing of the next ruler of the dwarves. Furious, Aragon breathed heavily through his nose, gripping and re-gripping the pommel of his falchion. In a softer, although still guarded, tone, Nasawada said, What will it be, Aragon? Will you do as I ask, or will you dispossess me and lead the Varden yourself? Those are your only options. Shocked, he said, No, I can reason with you. I can convince you otherwise. You cannot, because you cannot provide me with an alternative that is as likely to succeed. He met her gaze. I could refuse your order and let you punish me however you deem fit. His suggestion startled her. Then she said, To see you lashed to a whipping post would do irreparable harm to the Varden, and it would destroy my authority for people would know you could defy me whenever you wanted, with the only consequence being a handful of stripes that you could heal an instant later. For we cannot execute you, as we would any other warrior who disobeyed a superior. I would rather abdicate my post and grant you command of the Varden than allow such a thing to occur. If you believe you are better suited for the task, then take my position, take my chair, and declare yourself master of this army. But so long as I speak for the Varden, I have the right to make these decisions. If they be mistakes, then that is my responsibility as well. Will you listen to no advice? Aragon asked, troubled. 
Will you dictate the course of the Varden, regardless of what those around you counsel? Nasawada's middle fingernail clacked against the polished wood of her chair. I do listen to advice. I listen to a continuous stream of advice every waking hour of my life, but sometimes my conclusions do not match those of my underlings. Now you must decide whether you will uphold your oath of fealty and abide by my decision, even though you may not agree with it, or if you will set yourself up as a mirror image of Galbatorix. I only want what is best for the Varden, he said. As do I. You leave me no choice but one I dislike. Sometimes it is harder to follow than it is to lead. May I have a moment to think? You may. Sephira, he asked. Flecks of purple light danced around the interior of the pavilion as she twisted her neck and fixed her eyes upon Aragon's. Little one, should I go? I think you must. He pressed his lips together in a rigid line. And what of you? You know, I hate to be separated from you, but Nasawada's arguments are well-reasoned. If I can help keep Murtag and Thorn away by remaining with the Varden, then perhaps I should. His emotions and hers washed between their minds. Tidal surges in a shared pool of anger, anticipation, reluctance, and tenderness. From him flowed the anger and reluctance. From her, other, gentler sentiments, as rich in scope as his own, that moderated his choleric passion and lent him perspectives he would not otherwise have. Nevertheless, he clung with stubborn insistence to his opposition to Nasawada's scheme. If you flew me to Farthendur, I would not be gone for as long, meaning Galbatorix would have less of an opportunity to mount a new assault. But his spies would tell him the Varden were vulnerable the moment we left. I do not want to part with you again so soon after Hellgrind. Our own desires cannot take precedence over the needs of the Varden. But no, I do not want to part with you either. Still, remember what Oramis said, that the prowess of a dragon and rider is measured not only by how well they work together, but also by how well they can function when apart. We are both mature enough to operate independently of each other, Eragon. However much we may dislike the prospect, you proved that yourself during your trip from Hellgrind. Would it bother you, fighting with Arya on your back, as Nasawada mentioned? Her I would mind least of all. We have fought together before, and it was she who ferried me across Alagazia for nigh on twenty years when I was in my egg. You know that, little one. Why pose this question? Are you jealous? What if I am? An amused twinkle lit her sapphire eyes. She flicked her tongue at him. Then it is very sweet of you. Would you I should stay or go? It is your choice to make, not mine. But it affects us both. Eragon dug at the ground with the tip of his boot. Then he said, 
If we must participate in this mad scheme, we should do everything we can to help it succeed. Stay, and see if you can keep Nasawada from losing her head over this thrice-blasted plan of hers. Be of good cheer, little one. Run fast, and we shall be reunited in short order. Aragon looked up at Nasawada. Very well, he said. I will go. Nasawada's posture relaxed somewhat. Thank you. And you, Safira? Will you stay or go? Projecting her thoughts to include Nasawada as well as Aragon, Safira said, I will stay, Night Stalker. Nasawada inclined her head. Thank you, Safira. I am most grateful for your support. Have you spoken to Blodgarm of this? asked Aragon. Has he agreed to it? No, I assumed you would inform him of the details. Aragon doubted the elves would be pleased by the prospect of him travelling to Farthendor with only an Urgel for company. He said, If I might make a suggestion, you know I welcome your suggestions. That stopped him for a moment. A suggestion and a request, then. Nasawada lifted a finger motioning for him to continue. When the dwarves have chosen their new king or queen, Sephira should join me in Farthendur, both to honour the dwarves' new ruler and to fulfil the promise she made to King Hrothgar after the battle for Trondheim. Nasawada's expression sharpened into that of a hunting wildcat. What promise was this? she asked. You have not told me of this before? that Sephira would mend the star-sapphire Isidar Mithrim as recompense for Arya breaking it. Her eyes wide with astonishment, Nasawada looked at Sephira and said, You are capable of such a feat? I am, but I do not know if I will be able to summon the magic I will need when I am standing before Isidar Mithrim. My ability to cast spells is not subject to my own desires. At times, it is as if I have gained a new sense and I can feel the pulse of energy within my own flesh, and by directing it with my will, I can reshape the world as I wish. The rest of my life, however, I can no more cast a spell than a fish can fly. If I could mend Isidar Mithrim, though, it would go a long way toward earning us the goodwill of all the dwarves, not just a select few who have the breadth of knowledge to appreciate the importance of their cooperation with us. It would do more than you imagine, said Nasawada. The Star Sapphire holds a special place in the hearts of dwarves. Every dwarf has a love of gemstones, but Isidar Mithrim they love and cherish above all others because of its beauty, and most of all, because of its immense size. Restore it to its previous glory, and you will restore the pride of their race. Aragon said, Even if Sephira failed to repair Isidar Mithrim, she should be present for the coronation of the dwarves' new ruler. You could conceal her absence for a few days by letting it be known among the Varden that she and I have left on a brief trip to Arboron or some such. By the time Galbatorix's spies realize you had deceived them, it would be too late for the Empire to organize an attack before we returned. Nasawada nodded. 
It is a good idea. Contact me as soon as the dwarves set a date for the coronation. I shall. You have made your suggestion. Now, out with your request. What is it you wish of me? Since you insist I must make this trip, with your permission, I would like to fly with Sephira from Tronchim to Elismira after the coronation. For what purpose? To consult with the ones who taught us during our last visit to Duweldenvarden. We promised them that as soon as events allowed, we would return to Elismira to complete our training. The line between Nasawada's eyebrows deepened. There is not the time for you to spend weeks or months in Elasmira continuing your education. No, but perhaps we have the time for a brief visit. Nasawada leaned her head against the back of her carved chair and gazed down at Aragon from underneath heavy lids. And who exactly are your teachers? I have noticed you always evade direct questions about them. Who was it that taught the two of you in Elismira, Aragon? Fingering his ring, Aran, Aragon said, We swore an oath to Islanzadi that we would not reveal their identity without permission from her, Arya, or whoever may succeed Islanzadi to her throne. By all the demons above and below, how many oaths have you and Sephira sworn? demanded Nasawada. You seem to bind yourself to everyone you meet. Feeling somewhat sheepish, Aragon shrugged and had opened his mouth to speak when Sephira said to Nasawada, We do not seek them out, but how can we avoid pledging ourselves when we cannot topple Galbatorix and the Empire without the support of every race in Alagazia? Oaths are the price we pay for winning the aid of those in power. Hmm, said Nasawada. So I must ask Arya for the truth of the matter. Aye, but I doubt she will tell you. The elves consider the identity of our teachers to be one of their most precious secrets. They will not risk sharing it unless absolutely necessary to keep word of it from reaching Galbatorix. Aragon stared at the royal blue gemstone set in his ring wondering how much more information his oath and his honour would allow him to divulge, then said, Know this, though. We are not so alone as we once assumed. Nasawada's expression sharpened. I see. That is good to know, Aragon. I only wish the elves were more forthcoming with me. After pursing her lips for a brief moment, Nasawada continued, why must you travel all the way to Elismira? Have you no means to communicate with your tutors directly? Elagon spread his hands in a gesture of helplessness. If only we could. Alas, the spell has yet to be invented that can broach the wards that encircle Duweldenvarden. The elves did not even leave an opening they themselves can exploit? If they had... Arya would have contacted Queen Islanzadi as soon as she was revived in Farthandur, rather than physically going to Duweldenvarden. I suppose you are right. But then how was it you were able to consult Islanzadi about Sloane's fate? You implied that when you spoke with her, the elves' army was still situated within Duweldenvarden. They were, he said, but only in the fringe, beyond the protective measures of the wards. The silence between them was palpable, 
as Nasawada considered his request. Outside the tent, Aragon heard the nighthawks arguing among themselves about whether a bill or a halberd was better suited for fighting large numbers of men on foot, and beyond them, the creak of a passing ox cart, the jangle of armor on men trotting in the opposite direction, and hundreds of other indistinct sounds that drifted through the camp. When Nasawada spoke, she said, What exactly do you hope to gain from such a visit? I don't know, growled Aragon. He struck the pommel of the falchion with his fist. And that's the heart of the problem. We don't know enough. It might accomplish nothing, but on the other hand, we might learn something that could help us vanquish Murtag and Galbatorix once and for all. We barely won yesterday, Nasawada. Barely. And I fear that when we again face Thorn and Murtag, Murtag will be even stronger than before, and frost coats my bones when I consider the fact that Galbatorix's abilities far exceed Murtag's, despite the vast amount of power he has already bestowed upon my brother, the elf who taught me. He... Aragon hesitated, considering the wisdom of what he was about to say, then forged onward. He hinted that he knows how it is Galbatorix's strength has been increasing every year, but he refused to reveal more at the time because we were not advanced enough in our training. Now, after our encounters with Thorn and Murtag, I think he will share his knowledge with us. Moreover, there are entire branches of magic we have yet to explore, and any one of them might provide the means to defeat Galbatorix. If we are going to gamble upon this trip, Nasawada, then let us not gamble to maintain our current position. Let us gamble to increase our standing, and so win this game of chance. Nasawada sat motionless for over a minute. I cannot make this decision until after the dwarves hold their coronation. Whether you go to Dweldenvaden will depend on the movements of the Empire then, and on what our spies report about Murtag and Thorn's activities. Over the course of the next two hours, Nasawada instructed Aragon about the thirteen dwarf clans. She schooled him in their history and their politics, in the products upon which each clan based the majority of its trade, in the names, families, and personalities of the clan chiefs, in the list of important tunnels excavated and controlled by each clan, and in what she felt would be the best way to coax the dwarves to elect a king or queen friendly to the goals of the Varden. Ideally, Oric would be the one to take the throne, she said. King Hrothgar was highly regarded by most of his subjects, and Durgrimstingetum remains one of the richest and most influential of clans, all of which is to Oric's benefit. Oric is devoted to our cause. He has served as one of the Varden. You and I both count him as a friend, and he is your foster brother. I believe he has the skills to become an excellent king for the dwarves. Amusement kindled in her expression. Small matter, that. However, he is young by the standards of the dwarves, and his association with us may prove to be an insurmountable barrier for the other clan chiefs. Another obstacle is that the other great clans, Durgrimst Feldenost and Durgrimst Nölkarathen, to name but two, are eager, after over a hundred years of rule by the Injitum, 
to see the crown go to a different clan. By all means, support Oric if it can help him onto the throne. But if it becomes obvious that his attempt is doomed and your backing could guarantee the success of another clan chief who favours the Varden, then transfer your support, even if doing so will offend Oric. You cannot allow friendship to interfere with politics, not now. When Nasuada finished her lecture on the dwarf clans, she, Aragon and Sephira, spent several minutes figuring out how Aragon could slip out of the camp without being noticed. After they had finally hammered out the details of the plan, Aragon and Sephira returned to their tent and told Blodgarm what they had decided. To Aragon's surprise, the fur-covered elf did not object. Curious, Aragon asked, Do you approve? It is not my place to say whether I approve or not, Blodgarm replied, his voice a low purr. But since Nasuada's stratagem does not seem to put either of you in unreasonable danger, and by means of this you may have the opportunity to further your learning in Elismira, neither I nor my brethren shall object. He inclined his head. If you will excuse me, Biatskula, Arjadlan. Skirting Sephira, the elf exited the tent, allowing a bright flash of light to pierce the darkness inside as he pushed aside the entrance flap. For a handful of minutes, Aragon and Sephira sat in silence. Then Aragon put his hand on the top of her head. Say what you will. I will miss you. And I you, little one. Be careful. If anything happened to you, I would... And you as well. He sighed. We have been together only a few days, and already we must part again. I find it hard to forgive Nasawada for that. Do not condemn her for doing what she must. No, but it leaves a bitter taste in my mouth. Move swiftly, then, so I may soon join you in Fardendur. I wouldn't mind being so far away from you if only I could still touch your mind. That's the worst part of it, the horrible sense of emptiness. We dare not even speak to each other through the mirror in Nasuada's tent, for people would wonder why you kept visiting her without me. Sephira blinked and flicked out her tongue, and he sensed a strange shift in her emotions. What? he asked. I... she blinked again. I agree. I wish we could remain in mental contact when we were at great distances from each other. It would reduce our worry and trouble, and would allow us to confound the Empire more easily. She hummed with satisfaction as he sat next to her, and began to scratch the small scales behind the corner of her jaw. Footprints of Shadow With a series of giddy leaps, Sephira carried Aragon through the camp to Roran and Katrina's tent. Outside the tent, Katrina was washing a shift in a bucket of soapy water, scrubbing the white fabric against a board of ridged wood. She lifted a hand to shield her eyes as a cloud of dust from Sephira's landing drifted over her. Roran stepped out of the tent, buckling on his belt. He coughed and squinted in the dust. What brings you here? he asked as Aragon dismounted. Speaking quickly, Aragon told them of his impending departure, and impressed upon them the importance of keeping his absence a secret from the rest of the villagers. 
No matter how slighted they feel because I supposedly refuse to see them, you cannot reveal the truth to them, not even to Horst or Elaine. Let them think I have become a rude and ungrateful lout before you so much as utter a word about Nasawada's scheme. This I ask of you for the sake of everyone who has pitted themselves against the Empire. Will you do it? We would never betray you, Aragon, said Katrina. Of that you need have no doubts. Then Roran said that he too was leaving. Where? exclaimed Aragon. I just received my assignment a few minutes ago. We are going to raid the Empire's supply train somewhere well north of us, behind enemy lines. Aragon gazed at the three of them in turn. First Roran, serious and determined, already tense with anticipation of battle, then Katrina, worried and trying to conceal it, and then Sephira, whose nostrils flickered with small tongues of flame which sputtered as she breathed. So we are all going our separate ways. What he did not say, but which hung over them like a shroud, was that they might never again see each other alive. Grasping Aragon by the forearm, Roran pulled him close and hugged him for a moment. He released Aragon and stared deep into his eyes. Guard your back, brother. Galbatorix isn't the only one who would like to slip a knife between your ribs when you aren't looking. Do the same yourself, and if you find yourself facing a spellcaster, run in the opposite direction. The wards I placed around you won't last forever. Katrina hugged Aragon and whispered, Don't take too long. I won't. Together, Roran and Katrina went to Sephira and touched their foreheads to her long, bony snout. Her chest vibrated as she produced a pure bass note deep within her throat. Remember, Roran, she said, do not make the mistake of leaving your enemies alive. And Katrina, do not dwell on that which you cannot change. It will only worsen your distress. With a rustle of skin and scales, Sephira unfolded her wings and enveloped Roran, Katrina, and Aragon in a warm embrace, isolating them from the world. As Sephira lifted her wings, Roran and Katrina stepped away, while Aragon climbed onto her back. He waved at the newlywed couple, a lump in his throat, and continued waving even as Sephira took to the air. Blinking to clear his eyes, Aragon leaned against a spike behind him and gazed up at the tilting sky. To the cook tents now? asked Sephira. Aye. Sephira climbed a few hundred feet before she aimed herself at the southwestern quadrant of the camp, where pillars of smoke drifted up from rows of ovens and large, wide pit fires. A thin stream of wind slipped past her and Aragon as she glided downward toward a clear patch of ground between two open-walled tents, each fifty feet long. Breakfast was over, so the tents were empty of men when Sephira landed with a loud thump. Aragon hurried toward the fires beyond the plank tables, Sephira beside him. The many hundreds of men who were busy tending the fires, carving meat, cracking eggs, kneading dough, stirring cast-iron kettles full of mysterious liquids, scrubbing clean enormous piles of dirty pots and pans, and who were otherwise engaged in the enormous and never-ending task of preparing food for the Varden, did not pause to gawk at Aragon and Sephira, 
For what importance was a dragon and rider compared with the merciless demands of the ravenous, many-mouthed creature whose hunger they were striving to sate? A stout man with a close-cropped beard of white and black, who was almost short enough to pass for a dwarf, trotted over to Aragon and Sephira and gave a curt bow. I'm Quoth Merinson. How can I help you? If you want, Shadeslayer, we have some bread that just finished baking. He gestured toward a double row of sourdough loaves resting on a platter on a nearby table. I might have half a loaf if you can spare it, said Aragon. However, my hunger isn't the reason for our visit. Sephira would like something to eat, and we haven't time for her to hunt as she usually does. Quoth looked past him and eyed Sephira's bulk, and his face grew pale. How much does she normally? Uh, ah, that is, how much do you normally eat, Sephira? I can have six sides of roast beef brought over immediately, and another six will be ready in about fifteen minutes. Will that be enough, or... The knob in his throat jumped as he swallowed. Sephira emitted a soft, rippling growl which caused Quoth to squeak and hop backward. She would prefer a lithe animal, if that's convenient, Aragon said. In a high-pitched voice, Quoth said, Convenient? Oh, yes, it's convenient. He bobbed his head, twisting at his apron with his grease-stained hands. Most convenient indeed, Shadeslayer, Dragon Sephira. King Orin's table will not be lacking this afternoon, then. Oh, no. And a barrel of mead, Sephira said to Aragon. White circles appeared around Quoth's irises as Aragon repeated her request. I... I am afraid that the dwarves have purchased most of our stocks of mead. We have only a few barrels left, and those are reserved for King... Quoth flinched as a four-foot-long flame leaped out of Sephira's nostrils and singed the grass in front of him. Snarled lines of smoke drifted up from the blackened stalks. I, I, I will have a barrel brought to you at once. If you will f follow me, I will take you to the livestock, where you may have whatever beast you like. Skirting the fires and tables and groups of harried men, the cook led them to a collection of large wooden pens which contained pigs, cattle, geese, goats, sheep, rabbits, and a number of wild deer the Varden's foragers had captured during their forays into the surrounding wilderness. Close to the pens were coops full of chickens, ducks, doves, quail, grouse, and other birds. Their squawking, chirping, cooing, and crowing formed a cacophony so harsh it made Aragon grit his teeth with annoyance. In order to avoid being overwhelmed by the thoughts and feelings of so many creatures, he was careful to keep his mind closed to all but Sephira. The three of them stopped over a hundred feet from the pens, so Sephira's presence would not panic the imprisoned animals. Is there any here catches your fancy? Quoth asked, gazing up at her and rubbing his hands with nervous dexterity. As she surveyed the pens, Sephira sniffed and said to Aragon, what pitiful prey! I'm not really that hungry, you know. I went hunting only the day before yesterday, and I'm still digesting the bones of the deer I ate. You're still growing quickly. The food will do you good. Not if I can't stomach it. Pick something small, then. A pig, maybe. 
That would hardly be of any help to you. No, I'll take that one. From Sephira, Aragon received the image of a cow of medium stature, with a splattering of white splotches on her left flank. After Aragon pointed out the cow, Quoth shouted at a line of men idling by the pens. Two of them separated the cow from the rest of the herd, slipped a rope over its head, and pulled the reluctant animal toward Sephira. Thirty feet from Sephira, the cow balked and lowed with terror, and tried to shake free of the rope and flee. Before the animal could escape, Sephira pounced, leaping across the distance separating them. The two men who were pulling on the rope threw themselves flat as Sephira rushed toward them, her jaws gaping. Sephira struck the cow broadside as it turned to run, knocking the animal over and holding it in place with her splayed feet. It uttered a single terrified bleat before Sephira's jaws closed over its neck. With a ferocious shake of her head, she snapped its spine. She paused then, crouched low over her kill, and looked expectantly at Aragon. Closing his eyes, Aragon reached out with his mind toward the cow. The animal's consciousness had already faded into darkness, but its body was still alive, its flesh thrumming with motive energy, which was all the more intense for the fear that had coursed through it moments before. Repugnance for what he was about to do filled Aragon, but he ignored it, and placing a hand over the belt of Beloth the Wise, transferred what energy he could from the body of the cow into the twelve diamonds hidden around his waist. The process took only a few seconds. He nodded to Sephira. I'm done. Aragon thanked the men for their assistance, and then the two of them left him and Sephira alone. While Sephira gorged herself, Aragon sat against the barrel of mead and watched the cooks go about their business. Every time they or one of their assistants beheaded a chicken or cut the throat of a pig or a goat or any other animal, he transferred the energy from the dying animal into the belt of Beloth the Wise. It was grim work, for most of the animals were still aware when he touched their consciousness, and the howling storm of their fear and confusion and pain battered at him until his heart pounded and sweat beaded his brow, and he wished nothing more than to heal the suffering creatures. However, he knew it was their doom to die lest the Varden should starve. He had depleted his reserve of energy during the past few battles, and Aragon wanted to replenish it before setting out on a long and potentially hazardous journey. If Nasuada had allowed him to remain with the Varden for another week, he could have stocked the diamonds with energy from his own body, and still had time to recuperate before running to Farthendur, but he could not in the few hours he had. And even if he had done nothing, but lie in bed and pour the fire from his limbs into the gems, he would not have been able to garner as much force as he did then from the multitude of animals. The diamonds in the belt of Beloth the Wise seemed to be able to absorb an almost unlimited amount of energy, so he stopped when he was unable to bear the prospect of immersing himself in the death throes of another animal. Shaking and dripping with sweat from head to toe, he leaned forward, his hands on his knees, and gazed at the ground between his feet, struggling not to be ill. Memories not his own intruded upon his thoughts, 
Memories of Sephira soaring over Leona Lake with him on her back, of them plunging into the clear, cool water, a cloud of white bubbles swarming past them, of their shared delight in flying and swimming and playing together. His breathing calmed, and he looked at Sephira where she sat among the remnants of her kill, chewing on the cow's skull. He smiled and sent her his gratitude for her help. We can go now, he said. Swallowing, she replied, Take my strength as well. You may need it. No. This is one argument you will not win. I insist. And I insist otherwise. I won't leave you here weakened and unfit for battle. What if Murtag and Thorn attack later today? We both need to be ready to fight at any moment. You'll be in more danger than I will, because Galbatorix and the whole of the Empire will still believe I'm with you. Yes, but you will be alone with a cull in the middle of the wilderness. I am as accustomed to the wilderness as you. Being away from civilization does not frighten me. As for a cull, well, I don't know if I could beat one at a wrestling match, but my wards will protect me from any treachery. I have enough energy, Sephira. You don't need to give me more. She eyed him, considering his words, then lifted a paw and started licking it clean of blood. Very well. I will keep myself to myself. The corners of her mouth seemed to lift with amusement. Lowering her paw, she said, Would you be so kind as to roll that barrel over to me? With a grunt, he got to his feet and did as she asked. She extended a single talon and punched two holes in the top of the barrel, which released the sweet smell of apple honey mead. Arching her neck so her head was directly above the barrel, she grasped it between her massive jaws, then lifted it skyward and poured the gurgling contents down her gullet. The empty barrel shattered against the ground when she dropped it, and one of the iron hoops rolled several yards away. Her upper lip wrinkled. Sephira shook her head, then her breath hitched, and she sneezed so hard that her nose struck the ground and a gout of fire erupted from both her mouth and her nostrils. Aragon yelped with surprise and jumped sideways, batting at the smoking hem of his tunic. The right side of his face felt seared raw by the heat of the fire. Sephira, be more careful, he exclaimed. Oops. She lowered her head and rubbed her dust-caked snout against the edge of one foreleg, scratching at her nostrils. The mead tickles. Really, you ought to know better by now, he grumbled as he climbed onto her back. After rubbing her snout against her foreleg once more, Sephira leaped high into the air and, gliding over the Varden's camp, returned Aragon to his tent. He slid off her, then stood looking up at Sephira. For a time they said nothing, allowing their shared emotions to speak for them. Sephira blinked, and he thought her eyes glistened more than normal. This is a test, she said. If we pass it, we shall be the stronger for it, as dragon and rider. We must be able to function by ourselves if necessary, 
else we will forever be at a disadvantage compared with others. Yes. She gouged the earth with her clenching claws. Knowing that does nothing to ease my pain, however. A shiver ran the length of her sinuous body. She shuffled her wings. May the wind rise under your wings, and the sun always be at your back. Travel well, and travel fast, little one. Goodbye, he said. Aragon felt that if he remained with her any longer, he would never leave. So he whirled around and, without a backward glance, plunged into the dark interior of his tent. The connection between them, which had become as integral to him as the structure of his own flesh, he severed completely. They would soon be too far apart to sense each other's minds anyway, and he had no desire to prolong the agony of their parting. He stood where he was for a moment, gripping the hilt of the falchion and swaying as if he were dizzy. Already the dull ache of loneliness suffused him, and he felt small and isolated without the comforting presence of Sephira's consciousness. I did this before and I can do this again, he thought, and forced himself to square his shoulders and lift his chin. From underneath his cot he removed the pack he had made during his trip from Helgrind. Into it he placed the carved wooden tube wrapped in cloth that contained the scroll of the poem he had written for the Agate Blodren, which Oromis had copied for him in his finest calligraphy, the flask of enchanted failnerve, and the small soapstone box of Nalgask that were also gifts from Oromis, the thick book Domia Aborwirda, which was Jode's present, his whetstone and his strop, and after some hesitation, the many pieces of his armour, for he reasoned, if the occasion arises where I need it, I will be more happy to have it than I will be miserable carrying it all the way to Farthandur. Or so he hoped. The book and the scroll he took because, after having done so much travelling, he had concluded that the best way to avoid losing the objects he cared about was to keep them with him wherever he went. The only extra clothes he decided to bring were a pair of gloves which he stuffed inside his helmet and his heavy woolen cloak in case it got cold when they stopped nights. All the rest he left rolled up in Sephira's saddlebags. If I really am a member of Durgrimstingetum, he thought, they will clothe me properly when I arrive at Bregenhold. Cinching off the pack, he lay his unstrung bow and quiver across the top and lashed them to the frame. He was about to do the same with the falchion, when he realized that if he leaned to the side the sword could slide out of the sheath. Therefore he tied the sword flat against the rear of the pack, angling it so the hilt would ride between his neck and his right shoulder, where he could still draw it if need be. Aragon donned the pack, and then stabbed through the barrier in his mind, feeling the energy surging in his body and in the twelve diamonds mounted on the belt of Beloth the Wise. Tapping into that flow of force, he murmured the spell he had cast but once before that which bent rays of light around him and rendered him invisible. A slight pall of fatigue weakened his limbs as he released the spell. He glanced downward and had the disconcerting experience of looking through where he knew his torso and legs to be and seeing the imprint of his boots on the dirt below. Now for the difficult part, he thought. Going to the rear of the tent, 
he slit the taut fabric with his hunting knife and slipped through the opening. Sleek as a well-fed cat, Blodgarm was waiting for him outside. He inclined his head in the general direction of Aragon and murmured, Shade Slayer, then devoted his attention to mending the hole, which he did with a half-dozen short words in the ancient language. Aragon drifted down the path between two rows of tents, using his knowledge of woodcraft to make as little noise as possible. Whenever anyone approached, Aragon darted off the path and stood motionless, hoping they would not notice the footprints of shadow in the dirt or on the grass. He cursed the fact that the land was so dry. His boots tended to raise small puffs of dust, no matter how gently he lowered them. To his surprise, being invisible degraded his sense of balance. Without the ability to see where his hands or his feet were, he kept misjudging distances and bumping into things, almost as if he had consumed too much ale. Despite his uncertain progress, he reached the edge of the camp in fairly good time and without arousing any suspicion. He paused behind a rain barrel, hiding his footprints in its thick shadow, and studied the packed earth ramparts and ditches lined with sharpened stakes that protected the Varden's eastern flank. If he had been trying to enter the camp, it would have been extremely difficult to escape detection by one of the many sentinels who patrolled the ramparts, even while invisible but since the trenches and the ramparts had been designed to repel attackers and not imprison the defenders, crossing them from the opposite direction was a far easier task. Aragon waited until the two closest sentinels had their backs turned toward him, and then he sprinted forward, pumping his arms with all his might. Within seconds he traversed the hundred or so feet that separated the rain barrel from the slope of the rampart, and dashed up the embankment so fast he felt as if he were a stone skipping across water. At the crest of the embankment he drove his legs into the ground, and arms flailing leaped out over the lines of the Varden's defences. For three silent heartbeats he flew, then landed with a bone-jarring impact. As soon as he regained his balance, Aragon pressed himself flat against the ground and held his breath. One of the sentinels paused in his rounds, but he did not seem to notice anything out of the ordinary, and after a moment he resumed his pacing. Aragon released his breath and whispered, Duteloi Lunea, and felt as the spell smoothed out the impressions his boots had left in the embankment. Still invisible, he stood and trotted away from the camp, careful to step only on clumps of grass so he would not kick up more dust. The farther he got from the sentinels, the faster he ran, until he sped over the land more quickly than a galloping horse. Almost an hour later, he danced down the steep side of a narrow draw that the wind and rain had etched into the surface of the grasslands. At the bottom was a trickle of water lined with rushes and cattails. He continued downstream, staying well away from the soft ground next to the water, in an attempt to avoid leaving traces of his passage until the creek widened into a small pond, and there by the edge he saw the bulk of a bare-chested cull sitting on a boulder. As Aragon pushed his way through a stand of cattails, the sound of rustling leaves and stalks alerted the cull of his presence. The creature turned his massive horned head toward Aragon, sniffing at the air. It was Nargajvog, 
leader of the Urgals who had allied themselves with the Varden. You! exclaimed Aragon, becoming visible once more. Greetings, fire sword, Garjvag rumbled. Heaving up his thick limbs and giant torso, the Urgal rose to his full eight and a half feet, his grey-skinned muscles rippling in the light of the noonday sun. Greetings, Nargajvog, said Aragon. Confused, he asked, What of your rams? Who will lead them if you go with me? My blood brother, Skagagrej, will lead. He is not cull, but he has long horns and a thick neck. He is a fine war chief. I see. Why did you want to come, though? The Urgle lifted his square chin. Bearing his throat. You are Fire Sword. You must not die, or the Urgralgra, the Urgles as you name us, will not have our revenge against Galbatorix, and our race will die in this land. Therefore, I will run with you. I am the best of our fighters. I have defeated forty two rams in single combat. Aragon nodded, not displeased by the turn of events. Of all the Urgals, he trusted Garjvag the most, for he had probed the Kull's consciousness before the Battle of the Burning Plains and had discovered that by the standards of his race, Garjvag was honest and reliable. As long as he doesn't decide that his honour requires him to challenge me to a duel, we should have no cause for conflict. Very well, Nargajvag, he said tightening the strap of the pack around his waist. Let us run together, you and I, as has not happened in the whole of recorded history. Garjvag chuckled deep in his chest. Let us run, fire sword. Together they faced east, and together they set forth for the Beor Mountains, Aragon running light and swift, and Garjvag loping beside him, taking one stride, for every two of Aragon's, the earth shuddering beneath the burden of his weight. Above them, swollen thunderheads gathered along the horizon, portending a torrential storm, and circling hawks uttered lonesome cries as they hunted their prey. Over Hill and Mountain Aragon and Nargajvag ran for the rest of the day, through the night and through the following day, stopping only to drink and to relieve themselves. At the end of the second day, Garjvag said, Fire sword, I must eat and I must sleep. Eragon leaned against a nearby stump, panting, and nodded. He had not wanted to speak first, but he was just as hungry and exhausted as the cull. Soon after leaving the Varden, he had discovered that while he was faster than Garjvag at distances of up to five miles, beyond that, Garjvag's endurance was equal to or greater than his own. I will help you hunt, he said. That is not needed. Make us a big fire, and I will bring us food. Fine. As Garjvag strode off toward a thicket of beech trees north of them, Aragon untied the strap around his waist, and with a sigh of relief, dropped his pack next to the stump. Blasted armor, 
he muttered. Even in the Empire, he had not run so far while carrying such a load. He had not anticipated how arduous it would be. His feet hurt, his legs hurt, his back hurt, and when he tried to crouch, his knees refused to bend properly. Trying to ignore his discomfort, he set about gathering grass and dead branches for a fire, which he piled on a patch of dry, rocky ground. He and Garjvag were somewhere just east of the southern tip of Lake Tudostan. The land was wet and lush, with fields of grass that stood six feet high, through which there roamed herds of deer, gazelles, and wild oxen with black hides and wide, back-swept horns. The riches of the area were due, Aragon knew, to the Bior Mountains, which caused the formation of huge banks of clouds that drifted for many leagues over the plains beyond, bringing rain to places that would otherwise have been as dry as the Haderach Desert. Although the two of them had already run an enormous number of leagues, Aragon was disappointed by their progress. Between the Jeet River and Lake Tudostan, they had lost several hours while hiding and taking detours to avoid being seen. Now that Lake Tudostan was behind them, he hoped that their pace would increase. Nasawada didn't foresee this delay, now did she? Oh no. She thought I could run flat out from there to Fathom Dur. Ha! Kicking at a branch that was in his way, he continued to gather wood, grumbling to himself the entire time. When Garjvag returned an hour later, Aragon had built a fire a yard long and two feet wide, and was sitting in front of it, staring at the flames, and fighting the urge to slip into the waking dreams that were his rest. His neck cracked as he looked up. Garjvag strode toward him, holding the carcass of a plump doe under his left arm. As if it weighed no more than a sack of rags, he lifted the doe, and wedged its head in the fork of a tree twenty yards from the fire. Then he drew a knife and began to clean the carcass. Aragon stood, feeling as if his joints had turned to stone, and stumbled toward Garjvag. How did you kill it? he asked. With my sling, rumbled Garjvag. Do you intend to cook it on a spit? Or do urgles eat their meat raw? Garjvag turned his head and gazed through the coil of his left horn at Aragon, a deep-set yellow eye gleaming with some enigmatic emotion. We are not beasts, Firesword. I did not say you were. With a grunt, the Urgle returned to his work. It will take too long to cook on a spit, said Aragon. I thought a stew, and we can fry what is left on a rock. Stew? How? We don't have a pot. Reaching down, Garjvag scrubbed his right hand clean on the ground, then removed a square of folded material from the pouch at his belt and tossed it at Aragon. Aragon tried to catch it, but was so tired he missed, and the object struck the ground. It looked like an exceptionally large piece of vellum. As he picked it up, the square fell open, and he saw it had the shape of a bag perhaps a foot and a half wide and three feet deep. The rim was reinforced with a thick strip of leather, upon which were sewn metal rings. He turned the container over, amazed by its softness and the fact that it had no seams. 
What is it? he asked. The stomach of the cave bear I killed the year I first got my horns. Hang it from a frame or put it in a hole, then fill it with water and drop hot stones in it. Stones heat water, and stew tastes good. Won't the stones burn through the stomach? They have not yet. Is it enchanted? No magic. Strong stomach. Garshvag's breath huffed out as he grasped the deer's hips on either side and with a single movement broke its pelvis in two. The sternum he split using his knife. It must have been a big bear, Eragon said. Garshvag made a ruck ruck sound deep in his throat. It was bigger than I am now, Shadeslayer. Did you kill it with your sling as well? I choked him to death with my hands. No weapons are allowed when you come of age and must prove your courage. Garshvag paused for a moment, his knife buried to the hilt in the carcass. Most do not try to kill a cave bear. Most hunt wolves or mountain goats. That is why I became war chief, and others did not. Aragon left him preparing the meat and went to the fire. Next to it, he dug a hole, which he lined with the bear's stomach, pushing stakes through the metal rings to hold the stomach in place. He gathered a dozen apple-sized rocks from the surrounding field and tossed them into the center of the fire. While he waited for the rocks to heat, he used magic to fill the bear's stomach two-thirds with water, and then he fashioned a pair of tongs out of a sapling willow and a piece of knotted rawhide. When the rocks were cherry red, he shouted, They're ready! Put them in, Garsvag replied. Using the tongs, Aragon extracted the nearest stone from the fire and lowered it into the container. The surface of the water exploded into steam as the stone touched it. He deposited two more stones in the bear's stomach, which brought the water to a rolling boil. Garshvag lumbered over and poured a double handful of meat into the water, then seasoned the stew with large pinches of salt from the pouch at his belt and several sprigs of rosemary, thyme, and other wild greens he had chanced upon while hunting. Then he placed a flat piece of shale across one side of the fire. When the stone was hot, he fried strips of meat on it. While the food cooked, Aragon and Garshvag carved themselves spoons from the stump where Aragon had dropped his pack. Hunger made it seem longer to Aragon, but it was not many more minutes before the stew was done and he and Garshvag ate, ravenous as wolves. Aragon devoured twice as much as he thought he ever had before, and what he did not consume, Garshvag did, eating enough for six large men. Afterward, Aragon lay back, propping himself up on his elbows, and stared at the flashing fireflies that had appeared along the edge of the beech trees, swirling in abstract patterns as they chased one another. Somewhere an owl hooted, soft and throaty. The first few stars speckled the purple sky. Aragon stared without seeing, and thought of Sephira, and then of Arya, and then of Arya and Sephira, and then he closed his eyes, a dull throb forming behind his temples. He heard a cracking sound, and opening his eyes once more, 
saw that on the other side of the empty bear stomach, Garjvag was cleaning his teeth with the pointed end of a broken thigh bone. Eragon dropped his gaze to the bottom of the Urgle's bare feet, Garjvag having removed his sandals before they began their meal, and to his surprise noticed that the Urgle had seven toes on each foot. The dwarves had the same number of toes as you do, he said. Garjvag spat a piece of meat into the coals of the fire. I did not know that. I have never wanted to look at the feet of a dwarf. Don't you find it curious that Urgles and dwarves should both have fourteen toes, while elves and humans have ten? Garjvag's thick lips lifted in a snarl. We share no blood with those hornless mountain rats, Firesword. They have fourteen toes, and we have fourteen toes. It pleased the gods to shape us so when they created the world. There is no other explanation. Eragon grunted in response, and returned to watching the fireflies. Then, tell me a story your race is fond of, Nargajvog. The cull pondered for a moment, then removed the bone from his mouth. He said, Long ago, there lived a young Urgralgra, and her name was Magara. She had horns that shone like polished stone, hair that hung past her waist, and a laugh that could charm the birds out of the trees. But she was not pretty. She was ugly. Now in her village there also lived a ram who was very strong. He had killed four rams in wrestling matches and had defeated twenty-three others besides. But although his feats had won him wide renown, he had yet to choose a broodmate. Megara wished to be his broodmate, but he would not look at her, for she was ugly, and because of her ugliness he did not see her bright horns nor her long hair, and he did not hear her pleasant laugh. Sick at heart that he would not look at her, Megara climbed the tallest mountain in the spine, and she called out to Rana to help her. Rana is mother of us all, and it was she who invented weaving and farming, and she who raised the Beor Mountains when she was fleeing the great dragon. Rana, she of the gilded horns, she answered Megara, and she asked why Megara had summoned her. Make me pretty, honored mother, so I can attract the ram I want, said Megara. And Rana answered, You do not need to be pretty, Megara. You have bright horns and long hair and a pleasant laugh. With those you can catch a ram who is not so foolish as to look at only a female's face. And Megara, she threw herself down upon the ground and said, I will not be happy unless I can have this ram, honored mother. Please make me pretty. Rana, she smiled then and said, If I do this, child, how will you repay me for this favor? And Megara said, I will give you anything you want. Rana was well pleased with her offer, and so she made Megara pretty then and Megara returned to her village, and everyone wondered at her beauty. 
With her new face, Megara became the broodmate of the ram she wanted, and they had many children, and they lived in happiness for seven years. Then Rana came to Megara, and Rana said, You have had seven years with the ram you wanted. Have you enjoyed them? And Megara said, I have. And Rana said, Then I have come for my payment. And she looked around their house of stone, and she seized hold of Megara's eldest son and said, I will have him. Megara begged she of the gilded horns not to take her eldest son, but Rana would not relent. At last, Megara took her broodmate's club, and she struck at Rana, but the club shattered in her hands. In punishment, Rana stripped Megara's beauty from her, and then Rana left with Megara's son for her hall where the four winds dwell, and she named the boy Hegraz, and raised him to be one of the mightiest warriors who has ever walked this land. And so one should learn from Megara to never fight one's fate, for you will lose that which you hold most dear. Aragon watched the glowing rim of the crescent moon appear above the eastern horizon. Tell me something about your villages. What? Anything. I experienced hundreds of memories when I was in your mind, and in Kagras, and in Otvex but I can recall only a handful of them, and those imperfectly. I am trying to make sense of what I saw. There is much I could tell you, rumbled Garjvog. His heavy eyes pensive, he worked his makeshift toothpick around one of his fangs, and then said, We take logs, and we carve them with faces of the animals of the mountains and these we bury upright by our houses, so they will frighten away the spirits of the wild. Sometimes the poles almost seem to be alive. When you walk into one of our villages, you can feel the eyes of all the carved animals watching you. The bone paused in the ergle's fingers, then resumed its back-and-forth motion. By the doorway of each hut we hang the namna. It is a strip of cloth as wide as my outstretched hand. The namna are brightly colored, and the patterns on them depict the history of the family that lives in that hut. Only the eldest and most skilled weavers are allowed to add to a namna, or to reweave one if it becomes damaged. The bone disappeared inside of Garjvag's fist. During the months of winter, those who have mates work with them on their hearth rug. It takes at least five years to finish such a rug, so by the time it is done, you know whether you have made a good choice of mate. I've never seen one of your villages, said Aragon. They must be very well hidden. Well hidden, and well defended. Few who see our homes live to tell of it. Focusing on the cull, and allowing an edge to creep into his voice, Aragon said, How is it you learned this language, Garjvag? Was there a human who lived among you? Did you keep any of us as slaves? 
Garjvag returned Aragon's gaze without flinching. We have no slaves, Firesword. I tore the knowledge from the minds of the men I fought, and I shared it with the rest of my tribe. You have killed many humans, haven't you? You have killed many Urgralgra, Firesword. It is why we must be allies, or my race will not survive. Aragon crossed his arms. When Brom and I were tracking the Razak, we passed through Yazuak, a village by the Ninor River. We found all of the people piled in the center of the village, dead, with a baby stuck on a spear at the top of the pile. It was the worst thing I've ever seen, and it was Urgles who killed them. Before I got my horns, said Garjvag, my father took me to visit one of our villages along the western fringes of the spine. We found our people tortured, burnt, and slaughtered. The men of Narda had learned of our presence, and they had surprised the village with many soldiers. Not one of our tribe escaped. It is true we love war more than other races, Firesword, and that has been our downfall many times before. Our women will not consider a ram for a mate unless he has proven himself in battle and killed at least three foes himself. And there is a joy in battle unlike any other joy. But though we love feats of arms, that does not mean we are not aware of our fault. If our race cannot change, Galbatorix will kill us all if he defeats the Varden, and you and Nasuada will kill us all if you overthrow that snake-tongued betrayer. Am I not right, Firesword? Aragon jerked his chin in a nod. Aye. It does no good, then, to dwell upon past wrongs. If we cannot overlook what each of our races has done, there will never be peace between humans and the Ugolgra. How should we treat you, though, if we defeat Galbatorix and Nasuada gives your race the land you have asked for, and twenty years from now, your children begin to kill and plunder so they can win mates? If you know your own history, Garjvag, then you know it has always been so when Urgel signed peace accords. With a thick sigh, Garjvag said, Then we will hope that there are still Urgralgra across the sea, and that they are wiser than us, for we will be no more in this land. Neither of them spoke again that night. Garjvag curled up on his side and slept with his massive head resting on the ground while Aragon wrapped himself in his cloak and sat against the stump and gazed at the slowly turning stars, drifting in and out of his waking dreams. By the end of the next day, they had come into sight of the Beor Mountains. At first, the mountains were nothing more than ghostly shapes on the horizon, angled panes of white and purple. But as evening drew nigh, the distant range acquired substance, and Aragon was able to make out the dark band of trees along the base, and above that, the even wider band of gleaming snow and ice, and still higher yet, the peaks themselves, which
which were grey, bare stone, for they were so tall, no plants grew upon them, and no snow fell upon them. As when he had first seen them, the sheer size of the Beor Mountains overwhelmed Aragon. His every instinct insisted that nothing that large could exist, and yet he knew his eyes did not deceive him. The mountains averaged ten miles high, and many were even taller. Aragon and Gajvag did not stop that night, but continued running through the hours of darkness and through the day thereafter. When morning arrived, the sky grew bright, but because of the Beor Mountains it was almost noon before the sun burst forth between two peaks, and rays of light as wide as the mountains themselves streamed out over the land that was still caught in the strange twilight of shadow. Aragon paused then, on the bank of a brook, and contemplated the sight in silent wonderment for several minutes. As they skirted the vast range of mountains, their journey began to seem to Aragon uncomfortably similar to his flight from Gilead to Farthandur with Murtag, Sephira, and Arya. He even thought he recognized the place where they had camped after crossing the Hadarak Desert. The long days and longer nights slipped by with both excruciating slowness and surprising speed, for every hour was identical to the last, which made Aragon feel not only as if their ordeal would never end, but also as if large portions of it had never taken place. When he and Gajvag arrived at the mouth of the great rift that split the range of mountains for many leagues from north to south, they turned to their right and passed between the cold and indifferent peaks. Arriving at the Beartooth River, which flowed out of the narrow valley that led to Farthandur, they forded the frigid waters and continued southward. That night, before they ventured east into the mountains proper, they camped by a small pond and rested their limbs. Gajvar killed another deer with his sling, this time a buck, and they both ate their fill. His hunger sated. Aragon was hunched over, mending a hole in the side of his boot, when he heard an eerie howl that set his pulse racing. He glanced around the darkened landscape, and to his alarm, he saw the silhouette of a huge beast loping around the pebble-lined shore of the pond. Kashvark, said Aragon in a low voice, and reached over to his pack and drew his falchion. Taking a fist-sized rock from the ground, the cull placed it in the leather pocket of his sling, and then rising to his full height, he opened his maw and bellowed into the night until the land rang with echoes of his defiant challenge. The beast paused, then proceeded at a slower pace, sniffing at the ground here and there. As it entered the circle of firelight, Aragon's breath caught in his throat. Standing before them was a grey-backed wolf as big as a horse, with fangs like sabres and burning yellow eyes that followed their every movement. The wolf's feet were the size of bucklers. A shrug, thought Aragon as the giant wolf circled their camp, moving almost silently despite his great bulk, Aragon thought of the elves and how they would deal with a wild animal. And in the ancient language he said, Brother wolf, we mean you no harm. Tonight our pack rests and does not hunt. 
You are welcome to share our food and the warmth of our den until morning. The shurg paused, and his ears swiveled forward while Aragon spoke in the ancient language. Firesword, what are you doing? growled Garshvark. Don't attack unless he does. The heavy-shouldered beast slowly entered their camp, the tip of his huge wet nose twitching the whole while. The wolf poked his shaggy head toward the fire, seemingly curious about the writhing flames, then moved over to the scraps of meat and viscera scattered over the ground where Garjvag had butchered the buck. Crouching, the wolf snapped up the gobbets of flesh, then rose, and without a backward glance, padded off into the depths of the night. Aragon relaxed and sheathed the falchion. Garjvag, however, remained standing where he was, his lips pulled back in a snarl, looking and listening for anything out of the ordinary in the surrounding darkness. At dawn's first light, Aragon and Garjvag left their camp, and running eastward, entered the valley that would lead them to Mount Thardor. As they passed underneath the boughs of the dense forest that guarded the interior of the mountain range, the air became noticeably cooler, and a soft bed of needles on the ground muffled their footsteps. The tall, dark, grim trees that loomed over them seemed to be watching as they made their way between the thick trunks and around the twisted roots that knuckled up out of the moist earth, standing two, three, and often four feet high. Large black squirrels scampered among the branches, chattering loudly. A thick layer of moss blanketed the corpses of trees that had fallen. Ferns and thimbleberries and other green leafy plants flourished alongside mushrooms of every shape, size, and color. The world narrowed once Aragon and Garjvag were fully inside the long valley. The gigantic mountains pressed close on either side, oppressive with their bulk and the sky was a distant, unreachable strip of sea-blue, the highest sky Aragon had ever seen. A few thin clouds grazed the shoulders of the mountains. An hour or so after noon, Aragon and Garjvag slowed as a series of terrible roars echoed among the trees. Aragon pulled his sword from its sheath, and Garjvag plucked a smooth river rock from the ground and fitted in the pocket of his sling. It is a cave bear, said Garjvag, a furious, high-pitched squeal, similar to metal scraping over metal, punctuated his statement. And Nagra, we must be careful, Firesword. They proceeded at a slow pace, and soon spotted the animals, several hundred feet up the side of a mountain. A drove of reddish boars with thick, slashing tusks milled in squealing confusion before a huge mass of silver-brown fur, hooked claws and snapping teeth that moved with deadly speed. At first, the distance fooled Aragon, but then he compared the animals to the trees next to them and realized that each boar would have dwarfed a shrug and that the bear was nearly as large as his house in Palancar Valley. The boars had blooded the cave bear's flanks, but that seemed to only enrage the beast. Rearing on his hind legs, the bear bellowed and swatted one of the boars with a massive paw, knocking it aside and tearing open its hide. Three more times the boar attempted to rise, 
and three more times the cave bear struck at it, until at last the boar gave up and lay still. As the bear bent to feed, the rest of the squealing pigs fled back under the trees, heading higher up the mountain and away from the bear. Awed by the bear's strength, Aragon followed Garjvag as the Urgle slowly walked across the bear's field of vision. Lifting his crimson snout from the belly of his kill, the bear watched them with small, beady eyes, then apparently decided they were no threat to him, and resumed eating. I think even Sephira might not be able to overcome such a monster, Aragon murmured. Garjvag uttered a small grunt. She can breathe fire. A bear cannot. Neither of them looked away from the bear until trees hid it from view, and even then they kept their weapons at readiness, not knowing what other dangers they might encounter. The day had passed into late afternoon when they became conscious of another sound. Laughter. Aragon and Garjvag halted, and then Garjvag raised a finger and with surprising stealth crept through a wall of brush toward the laughter. Placing his feet with care, Aragon went with the cull, holding his breath for fear his breathing would betray their presence. Peering through a cluster of dogwood leaves, Aragon saw that there was now a well-worn path at the bottom of the valley, and next to the path three dwarf children were playing, throwing sticks at each other and shrieking with laughter. No adults were visible. Aragon withdrew to a safe distance, exhaled, and studied the sky, where he spotted several plumes of white smoke, perhaps a mile farther up the valley. A branch snapped as Garjvag squatted next to him, so that they were about level. Garjvag said, Fire sword, here we part. You will not come to Bregan hold with me? No, my task was to keep you safe. If I go with you, the dwarves will not trust you as they should. Thardor Mountain is close at hand, and I am confident no one will dare hurt you between here and there. Aragon rubbed the back of his neck, and looked back and forth between Garjvag and the smoke east of them. Are you going to run straight back to the Varden? With a low chuckle, Garjvag said, Aye, but maybe not so fast as we did coming here. Unsure of what to say, Aragon pushed at the rotten end of a log with the tip of his boot, exposing a clutch of white larvae squirming in the tunnels they had excavated. Don't let a shurg or a bear eat you, eh? Then I would have to track down the beast and kill him, and I don't have the time for that. Garjvag pressed both his fists against his bony forehead. May your enemies cower before you, fire sword. Standing and turning, Garjvag loped away from Aragon. The forest soon hid the cull's bulky form. Aragon filled his lungs with the fresh mountain air, then pushed his way through the wall of brush. As he emerged from the thicket of brakes and dogwood, the tiny dwarf children froze, the expressions on their round-cheeked faces wary. Holding his hands out to his sides, Aragon said, I am Aragon Shadeslayer, son of Nun. I seek Oric, Thrift's son at Bregan Hold. Can you take me to him? 
When the children did not respond, he realized they understood nothing of his own language. I am a dragon rider, he said, speaking slowly and emphasizing the words. Eka edir e shortugul, shortugul, arjet lam. At that, the children's eyes brightened and their mouths formed round shapes of amazement. Arjet lam, they exclaimed. Arjet lam. And they ran over and threw themselves at him, wrapping their short arms around his legs and tugging at his clothes, shouting with merriment the entire time. Aragon stared down at them, feeling a foolish grin spread across his face. The children grasped his hands, and he allowed them to pull him down the path. Even though he could not understand, the children kept up a continuous stream of dwarvish, telling him about what he knew not but he enjoyed listening to their speech. When one of the children, a girl he thought, held her arms out toward him, he picked her up and placed her on his shoulders, wincing as she grasped fistfuls of his hair. She laughed, high and sweet, which made him smile again. Thus accoutred and accompanied, Aragon made his way toward Mount Thardor, and there to Bregenhold, and his foster brother, Oric. For my love. Roran stared at the round, flat stone he held cupped in his hands. His eyebrows met in a scowl of frustration. Stenner Riser, he growled under his breath. The stone refused to budge. What are you up to, Stronghammer? asked Khan, dropping onto the log where Roran sat. Slipping the stone into his belt, Roran accepted the bread and cheese Khan had brought him, and said, Nothing, just wool gathering. Khan nodded. Most do before a mission. As he ate, Roran allowed his gaze to drift over the men he found himself with. Their group was thirty strong, himself included. They were all hardened warriors. Everyone carried a bow, and most also wore a sword although a few chose to fight with a spear or with a mace or a hammer. Of the thirty men, he guessed that seven or eight were close to his own age, while the rest were several years older. The eldest among them was their captain, Martland Redbeard, the deposed Earl of Thune, who had seen enough winters that his famed beard had become frosted with silver hairs. When Roran had first joined Martland's command, he had presented himself to Martland in his tent. The earl was a short man, with powerful limbs from a lifetime of riding horses and wielding swords. His titular beard was thick and well-groomed, and hung to the middle of his sternum. After looking Roran over, the earl had said, Lady Nasawada has told me great things about you, my boy, and I have heard much else from the stories my men tell. Rumours, gossip, hearsay, and the like. You know how it is. No doubt you have accomplished notable feats. Bearding the Razak in their own den, for example. Now there was a tricky piece of work. Of course you had your cousin to help you, didn't you, hmm? You may be accustomed to having your way with the people from your village, but you are part of the Varden now, my boy. More specifically, you are one of my warriors. We are not your family. We are not your neighbors. 
We are not even necessarily your friends. Our duty is to carry out Nasawada's orders, and carry them out we will, no matter how any one of us might feel about it. While you serve under me, you will do what I tell you, when I tell you, and how I tell you, or I swear upon the bones of my blessed mother, may she rest in peace, I will personally whip the skin off your back, no matter to whom you may be related. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Very good. If you behave yourself and show you have some common sense, and if you can manage to stay alive, it is possible for a man of determination to advance quickly among the Varden. Whether you do or not, however, depends entirely on if I deem you fit to command men of your own. But don't you believe, not for one moment, not one blasted moment, that you can flatter me into a good opinion of you. I don't care whether you like or hate me. My only concern is whether you can do what needs to be done. I understand perfectly, sir. Yes, well, maybe you do at that, Stronghammer. We shall know soon enough. Leave, and report to Ulhart, my right-hand man. Roran swallowed the last of his bread and washed it down with a swig of wine from the skin he carried. He wished they could have had a hot dinner that night, but they were deep in the Empire's territory and soldiers might have spotted a fire. With a sigh, he stretched out his legs. His knees were sore from riding snowfire from dusk until dawn for the past three days. In the back of his mind, Roran felt a faint but constant pressure, a mental itch that night or day pointed him in the same direction, the direction of Katrina. The source of the sensation was the ring Aragon had given him, and it was a comfort to Roran, knowing that because of it, he and Katrina could find each other anywhere in Allegasia, even if they were both blind and deaf. Beside him, he heard Khan muttering phrases in the ancient language, and he smiled. Khan was their spellcaster, sent to ensure that an enemy magician could not kill them all with a wave of his hand. From some of the other men, Roran had gathered that Khan was not a particularly strong magician. He struggled to cast every spell, but that he compensated for his weakness by inventing extraordinarily clever spells and by excelling at worming his way into his opponent's minds. Khan was thin of face and thin of body, with drooping eyes and a nervous, excitable air. Roran had taken an immediate liking to him. Across from Roran, two of the men, Halmar and Firth, were sitting in front of their tent, and Halmar was telling Firth, so when the soldiers came for him, he pulled all his men inside his estate and set fire to the pools of oil his servants had poured earlier, trapping the soldiers and making it appear to those who came later as if the whole lot of them had burned to death. Can you believe it? Five hundred soldiers he killed at one go, without even drawing a blade. How did he escape? Firth asked. Redbeard's grandfather was a cunning bastard, he was. He had a tunnel dug all the way from the family hall to the nearest river. With it, Redbeard was able to get his family and all their servants out alive. He took them to Serda then, where King Larkin sheltered them. It was quite a number of years before Galbatorix learned they were still alive. We're lucky to be under Redbeard, to be sure. 
he's lost only two battles, and those because of magic. Halmar fell silent as Ulhart stepped into the middle of the row of sixteen tents. The grim-faced veteran stood with his legs spread, immovable as a deep-rooted oak tree, and surveyed the tents, checking that everyone was present. He said, Sun's down, get to sleep. We ride out two hours before first light. Convoy should be seven miles northwest of us. Make good time, we strike just as they start moving. Kill everyone, burn everything, and we go back. You know how it goes. Strong hammer, you ride with me. Mess up, and I'll gut you with a dull fishhook. The men chuckled. Right, get to sleep. Wind whipped Roran's face. The thunder of pulsing blood filled his ears, drowning out every other sound. Snowfire surged between his legs, galloping. Roran's vision had narrowed. He saw nothing but the two soldiers sitting on brown mares next to the second-to-last wagon of the supply train. Raising his hammer overhead, Roran howled with all his might. The two soldiers started and fumbled with their weapons and shields. One of them dropped his spear and bent to recover it. Pulling on Snowfire's reins to slow him, Roran stood upright in his stirrups and, drawing abreast of the first soldier, struck him on the shoulder, splitting his male hauberk. The man screamed, his arm going limp. Roran finished him off with a backhand blow. The other soldier had retrieved his spear and he jabbed at Roran, aiming at his neck. Roran ducked behind his round shield, the spear jarring him each time it buried itself in the wood. He pressed his legs against Snowfire's sides, and the stallion reared, neighing and pawing at the air with iron-shod hooves. One hoof caught the soldier in the chest, tearing his red tunic. As Snowfire dropped to all fours again, Roran swung his hammer sideways and crushed the man's throat. Leaving the soldier thrashing on the ground, Roran spurred Snowfire toward the next wagon in the convoy, where Ulhart was battling three soldiers of his own. Four oxen pulled each wagon and as Snowfire passed the wagon Roran had just captured, the lead ox tossed his head, and the tip of his left horn caught Roran in the lower part of his right leg. Roran gasped. He felt as if a red-hot iron had been laid against his shin. He glanced down and saw a flap of his boot hanging loose, along with a layer of his skin and muscle. With another battle cry, Roran rode up to the closest of the three soldiers Ulhart was fighting and felled him with a single swipe of his hammer. The next man evaded Roran's subsequent attack, then turned his horse and galloped away. Get him! Ulhart shouted. But Roran was already in pursuit. The fleeing soldier dug his spurs into the belly of his horse until the animal bled, but despite his desperate cruelty, his steed could not outrun Snowfire. Roran bent low over Snowfire's neck as the stallion extended himself, flying over the ground with incredible speed. Realizing flight was hopeless, the soldier reined in his mount, wheeled about, and slashed at Roran with a saber. Roran lifted his hammer and barely managed to deflect the razor-sharp blade. He immediately retaliated with a looping overhead attack, but the soldier parried and then slashed at Roran's arms and legs twice more. In his mind, Roran cursed. The soldier was obviously more experienced with swordplay than he was. If he could not win the engagement in the next few seconds, the soldier would kill him. 
The soldier must have sensed his advantage, for he pressed the attack, forcing Snowfire to prance backward. On three occasions, Roran was sure the soldier was about to wound him, but the man's sabre twisted at the last moment and missed Roran, diverted by an unseen force. Roran was thankful for Aragon's wards then. Having no other recourse, Roran resorted to the unexpected. He stuck his head and neck out and shouted, Bah! just as he would if he were trying to scare someone in a dark hallway. The soldier flinched, and as he flinched, Roran leaned over and brought his hammer down on the man's left knee. The man's face went white with pain. Before he could recover, Roran struck him in the small of his back, and then as the soldier screamed and arched his spine, Roran ended his misery with a quick blow to the head. Roran sat panting for a moment, then tugged on Snowfire's reins and spurred him into a canter as they returned to the convoy. His eyes darting from place to place, drawn by any flicker of motion, Roran took stock of the battle. Most of the soldiers were already dead, as were the men who had been driving the wagons. By the lead wagon, Khan stood facing a tall man in robes, the two of them rigid except for occasional twitches, the only sign of their invisible duel. Even as Roran watched, Khan's opponent pitched forward and lay motionless on the ground. By the middle of the convoy, however, five enterprising soldiers had cut the oxen loose from three wagons and had pulled the wagons into a triangle, from within which they were able to hold off Martland Redbeard and ten other Varden. Four of the soldiers poked spears between the wagons, while the fifth fired arrows at the Varden, forcing them to retreat behind the nearest wagon for cover. The archer had already wounded several of the Varden, some of whom had fallen off their horses, others of whom had kept their saddles long enough to find cover. Roran frowned. They could not afford to linger out in the open on one of the Empire's main roads while they slowly picked off the entrenched soldiers. Time was against them. All the soldiers were facing west, the direction from which the Varden had attacked. Aside from Roran, none of the Varden had crossed to the other side of the convoy. Thus the soldiers were unaware that he was bearing down on them from the east. A plan occurred to Roran. In any other circumstances he would have dismissed it as ludicrous and impractical, but as it was, he accepted the plan as the only course of action that could resolve the standoff without further delay. He did not bother to consider the danger to himself. He had abandoned all fear of death and injury the moment their charge had begun. Roran urged Snowfire into a full gallop. He placed his left hand on the front of his saddle, edged his boots almost out of the stirrups, and gathered his muscles in preparation. When Snowfire was fifty feet away from the triangle of wagons, he pressed downward with his hand and, lifting himself, placed his feet on the saddle and stood crouched on Snowfire. It took all his skill and concentration to maintain his balance. As Roran had expected, Snowfire lessened his speed and started to veer to the side as the cluster of wagons loomed large before them. Roran released the reins just as Snowfire turned and jumped off the horse's back, leaping high over the east-facing wagon of the triangle. His stomach lurched. He caught a glimpse of the archer's upturned face, the soldier's eyes round and edged with white, then slammed into the man, and they both crashed to the ground. Roran landed on top, the soldier's body cushioning his fall. Pushing himself onto his knees, 
Roran raised his shield and drove its rim through the gap between the soldier's helm and his tunic, breaking his neck. Then Roran shoved himself upright. The other four soldiers were slow to react. The one to Roran's left made the mistake of trying to pull his spear inside the triangle of wagons, but in his haste he wedged the spear between the rear of one wagon and the front wheel of another, and the shaft splintered in his hands. Roran lunged toward him. The soldier tried to retreat, but the wagons blocked his way. Swinging the hammer in an underhand blow, Roran caught the soldier beneath his chin. The second soldier was smarter. He let go of his spear and reached for the sword at his belt, but only succeeded in drawing the blade halfway out of the sheath before Roran staved in his chest. The third and fourth soldiers were ready for Roran by then. They converged on him, naked blades outstretched, snarls on their faces. Roran tried to sidestep them, but his torn leg failed him, and he stumbled and fell to one knee. The closest soldier slashed downward. With his shield, Roran blocked the blow, then dove forward and crushed the soldier's foot with the flat end of his hammer. Cursing, the soldier toppled to the ground. Roran promptly smashed the soldier's face, then flipped onto his back, knowing that the last soldier was directly behind him. Roran froze. His arms and legs splayed to either side. The soldier stood over him, holding his sword extended, the tip of the gleaming blade less than an inch away from Roran's throat. So this is how it ends, thought Roran. Then a thick arm appeared around the soldier's neck, yanking him backward, and the soldier uttered a choked cry as a sword blade sprouted from the middle of his chest, along with a spray of blood. The soldier collapsed into a limp pile, and in his place there stood Martland Redbeard. The earl was breathing heavily, and his beard and chest were splattered with gore. Martland stuck his sword in the dirt, leaned on the pommel, and surveyed the carnage within the triangle of wagons. He nodded. You'll do, I think. Roran sat on the end of a wagon, biting his tongue as Khan cut off the rest of his boot. Trying to ignore the stabs of agony from his leg, Roran gazed up at the vultures circling overhead, and concentrated on memories of his home in Palankar Valley. He grunted as Khan probed especially deep into the gash. Sorry, said Khan, I have to inspect the wound. Roran kept staring at the vultures and did not answer. After a minute, Khan uttered a number of words in the ancient language, and a few seconds later, the pain in Roran's leg subsided to a dull ache. Looking down, Roran saw his leg was whole once more. The effort of healing Roran and the two other men before him had left Khan grey-faced and shaking. The magician slumped against the wagon, wrapping his arms around his middle, his expression queasy. Are you all right? Roran asked. Khan lifted his shoulders in a minuscule shrug. I just need a moment to recover. The ox scratched the outer bone of your lower leg. I repaired the scratch, but I didn't have the strength to completely heal the rest of your injury. I stitched together your skin and muscles so it won't bleed or pain you over much, but only lightly. The flesh there won't hold much more than your weight. 
Not until it mends on its own, that is. How long will that take? A week? Perhaps two? Roran pulled on the remains of his boot. Aragon cast wards around me to protect me from injury. They saved my life several times today. Why didn't they protect me from the ox's horn, though? I don't know, Roran, Khan said, sighing. No one can prepare for every eventuality. That's one reason magic is so perilous. If you overlook a single facet of a spell, it may do nothing but weaken you. Or worse, it may do some horrible thing you never intended. It happens to even the best magicians. There must be a flaw in your cousin's wards, a misplaced word or a poorly reasoned statement that allowed the ox to gore you. Easing himself off the wagon, Roran limped toward the head of the convoy, assessing the result of the battle. Five of the Varden had been wounded during the fighting, including himself, and two others had died. One, a man Roran had barely met, the other, Firth, whom he had spoken with on several occasions. Of the soldiers and the men who steered the wagons, none remained alive. Roran paused by the first two soldiers he had killed and studied their corpses. His saliva turned bitter and his gut roiled with revulsion. Now I have killed... I don't know how many. He realized that during the madness of the Battle of the Burning Plains he had lost count of the number of men he had slain. That he had sent so many to their deaths he could not remember the full number unsettled him. Must I slaughter entire fields of men in order to regain what the Empire stole from me? An even more disconcerting thought occurred to him. And if I do, how could I return to Palancar Valley and live in peace when my soul was stained black with the blood of hundreds? Closing his eyes, Roran consciously relaxed all the muscles in his body, seeking to calm himself. I kill for my love. I kill for my love of Katrina and for my love of Aragon and everyone from Carvajal and also for my love of the Varden and my love of this land of ours. For my love, I will wade through an ocean of blood even if it destroys me. Never seen the likes of that before, Stronghammer, said Ulhart. Roran opened his eyes to find the grizzled warrior standing in front of him holding Snowfire by the reins. No one else crazy enough to try a trick like that, jumping over the wagons. None that lived to tell the tale, no doubt. Good job, that. Watch yourself, though. Can't go around leaping off horses and taking on five men yourself and expect to see another summer, eh? Bit of caution, if you're wise. I'll keep that in mind, said Roran as he accepted Snowfire's reins from Ulhart. In the minutes since Roran had disposed of the last of the soldiers, the uninjured warriors had been going to each of the wagons in the convoy, cutting open their bundles of cargo and reporting the contents to Martland, who recorded what they found, so Nasawada could study the information and perhaps gather from it some indication of Galbatorix's plans. Roran watched as the men examined the last few wagons, which contained bags of wheat and stacks of uniforms. That finished, the men slit the throats of the remaining oxen, soaking the road with blood. 
Killing the beasts bothered Roran, but he understood the importance of denying them to the Empire, and would have wielded the knife himself if asked. They would have taken the oxen back to the Varden, but the animals were too slow and cumbersome. The soldiers' horses, however, could keep pace as they fled enemy territory, so they captured as many as they could and tied them behind their own steeds. Then one of the men took a resin-soaked torch from his saddlebags, and after a few seconds of work with his flint and steel, lit it. Riding up and down the convoy, he pressed the torch against each wagon until it caught fire, and then tossed the torch into the back of the last wagon. Mount up! shouted Martland. Roran's leg throbbed as he pulled himself onto Snowfire. He spurred the stallion over next to Khan, as the surviving men assembled on their steeds in a double line behind Martland. The horses snorted and pawed at the ground, impatient to put distance between themselves and the fire. Martland started forward at a swift trot, and the rest of the group followed, leaving behind them the line of burning wagons, like so many glowing beads strung out upon the lonely road. A Forest of Stone A cheer went up from the crowd. Aragon was sitting in the wooden stands that the dwarves had built along the base of the outer ramparts of Bregan Hold. The hold sat on a rounded shoulder of Thardo Mountain, over a mile above the floor of the mist-laden valley, and from it one could see for leagues in either direction, or until the ridged mountains obscured the view. Like Trondheim and the other dwarf cities Aragon had visited, Bregenhold was made entirely of quarried stone, in this case a reddish granite that lent a sense of warmth to the rooms and corridors within. The hold itself was a thick, solid building that rose five stories to an open bell tower, which was topped by a teardrop of glass that was as large around as two dwarves and was held in place by four granite ribs that joined together to form a pointed capstone. The teardrop, as Oric had told Aragon, was a larger version of the dwarves' flameless lanterns, and during notable occasions or emergencies, it could be used to illuminate the entire valley with a golden light. The dwarves called it Aj Sindri's Narval, or the Gem of Sindri. Clustered around the flanks of the hold were numerous outbuildings, living quarters for the servants and warriors of Durgrimstingetum, as well as other structures, such as stables, forges, and a church devoted to Morgothal, the dwarves' god of fire and their patron god of smiths. Below the high, smooth walls of Bregenhold were dozens of farms scattered about clearings in the forest, coils of smoke drifting up from the stone houses. All that and more Oric had shown and explained to Aragon after the three dwarf children had escorted Aragon into the courtyard of Bregenhold, shouting, Hajitlam! to everyone within earshot. Oric had greeted Aragon like a brother, and then had taken him to the baths, and when he was clean, saw to it that he was garbed in a robe of deep purple, with a gold circlet for his brow. Afterward, Oric surprised Aragon by introducing him to Havedra, a bright-eyed, apple-faced dwarf woman with long hair, and proudly announcing that they had been married but two days past. 
While Aragon expressed his astonishment and congratulations, Oryk shifted from foot to foot before replying, It pained me that you were not able to attend the ceremony, Aragon. I had one of our spellcasters contact Nasuada, and I asked her if she would give you and Sephira my invitation, but she refused to mention it to you. She feared the offer might distract you from the task at hand. I cannot blame her, but I wish that this war would have allowed you to be at our wedding and us at your cousin's, for we are all related now, by law if not by blood. In her thick accent, Havedra said, Please consider me as your kin now, Shade Slayer. So long as it is within mine power, you shall always be treated as family at Bregenhold, and you may claim sanctuary of us whenever you need, even if it is Galbatorix who hunts you. Aragon bowed, touched by her offer. You are most kind. Then he asked, If you don't mind my curiosity, why did you and Oric choose to marry now? We had planned to join hands this spring, but... But, Oric continued in his gruff manner, the Urgles attacked Farthandur, and then Hrothgar sent me traipsing off with you to Elismira. When I returned here, and the families of the clan accepted me as their new Grimesborith, we thought it the perfect time to consummate our betrothal and become husband and wife. None of us may survive the year, so why tarry? So you did become clan chief, Aragon said. Aye, choosing the next leader of Durgrimst in Jeetum was a contentious business. We were hard at it for over a week, but in the end, most of the families agreed that I should follow in Hrothgar's footsteps and inherit his position since I was his only named heir. Now Aragon sat next to Oric and Vedra, devouring the bread and mutton the dwarves had brought him, and watching the contest taking place in front of the stands. It was customary, Oric had said, for a dwarf family, if they had the gold, to stage games for the entertainment of their wedding guests. Hrothgar's family was so wealthy, the current games had already lasted for three days and were scheduled to continue for another four. The games consisted of many events, wrestling, archery, swordsmanship, feats of strength, and the current event, the Gastgar. From opposite ends of a grassy field, two dwarves rode toward each other on white Feldunost, the horned mountain goats bounded across the sward, each leap over seventy feet long. The dwarf on the right had a small buckler strapped to his left arm, but carried no weapons. The dwarf on the left had no shield, but in his right hand he held a javelin poised to throw. Eragon held his breath as the distance between the Feldenost narrowed. When they were less than thirty feet apart, the dwarf with the spear whipped his arm through the air and launched the missile at his opponent. The other dwarf did not cover himself with his shield, but rather reached out and with amazing dexterity caught the spear by the shaft. He brandished it over his head. The crowd gathered around the lists let out a resounding cheer, which Aragon joined in, clapping vigorously. That was skillfully done, 
exclaimed Oric. He laughed and drained his tankard of mead, his polished coat of mail sparkling in the early evening light. He wore a helm embellished with gold, silver, and rubies, and on his fingers five large rings. At his waist hung his ever-present axe. Avedra was attired even more richly, with strips of embroidered cloth upon her sumptuous dress, strands of pearls and twisted gold around her neck, and in her hair an ivory comb set with an emerald as large as Aragon's thumb. A line of dwarves stood and winded a set of curved horns, the brassy notes echoing off the mountains. Then a barrel-chested dwarf stepped forward, and in dwarvish announced the winner of the last contest, as well as the names of the next pair to compete in the Gastgar. When the Master of Ceremonies finished speaking, Aragon bent over and asked, Will you be accompanying us to Farthendur, Havedra? She shook her head and smiled widely. I cannot. I must stay here and tend to the affairs of the Injitum while Oric is gone, so he does not return to find our warriors starving and all our gold spent. Chuckling, Oric held out his tankard toward one of the servants, standing several yards away. As the dwarf hurried over and refilled it with mead from a pitcher, Oric said to Aragon with obvious pride, Havedra does not boast. She is not only my wife, she is the... Ah, you have no word for it. She is the Grimst Carvlors of Der Grimst in Jitam. Grimst Carvlors means the keeper of the house, the arranger of the house. It is her duty to ensure that the families of our clan pay their agreed-upon tithes to Bregenhold, that our herds are driven to the proper fields at the proper times, that our stocks of feed and grain do not fall too low, that the women of the Injitum weave enough fabric, that our warriors are well equipped, that our smiths always have ore to smelt into iron, and in short, that our clan is well managed and will prosper and thrive. There is a saying among our people, a good Grimst Kavlos can make a clan, and a bad Grimst Kavlos will destroy a clan, said Havedra. Oric smiled and clasped one of her hands in his. And Havedra is the best of Grimst Kavlosen. It is not an inherited title. You must prove that you are worthy of the post if you are to hold it. It is rare for the wife of a Grimstborith to be Grimst Kavlos as well. I am most fortunate in that regard. Bending their heads together, he and Havedra rubbed noses. Aragon glanced away, feeling lonely and excluded. Leaning back, Oric took a draught of mead, then said, There have been many famous Grimst Kavlosen in our history. It is often said that the only thing we clan leaders are good for is declaring war on each other, and that the Grimst Kavlorsen prefer we spend our time squabbling among ourselves so we do not have the time to interfere in the workings of the clan. <laughs> Come now, skilled Stelva, chided Vedra. You know that is not truth. 
or it shall not be truth with us. Mmm, said Oric, and touched his forehead to Havedra's. They rubbed noses again. Aragon returned his attention to the crowd below as it erupted in a frenzy of hissing and jeering. He saw that one of the dwarves competing in the Gastgar had lost his nerve and at the last moment had yanked his Feldunost off to one side and even then was attempting to flee his opponent. The dwarf with the javelin pursued him twice around the lists. When they were close enough, he rose up in his stirrups and cast the spear, striking the cowardly dwarf in the back of his left shoulder. With a howl, the dwarf fell off his steed and lay on his side, clutching at the blade and shaft embedded in his flesh. A healer rushed toward him. After a moment, everyone turned their backs on the spectacle. Oryx's upper lip curved with disgust. It will be many years before his family is able to erase the stain of their son's dishonor. I am sorry you have had to witness this contemptible act, Aragon. It's never enjoyable watching someone shame themselves. The three of them sat in silence through the next two contests. Then Oryx startled Aragon by grasping him by the shoulder and asking, How would you like to see a forest of stone, Aragon? No such thing exists, unless it is carved. Oryx shook his head, his eyes twinkling. It is not carved, and it does exist. So I ask again, would you like to see a forest of stone? If you were not jesting, yes, I would. Ah, I am glad you accept it. I do not jest, and I promise you that tomorrow you and I shall walk among trees of granite. It is one of the wonders of the Beor Mountains. Everyone who is a guest of Durgrimstingetum should have an opportunity to visit it. The following morning, Aragon rose from his too small bed in his stone room with its low ceiling and half-sized furniture washed his face in a basin of cold water, and out of habit, reached with his mind towards Sephira. He felt only the thoughts of the dwarves and the animals in and around the hold. Aragon faltered and leaned forward, gripping the rim of the basin, overcome by his sense of isolation. He remained in that position, unable to move or think, until his vision turned crimson and flashing spots floated in front of his eyes. With a gasp, he exhaled and refilled his lungs. I missed her during the trip from Hellgrind, he thought, but at least I knew I was returning to her as fast as I could. Now I am travelling away from her, and I do not know when we will be reunited. Shaking himself, he dressed and made his way through the winding corridors of Bregenhold, bowing to the dwarves he passed, who for their part greeted him with energetic reiterations of Hajitlam. He found Oric and twelve other dwarves in the courtyard of the hold, saddling a line of sturdy ponies, whose breath formed white plumes in the cold air. Aragon felt like a giant as the short, burly men moved about him. Oric hailed him. We have a donkey in our stables, if you would like to ride. No, I'll continue on foot, if it's all the same to you. Oryk shrugged. 
As you wish. When they were ready to depart, Havedra descended the broad stone steps from the entrance to the main hall of Bregenhold, her dress trailing behind her, and presented to Oric an ivory horn clad with gold filigree around the mouth and bell. She said, This was mine father's when he rode with Grimesborith Aldrim. I give it to you so you may remember me in the days to come. She said more in Dwarvish, so softly Aragon could not hear, and then she and Oric touched foreheads. Straightening in his saddle, Oric placed the horn to his lips and winded it. A deep, rousing note rang forth, increasing in volume until the air within the courtyard seemed to vibrate like a wind-sword rope. A pair of black ravens rose from the tower above, cawing. The sound of the horn made Aragon's blood tingle. He shifted in place, eager to be gone. Lifting the horn over his head, and with a final look at Havedra, Oric spurred his pony forward, trotted out of the main gates of Bregenhold and turned east, toward the head of the valley. Aragon and the twelve other dwarves followed close behind. For three hours they followed a well-worn trail across the side of Thardor Mountain, climbing ever higher above the valley floor. The dwarves drove the ponies as fast as they could without injuring the animals, but their pace was still only a fraction of Aragon's speed when he was free to run unchecked. Although he was frustrated, Aragon refrained from complaining, for he realized that it was inevitable he would have to travel slower with any but elves or cull. He shivered and pulled his cloak closer around himself. The sun had yet to appear over the Beor Mountains, and a damp chill pervaded the valley, even though noon was only a few hours away. Then they came upon a flat expanse of granite over a thousand feet wide, bordered on the right by a slanting cliff of naturally formed octagonal pillars. Curtains of shifting mist obscured the far end of the stone field. Oric raised a hand and said, Behold, Ajnur Drathen! Aragon frowned. Stare as he might, he could discern nothing of interest in the barren location. I see no forest of stone. Clambering down from his pony, Oric handed the reins to the warrior behind him and said, Walk with me, if you would, Aragon. Together they strode toward the twisting bank of fog, Aragon shortening his steps to match Oric's. The mist kissed Aragon's face, cool and moist. The vapor became so thick that it obscured the rest of the valley enveloping them in a featureless grey landscape where even up and down seemed arbitrary. Undaunted, Oric proceeded with a confident gait. Aragon, however, felt disoriented and slightly unsteady, and he walked with a hand held out in front of him in case he should bump into anything hidden within the fog. Oric stopped at the edge of a thin crack that defaced the granite they stood on, and said, What see you now? Squinting, Aragon swept his gaze back and forth, but the fog seemed as monotonous as ever. He opened his mouth to say as much, but then noticed a slight irregularity in the texture of the mist to his right, a faint pattern of light and dark that held its shape even while the mist drifted past. He became aware of other areas that were static as well, strange abstract patches of contrast that formed no recognizable objects.
I don't, he started to say, when a breath of wind ruffled his hair. Under the gentle encouragement of the newborn breeze, the fog thinned, and the disjointed patterns of shade resolved into the boles of large, ash-coloured trees with bare and broken limbs. Dozens of the trees surrounded him and Oric, the pale skeletons of an ancient forest. Aragon pressed his palm against a trunk. The bark was as cold and hard as a boulder. Blotches of pallid lichen clung to the surface of the tree. The back of Aragon's neck prickled. Although he did not consider himself overly superstitious, the ghostly mist and the eerie half-light, and the appearance of the trees themselves, grim and foreboding and mysterious, ignited a spark of fear inside of him. He wet his lips and asked, How did these come to be? Oric shrugged. Some claim that Guntera must have placed them here when he created Alagasia out of nothingness. Others claim Hellsfog made them, for stone is his favourite element, and would not the god of stone have trees of stone for his garden? And still others say no, that once these were trees like any others, and a great catastrophe eons ago must have buried them in the ground, and that over time wood became dirt, and dirt became stone. Is that possible? Only the gods know for certain. Who besides them can hope to understand the whys and wherefores of the world? Oryx shifted his position. Our ancestors discovered the first of the trees while quarrying granite here over a thousand years ago. The then Grimstborith of Durgrimst in Jeetum, Valmar Lackhand, stopped the mining and instead had his masons chisel out the trees from the surrounding stone. When they had excavated nigh on fifty trees, Valmar realized that there might be hundreds or even thousands of stone trees entombed within the side of Mount Thador, and so he ordered his men to abandon the project. This place, however, captured the imagination of our race, and ever since, Nurlan from every clan have travelled here and laboured to extricate more trees from the grip of the granite. There are even Nurlan who have dedicated their lives to the task. It has also become a tradition to send troublesome offspring here, to chisel out a tree or two while under the supervision of a master mason. That sounds tedious. It gives them time to repent of their ways. With one hand, Oryx stroked his braided beard. I spent some months here myself when I was a rambunctious lad of four and thirty. And did you repent of your ways? Better no. It was too tedious. After all those weeks, I had freed only a single branch from the granite, so I ran away and fell in with a group of Vrenshurgen. Dwarfs from the clan Vrenshurgen? Yes, Nurlan of the clan Vrenshurgen. War wolves, wolves of war, however you might say it in this tongue. I fell in with them, became drunk on ale, and as they were hunting Nagran, 
decided that I too should kill a boar and bring it to Hrothgar to appease his anger at me. It wasn't the wisest thing I have done. Even our most skilled warriors fear to hunt Nagran, and I was still more boy than man. Once my mind cleared, I cursed myself for a fool, but I had sworn I would, so I had no choice but to fulfill my oath. When Oric paused, Aragon asked, What happened? Oh, I killed Anagra, with help from the Vrenshurgan, but the boar gored me in the shoulder and tossed me into the branches of a nearby tree. The Vrenshurgan had to carry the both of us, the Nagra and me, back to Bregenhold. The boar pleased Hrothgar, and I, I, despite the ministrations of our best healers, I had to spend the next month resting in bed, which Hrothgar said was punishment enough for defying his orders. Aragon watched the dwarf for a while. You miss him. Oric stood for a moment with his chin tucked against his stocky chest. Lifting his axe, he struck the granite with the end of the haft, producing a sharp clack that echoed among the trees. It has been nigh on two centuries since the last Der Grimstvoren. The last clan war racked our nation, Aragon. But by Morgothol's black beard, we stand on the brink of another one now. Now? Of all times? exclaimed Aragon, appalled. Is it really that bad? Oryx scowled. It is worse. Tensions between the clans are higher than they have ever been in living memory. Hrothgar's death and Nasawada's invasion of the Empire have served to inflame passions, aggravate old rivalries, and lend strength to those who believe it is folly to cast our lot with the Varden. How can they believe that, when Galbatorix has already attacked Trondheim with the Urgles? Because, said Oric, they are convinced it is impossible to defeat Galbatorix, and their argument holds much sway with our people. Can you honestly tell me, Aragon, that if Galbatorix were to confront you and Sephira this very instant, that the two of you could best him? Aragon's throat tightened. No, I thought not. Those who are opposed to the Varden have blinded themselves to Galbatorix's threat. They say that if we had refused shelter to the Varden, if we had not accepted you and Sephira into fair Tronsheim, then Galbatorix would have had no reason to make war on us. They say that if we just keep to ourselves and remain hidden in our caves and tunnels, we shall have nothing to fear from Galbatorix. They do not realize that Galbatorix's hunger for power is insatiable, and that he will not rest until all of Alagasia lies at his feet. Oric shook his head, and the muscles in his forearms bunched and knotted as he pinched the axe blade between his wide fingers. I will not allow our race to cower in tunnels like frightened rabbits until the wolf outside digs his way in and eats us all. We must continue.
continue fighting out of the hope that somehow we can find a way to kill Galbatorix. And I will not allow our nation to disintegrate into a clan war. With circumstances as they are, another Der Grimstfren would destroy our civilization and possibly doom the Varden as well. His jaw set, Oric turned toward Aragon. For the good of my people, I intend to seek the throne myself. Dor Grimston Gedthral, Ledwonu, and Nagra have already pledged their support to me. However, there are many who stand between me and the crown. It will not be easy to garner enough votes to become king. I need to know, Eragon. Will you back me in this? Crossing his arms, Aragon walked from one tree to the next and then back again. If I do, my support might turn the other clans against you. Not only will you be asking your people to ally themselves with the Varden, you will be asking them to accept a dragon rider as one of their own, which they have never done before, and I doubt they will want to now. Aye, it may turn some against me, said Oric but it may also gain me the votes of others. Let me be the judge of that. All I wish to know is, will you back me? Aragon, why do you hesitate? Aragon stared at a gnarled root that rose out of the granite by his feet, avoiding Oric's eyes. You are concerned about the good of your people, and rightly so. But my concerns are broader. They encompass the good of the Varden and the elves and everyone else who opposes Galbatorix. If, if it is not likely you can win the crown, and there is another clan chief who could, and who is not unsympathetic to the Varden, no one would be a more sympathetic Grimston's Boreth than I. I'm not questioning your friendship, Aragon protested. But if what I said came to pass, and my support might ensure that such a clan chief won the throne, for the good of your people and for the good of the rest of Alagasia, shouldn't I back the dwarf who has the best chance of succeeding? In a deadly, quiet voice, Oryx said, You swore a blood oath on the Nurnine, Eragon. By every law of our realm, you are a member of Der Grimst in Jeetum, no matter how greatly others may disapprove. What Hrothgar did by adopting you has no precedent in all of our history, and it cannot be undone unless, as Grimst Borith, I banish you from our clan. If you turn against me, Aragon, you will shame me in front of our entire race, and none will ever trust my leadership again. Moreover, you will prove to your detractors that we cannot trust a dragon rider. Clan members do not betray each other to other clans, Aragon. It is not done, not unless you wish to wake up one night with a dagger buried in your heart. Are you threatening me? asked Aragon just as quietly. Oryx swore and banged his axe against the granite again. No! I would never lift a hand against you, Aragon. 
You are my foster brother. You are the only rider free of Galbatorix's influence, and blast it if I have not become fond of you during our travels together. But even though I would not harm you, that does not mean the rest of the Injitum would be so forbearing. I say that not as a threat, but as a statement of fact. You must understand this, Aragon. If the clan hears you have given your support to another, I may not be able to restrain them. Even though you are our guest and the rules of hospitality protect you, if you speak out against the Injitum, the clan will see you as having betrayed them, and it is not our custom to allow traitors to remain within our midst. Do you understand me, Aragon? What do you expect of me? shouted Aragon. He flung his arms outward and paced back and forth in front of Oric. I swore an oath to Nasawada as well, and those were the orders she gave me. And you also pledged yourself to Durgrimst in Cheatham, roared Oric. Aragon stopped and stared at the dwarf. Would you have me doom all of Alagasia just so you can maintain your standing among the clans? Do not insult me! Then don't ask the impossible of me! I will back you if it seems likely you can ascend to the throne, and if not, then I won't. You worry about Durgrimstingetum and your race as a whole, while it is my duty to worry about them and all of Alagasia as well. Aragon slumped against the cold trunk of a tree. And I cannot afford to offend you or your, I mean, our clan, or the rest of dwarfdom. In a kinder tone, Oric said, There is another way, Aragon. It would be more difficult for you but it would resolve your quandary. Oh, what wondrous solution would this be? Sliding his axe back under his belt, Oric walked over to Aragon, grasped him by the forearms, and gazed up at him through bushy eyebrows. Trust me to do the right thing, Aragon Shadeslayer. Give me the same loyalty you would if you were indeed born of Durgrimstingetum. Those under me would never presume to speak out against their own Grimstborith in favor of another clan. If a Grimstborith strikes the rock wrong, it is his responsibility alone. But that does not mean I am oblivious to your concerns. He glanced down for a moment, then said, If I cannot be king, trust me not to be so blinded by the prospect of power that I cannot recognize when my bid has failed. If that should happen, not that I believe it shall, then I will of my own volition lend my support to one of the other candidates, for I have no more desire than you to see a Grimstons Borith elected who is hostile to the Varden. And if I should help promote another to the throne, the status and prestige I will place at the service of that clan chief shall of its very nature include your own 
since you are in Jetum, will you trust me, Aragon? Will you accept me as your Grimstporeth, as the rest of my hall-sworn subjects do? Aragon groaned, and leaned his head against the rough tree and peered up at the crooked bone-white branches wreathed in mist. Trust! Of all the things Oric could have asked of him, that was the most difficult to grant. Aragon liked Oric, but to subordinate himself to the dwarf's authority when so much was at stake would be to relinquish even more of his freedom, a prospect he loathed. And along with his freedom he would also be relinquishing part of his responsibility for the fate of Alagazia. Aragon felt as if he were hanging off the edge of a precipice, and Oric was trying to convince him there was a ledge only a few feet below him, but Aragon could not bring himself to release his grip, for fear he would fall to his doom. He said, I would not be a mindless servant for you to order about. When it came to matters of Durgrimstingetum, I would defer to you, but in all else you would have no hold over me. Oric nodded his face serious. I'm not worried about what mission Nasuada might send you on, nor whom you might kill while fighting the Empire. No. What gives me restless nights when I ought to be sleeping sound as Argon in his cave is imagining you attempting to influence the clan meets voting. Your intentions are noble, I know, but noble or not, you are unfamiliar with our politics, no matter how well Nasawada may have schooled you. This is mine area of expertise, Aragon. Let me conduct it in the manner I deem appropriate. It is what Hrothgar groomed me for my entire life. Aragon sighed, and with a sensation of falling, he said, very well. I will do as you think best about the succession. Grimstboreth Oric. A broad smile spread across Oric's face. He tightened his grip on Aragon's forearms, then released him, saying, Ah, thank you, Aragon. You don't know what this means to me. It is good of you, very good of you, and I won't forget it. Not if I live to be two hundred years old and my beard grows so long it drags in the dirt. Despite himself, Aragon chuckled. Well, I hope it doesn't grow that long. You would trip over it all the time. Perhaps I would at that, said Oric, laughing. Besides, I rather think Hevedra would cut it short once it reached my knees. She has very definite opinions about the proper length of a beard. Oric led the way as the two of them departed the forest of stone trees, striding through the colorless mist that swirled among the calcified trunks. They rejoined Oric's twelve warriors, then began to descend the side of Mount Fardor. At the bottom of the valley, they continued in a straight line to the other side, and there the dwarves brought Aragon to a tunnel, hidden so cleverly within the rock face he never would have found the entrance on his own. It was with regret that Aragon left behind the pale sunshine and fresh mountain air for the darkness of the tunnel. 
The passageway was eight feet wide and six feet high, which made it feel quite low to Aragon. And like all the dwarf tunnels he had visited, it was as straight as an arrow for as far as he could see. He looked back over his shoulder just in time to see the dwarf, far, swing closed, the hinged slab of granite that served as a door to the tunnel, plunging their party into night. A moment later, fourteen glowing orbs of differing colours appeared, as the dwarves removed flameless lanterns from their saddlebags. Oric handed one to Aragon. Then they started forward under the roots of the mountain, and the pony's hooves filled the tunnel with clashing echoes that seemed to shout at them like angry wraiths. Aragon grimaced, knowing they would have to listen to the din all the way to Farthendur, for that was where the tunnel ended many leagues thence. He hunched his shoulders and tightened his grip on the straps of his pack, and wished he were with Sephira, flying high above the ground. The Laughing Dead Roran squatted and gazed through the latticework of willow branches. Two hundred yards away, fifty-three soldiers and wagon drivers sat around three separate cook-fires eating their dinner as dusk rapidly settled over the land. The men had stopped for the night on the broad, grass-covered bank next to a nameless river. The wagons, full of supplies for Galbatorix's troops, were parked in a rough half-circle around the fires. Scores of hobbled oxen grazed behind the camp, lowing occasionally to each other. Twenty yards or so downstream, however, a soft earth shelf reared high out of the ground, which prevented any attack or escape from that quarter. What were they thinking? Roram wondered. It was only prudent, when in hostile territory, to camp in a defensible location which usually meant finding a natural formation to protect your back. Even so, you had to be careful to choose a resting place you could flee from if ambushed. As it was, it would be childishly easy for Roran and the other warriors under Martland's command to sweep out of the brush where they were hiding and pin the men of the Empire in the tip of the V formed by the earthen shelf and the river, where they could pick off the soldiers and drivers at their leisure. It puzzled Roran that trained soldiers would make such an obvious mistake. Maybe they are from a city, he thought, or maybe they are merely inexperienced. He frowned. Then why would they be entrusted with such a crucial mission? Have you detected any traps? he asked. He did not have to turn his head to know that Khan was close behind him, as well as Halmar and two other men. Save the four swordsmen, who had joined Martland's company to replace those who had died or been irreparably wounded during their last engagement, Roran had fought alongside all of the men in their group. While he did not like every single one, he trusted them with his life, as he knew they trusted him. It was a bond that transcended age or upbringing. After his first battle, Roran had been surprised by how close he felt to his companions, as well as by how warm they were to him in turn. None that I can tell, murmured Khan. But then they may have invented new spells you cannot detect, yes, yes. Is there a magician with them, though? I can't tell for sure, but no, I don't think so. Roran pushed away a shock of narrow willow leaves to better see the layout of the wagons. I don't like it, he grumbled 
A magician accompanied the other convoy. Why not this one? There are fewer of us than you might imagine. Hmm. Roran scratched his beard, still bothered by the soldiers' apparent disregard of common sense. Could they be trying to invite an attack? They don't seem prepared for one, but appearances are hardly everything. What sort of trap could they have prepared for us? No one else is within thirty leagues, and Murtag and Thorn were last spotted flying north from Feinster. Send the signal, he said, but tell Martland it bothers me they camped here. Either they're idiots, or they have some sort of defence invisible to us, magic or other trickery of the king. Silence. Then, I sent it. Martland says he shares your concern, but unless you want to run back to Nasawada with your tail tucked between your legs, we try our luck. Roran grunted and turned away from the soldiers. He gestured with his chin, and the other men scampered with him on hands and knees to where they had left their horses. Standing, Roran mounted Snowfire. Whoa, steady boy, he whispered, petting Snowfire as the stallion tossed his head. In the dim light, Snowfire's mane and hide gleamed like silver. Not for the first time, Roran wished his horse were a less visible shade, a nice bay or chestnut, perhaps. Taking his shield from where it hung by his saddle, Roran fit his left arm through the straps, then pulled his hammer from his belt. He dry-swallowed, a familiar tightness between his shoulders, and readjusted his grip on the hammer. When the five men were ready, Khan raised a finger, and his eyelids drifted half-closed, and his lips twitched as if he were talking with himself. A cricket sounded nearby. Khan's eyelids snapped open. Remember, keep your gaze directed downward until your vision adjusts, and even then, don't look at the sky. Then he began to chant in the ancient language, incomprehensible words that shivered with power. Roran covered himself with his shield and squinted at his saddle as a pure white light, bright as the noonday sun, illuminated the landscape. The stark glow originated from a point somewhere above the camp. Roran resisted the temptation to see exactly where. Shouting, he kicked Snowfire in the ribs and hunched over the horse's neck as his steed leaped forward. On either side, Khan and the other warriors did the same, brandishing their weapons. Branches tore at Roran's head and shoulders, and then Snowfire broke free of the trees and raced toward the camp at full gallop. Two other groups of horsemen also thundered toward the camp, one led by Martland, the other Ulhart. The soldiers and drivers cried out in alarm and covered their eyes. Staggering about like blind men, they scrabbled after their weapons while trying to position themselves to repel the attack. Roran made no attempt to slow Snowfire. Spurring the stallion once more, he rose high in the stirrups and held on with all his strength as Snowfire jumped over the slight gap between two wagons. His teeth clattered as they landed. Snowfire kicked dirt into one of the fires, sending up a burst of sparks. The rest of Roran's group jumped the wagons as well. Knowing they would attend to the soldiers behind him, Roran concentrated on those in front. Aiming Snowfire at one of the men, he jabbed at the soldier with the end of his hammer and broke the man's nose, splashing crimson blood across his face. Roran dispatched the man with a second blow to the head, then parried a sword from another soldier. Farther down the curved line of wagons, Martland, Ulhart, and their men also jumped into the camp, 
alighting with a clack of hooves and a jangle of armour and weapons. A horse screamed and fell as a soldier wounded it with a spear. Roran blocked the soldier's sword a second time, then wrapped the man's sword hand, breaking bones and forcing the man to drop his weapon. Without pause, Roran struck the man in the centre of his red tunic, cracking his sternum and felling the gasping, mortally wounded soldier. Roran twisted in the saddle, searching the camp for his next opponent. His muscles vibrated with frantic excitement. Every detail around him was as sharp and clear as if it were etched in glass. He felt invincible, invulnerable. Time itself seemed to stretch and slow, so that a confused moth that fluttered past him appeared to be flying through honey instead of air. Then a pair of hands clamped down on the back of his male hauberk and yanked him off snowfire and slammed him into the hard ground, knocking the breath out of him. Roran's sight flickered and went black for a moment. When he recovered, he saw that the first soldier he had attacked was sitting on his chest, choking him. The soldier blotted out the source of light Khan had created in the sky. A white halo surrounded his head and shoulders, casting his features in such deep shadow Roran could make out nothing of his face but the flash of bared teeth. The soldier tightened his fingers around Roran's throat as Roran gasped for air. Roran groped after his hammer which he had dropped, but it was not within reach. Tensing his neck to keep the soldier from crushing the life out of him, he drew his dagger from his belt and drove it through the soldier's hauberk, through his gambeson, and between the ribs on the soldier's left side. The soldier did not even flinch, nor did his grip relax. A continuous stream of gurgling laughter emanated from the soldier. The lurching, heart-stopping chuckle, hideous in the extreme, turned Roran's stomach cold with fear. He remembered the sound from before. He had heard it while watching the Varden fight the men who felt no pain on the grassy field beside the Jeet River. In a flash, he understood why the soldiers had chosen such a poor campsite. They do not care if they are trapped or not, for we cannot hurt them. Roran's vision turned red, and yellow stars danced before his eyes. Teetering on the edge of unconsciousness, he yanked the dagger free and stabbed upward into the soldier's armpit, twisting the blade in the wound. Gouts of hot blood spurted over his hand, but the soldier did not seem to notice. The world exploded in blotches of pulsing colours as the soldier smashed Roran's head against the ground, once, twice, three times. Roran bucked his hips, trying without success to throw the man off. Blind and desperate, he slashed at where he guessed the man's face to be and felt the dagger catch in soft flesh. He pulled the dagger back slightly, then lunged in that direction, feeling the impact as the tip of the blade struck bone. The pressure around Roran's neck vanished. Roran lay where he was, his chest heaving, then rolled over and vomited, throat burning. Still gasping and coughing, he staggered upright and saw the soldier sprawled motionless next to him, the dagger protruding from the man's left nostril. Go for the head! shouted Roran, despite his raw throat. The head! He left the dagger buried in the soldier's nostril and retrieved his hammer from the trampled ground where it had fallen, pausing long enough to also grab an abandoned spear, which he held with his shield hand. Jumping over the fallen soldier, 
he ran toward Halmar, who was on foot as well, and dueling three soldiers at once. Before the soldiers noticed him, Roran bashed the two closest ones in the head so hard he split their helms. The third he left to Halmar, instead bounding over to the soldier whose sternum he had broken and whom he had left for dead. He found the man sitting against the wheel of a wagon, spitting up clotted blood and struggling to string a bow. Roran gored him through an eye with the spear. Pieces of grey flesh clung to the blade of the spear as he pulled it free. An idea occurred to Roran then. He threw the spear at a man in a red tunic on the other side of the nearest fire, impaling him through the torso, then slid the haft of his hammer under his belt and strung the soldier's bow. Placing his back against a wagon, Roran began to shoot the soldiers rushing about the encampment, attempting either to kill them with a lucky shot to the face, the throat or the heart, or to cripple them so his companions could more easily dispatch them. If nothing else, he reasoned that an injured soldier might bleed to death before the fight ended. The initial confidence of the attack had faded into confusion. The Varden were scattered and dismayed, some on their steeds, some on foot, and most bloodied. At least five, so far as Roran could tell, had died when soldiers they had thought slain had returned to assail them. How many soldiers were left it was impossible to tell in the throng of flailing bodies, but Roran could see that they still outnumbered the scant twenty-five or so of the remaining Varden. They could tear us into pieces with their bare hands while we tried to hack them apart, he realized. He searched with his eyes among the frenzy for snowfire, and saw that the white horse had run farther down the river, where he now stood by a willow tree. Nostrils flared and ears plastered flat against his skull. With the bow, Roran killed four more soldiers and wounded over a score. When he had only two arrows left, he spotted Khan standing on the other side of the camp, dueling a soldier by the corner of a burning tent. Drawing the bow until the fletching on the arrow tickled his ear, Roran shot the soldier in the chest. The soldier stumbled, and Khan decapitated him. Roran tossed the bow aside and, hammer in hand, ran over to Khan and shouted, Can't you kill them with magic? For a moment Khan could only pant. Then he shook his head and said, Every spell I cast was blocked. The light from the burning tent gilded the side of his face. Roran cursed. Together then, he cried, and hefted his shield. Shoulder to shoulder the two of them advanced upon the nearest group of soldiers, a cluster of eight men surrounding three of the Varden. The next few minutes were a spasm of flashing weapons, tearing flesh, and sudden pains for Roran. The soldiers tired more slowly than ordinary men, and they never shirked from an attack, nor did they slacken in their efforts, even when suffering from the most horrific injuries. The exertion of the fight was so great Roran's nausea returned and after the eighth soldier fell, he leaned over and vomited again. He spat to clear his mouth of bile. One of the Varden they had sought to rescue had died in the struggle, slain by a knife in the kidneys, but the two who were still standing joined forces with Roran and Khan, and with them they charged the next batch of soldiers. Drive them toward the river! Roran shouted. 
The water and the mud would limit the soldiers' movement and perhaps allow the Varden to gain the upper hand. Not far away, Martland had succeeded in rallying the twelve of the Varden who were still on their horses, and they were already doing what Roran had suggested, herding the soldiers back toward the shining water. The soldiers and the few drivers who were still alive resisted. They shoved their shields against the men on foot. They jabbed spears at the horses. But in spite of their violent opposition, the Varden forced them to retreat a step at a time until the men in the crimson tunics stood knee-deep in the fast-flowing water, half-blinded by the uncanny light shining down on them. "'Hold the line!' shouted Martland, dismounting and planting himself with spread legs on the edge of the riverbank. "'Don't let them regain the shore!' Roran dropped into a half-crouch, ground his heels into the soft earth until he was comfortable with his stance, and waited for the large soldier standing in the cold water several feet in front of him to attack. With a roar, the soldier splashed out of the shallows, swinging his sword at Roran, which Roran caught on his shield. Roran retaliated with a stroke of his hammer, but the soldier blocked him with his own shield and then cut at Roran's legs. For several seconds they exchanged blows, but neither wounded the other. Then Roran shattered the man's left forearm, knocking him back several paces. The soldier merely smiled and uttered a mirthless, soul-chilling laugh. Roran wondered whether he or any of his companions would survive the night. They're harder to kill than snakes. We can cut them to ribbons and they'll still keep coming at us unless we hit something vital. His next thought vanished as the soldier rushed at him again, his notched sword flickering in the pale light like a tongue of flame. Thereafter, the battle assumed a nightmarish quality for Roran. The strange, baleful light gave the water and the soldiers an unearthly aspect, bleaching them of color and projecting long, thin, razor-sharp shadows across the shifting water, while beyond and all around, the fullness of night prevailed. Again and again he repelled the soldiers who stumbled out of the water to kill him, hammering at them until they were barely recognizable as human, and yet they would not die. With every blow, medallions of black blood stained the surface of the river like blots of spilled ink and drifted away on the current. The deadly sameness of each clash numbed and horrified Roran. No matter how hard he strove, there was always another mutilated soldier there to slash and stab at him, and always the demented giggling of men who knew they were dead and yet continued to maintain a semblance of life even while the Varden destroyed their bodies. And then, silence. Roran remained crouched behind his shield with his hammer half-raised, gasping and drenched with sweat and blood. A minute passed before it dawned on him that no one stood in the water before him. He glanced left and right three times, unable to grasp that the soldiers were finally, blessedly, irrevocably dead. A corpse floated past him in the glittering water. An inarticulate bellow escaped him as a hand gripped his right arm. He whipped around, snarling and pulling away, only to see Karn next to him. The one gore-smeared spellcaster was speaking. We won, Roran, eh? They're gone. We vanquished them. Roran let his arms drop, 
and tilted his head back. Too tired even to sit. He felt... He felt as if his senses were abnormally sharp, and yet his emotions were dull, muted things, tamped down somewhere deep inside of himself. He was glad it was so, otherwise he thought he would go mad. Gather up and inspect the wagons, shouted Martland. The sooner you bestir yourselves, the sooner we can leave this accursed place. Khan, attend to Welmar. I don't like the look of that gash. With an enormous effort of will, Roran turned and trudged across the bank to the nearest wagon. Blinking away the sweat that dripped from his brow, he saw that of their original force, only nine were still fit to stand. He pushed the observation out of his mind. Mourn later, not now. As Martland Redbeard walked across the corpse-strewn encampment, a soldier whom Roran had assumed was dead flipped over and from the ground lopped off the earl's right hand. With a movement so graceful it appeared practiced, Martland kicked the sword out of the soldier's grip, then knelt on the soldier's throat, and using his left hand, drew a dagger from his belt and stabbed the man through one of his ears, killing him. His face flushed and strained, Martland shoved the stump of his wrist under his left armpit and waved away everyone who rushed over to him. Leave me alone. It's hardly a wound at all. Get to those wagons. Unless you wastrels hurry up, we'll be here so long my beard will turn white as snow. Go on. When Khan refused to budge, however, Martland scowled and shouted, Be gone with you, or I'll have you flogged for insubordination, I will. Khan held up Martland's wayward hand. I might be able to reattach it, but I'll need a few minutes. Ah, oh, confound it, give me that, exclaimed Martland, and snatched his hand away from Khan. He tucked it inside his tunic. Stop fretting about me and save Welmar and Lindel if you can. You can try reattaching it once we put a few leagues between us and these monsters. It might be too late then, said Khan. That was an order, spellcaster, not a request, thundered Martland. As Khan retreated, the earl used his teeth to tie off the sleeve of his tunic over the stump of his arm, which he again stuck in his left armpit. Sweat beaded his face. Right then, what misbegotten items are hidden in those confounded wagons? Rope, someone shouted. Whiskey, shouted someone else. Martland grunted. Alhart, you record the figures for me. Roran helped the others as they rifled through each of the wagons, calling out the contents to Ulhart. Afterward, they slaughtered the teams of oxen and lit the wagons on fire as before. Then they rounded up their horses and mounted them, tying the injured into their saddles. When they were ready to depart, Khan gestured toward the flare of light in the sky and murmured a long, tangled word. Night enveloped the world. Glancing up, Roran beheld a throbbing afterimage of Khan's face superimposed over the faint stars, and then as he became accustomed to the darkness, he beheld the soft grey shapes of thousands of disoriented moths scattering across the sky like the shades of men's souls. His heart heavy within him, Roran touched his heels to Snowfire's flanks, and rode away from the remnants of the convoy. Blood on the Rocks
Frustrated, Aragon stormed out of the circular chamber buried deep under the center of Trondheim. The oak door slammed shut behind him with a hollow boom. Aragon stood with his hands on his hips in the middle of the arched corridor outside the chamber and glared at the floor, which was tessellated with rectangles of agate and jade. Since he and Oric had arrived in Trondheim three days ago, the thirteen chiefs of the dwarf clans had done nothing but argue about issues that Aragon considered inconsequential, such as which clans had the right to graze their flocks in certain disputed pastures. As he listened to the clan chiefs debate obscure points of their legal code, Aragon often felt like shouting that they were being blind fools who were going to doom all of Allegasia to Galbatorix's rule unless they put aside their petty concerns and chose a new ruler without further delay. Still lost in thought, Aragon slowly walked down the corridor, barely noticing the four guards who followed him as they did wherever he went, nor the dwarves he passed in the hall who greeted him with variations of Arjutlam. The worst one is Irunan. Aragon decided. The dwarf woman was the Grimst Borith of Durgrimst Vrenschurgen, a powerful warlike clan, and she had made it clear from the very beginning of the deliberations that she intended to have the throne for herself. Only one other clan, the Urjard, had openly pledged themselves to her cause, but as she had demonstrated on multiple occasions during the meetings between the clan chiefs, she was clever, cunning, and able to twist most any situation to her advantage. She might make an excellent queen, Aragon admitted to himself, but she's so devious it's impossible to know whether she would support the Varden once she was enthroned. He allowed himself a wry smile. Talking with Iorunan was always awkward for him. The dwarves considered her a great beauty, and even by the standards of humans she cut a striking figure. Besides which, she seemed to have developed a fascination with Aragon that he was unable to fathom. In every conversation they had, she insisted upon making allusions to the dwarves' history and mythology that Aragon did not understand, but that seemed to amuse Oric and the other dwarves to no end. In addition to Iorunan, two other clan chiefs had emerged as rivals for the throne. Ganel, chief of Durgrimst Quan, and Nardo, chief of Durgrimst Nurl Karathan. As the custodians of the dwarves' religion, the Quan wielded enormous influence among their race, but so far Ganel had obtained the support of but two other clans, Durgrimst Regni Heftin and Durgrimst Ebardak, a clan primarily devoted to scholarly research. In contrast, Nardo had forged a larger coalition, consisting of the clans Feldunost, Fangher, and as Swelden Rak Anuin. Whereas Iorunan seemed to want the throne merely for the power she would gain thereafter, and Ganel did not seem inherently hostile to the Varden, although neither was he friendly toward them, Nardo was openly and vehemently opposed to any involvement with Aragon, Masuada, the Empire, Galbatorix, Queen Islanzadi, or so far as Aragon could tell, any living being outside of the Beor Mountains. The Nurl Karathan were the stoneworkers' clan, 
and in men and material goods they had no equal, for every other clan depended upon their expertise for the tunneling and the building of their abodes, and even the Injitum needed them to mine the ore for their smiths. And if Nardo's bid for the crown should falter, Aragon knew that many of the other lesser clan chiefs who shared his views would leap up to take his place. As Swelden Rakanuin, for example, whom Galbatorix and the Forsworn had nearly obliterated during their uprising, had declared themselves Aragon's blood enemies during his visit to the city of Tarnag, and in every action of theirs at the clan meet had demonstrated their implacable hatred of Aragon, Sephira, and all things to do with dragons and those who rode them. They had objected to Aragon's very presence at the meetings of the clan chiefs, even though it was perfectly legal by dwarf law, and forced a vote on the issue, thereby delaying the proceedings another six unnecessary hours. One of these days, thought Aragon, I will have to find a way to make peace with them. That or I'll have to finish what Galbatorix started. I refuse to live my entire life in fear of Asweldon Rakanuin. Again, as he had done so often in the past few days, he waited a moment for Sephira's response, and when it was not forthcoming, a familiar pang of unhappiness lanced his heart. How secure the alliances between any of the clans were, however, was a question of some uncertainty. Neither Oric, nor Iorunan, nor Ganel, nor Nardo had enough support to win a popular vote so they were all actively engaged in trying to retain the loyalties of the clans who had already promised to help them, while at the same time trying to poach their opponents' backers. Despite the importance of the process, Aragon found it exceedingly tedious and frustrating. Based upon Oric's explanation, it was Aragon's understanding that before the clan chiefs could elect a ruler— they had to vote on whether they were prepared to choose a new king or queen, and that the preliminary election had to garner at least nine votes in its favour if it was to pass. As of yet, none of the clan chiefs, Oric included, felt secure enough in their positions to bring the matter to a head and proceed to the final election. It was, as Oric had said, the most delicate part of the process, and in some instances had been known to drag on for a frustratingly long time. As he pondered the situation, Aragon wandered aimlessly through the warren of chambers below Trongim, until he found himself in a dry, dusty room, lined with five black arches on one side, and a bar-relief carving of a snarling bear twenty feet high on the other. The bear had gold teeth and round, faceted rubies for eyes. "'Where are we, Kweister?' asked Aragon, glancing at his guards. His voice spawned hollow echoes in the room. Aragon could sense the minds of many of the dwarves in the levels above them, but he had no idea how to reach them. The lead guard, a youngish dwarf no older than sixty, stepped forward. These rooms were cleared millennia ago by Grimstens Borith Corgan, when Trondheim was under construction. We have not used them much since, except when our entire race congregates in Farthendur. Aragon nodded. Can you lead me back to the surface? Of course, Sergeant Lamb. Several minutes of brisk walking brought them to a broad staircase with shallow dwarf-sized steps 
that climbed out of the ground to a passageway somewhere in the southwestern quadrant of Trondheim's base. From there, Kweister guided Aragon to the southern branch of the four-mile-long hallways that divided Trondheim along the cardinal compass points. It was the same hallway through which Aragon and Sephira had first entered Trondheim several months ago, and Aragon walked down it toward the centre of the city mountain with a strange sense of nostalgia. He felt as if he had aged several years in the interim. The four-storey high avenue, thronged with dwarves from every clan. All of them noticed Aragon, of that he was sure, but not all deigned to acknowledge him, for which he was grateful, as it saved him the effort of having to return even more greetings. Aragon stiffened as he saw a line of Asweldon Rak Arnuin cross the hallway. As one, the dwarves turned their heads and looked at him, their expressions obscured behind the purple veils those of their clan always wore in public. The last dwarf in line spat on the floor toward Aragon before filing through an archway and out of the hall along with his or her brethren. If Sapphira were here, they would not dare to be so rude, thought Aragon. A half hour later, he reached the end of the majestic hallway, and although he had been there many times before, a sense of awe and wonder overwhelmed him as he stepped between the pillars of black onyx topped with yellow zircons thrice the size of a man and entered the circular chamber in the heart of Trondheim. The chamber was a thousand feet from side to side, with a floor of polished carnelian etched with a hammer surrounded by twelve pentacles, which was the crest of Durgrimstingetum, and of the dwarves' first king, Corgan, who had discovered Farthen Dur while mining for gold. Opposite Aragon and to either side were the openings to the three other halls that radiated out through the city mountain. The chamber had no ceiling, but ascended all the way to the top of Trondheim, a mile overhead. There it opened to the Dragonhold, where Aragon and Sephira had resided before Arya broke the star sapphire, and then to the sky beyond, a rich blue disk that seemed unimaginably distant, ringed as it was by the open mouth of Farthen Dur, the hollow ten-mile-high mountain that sheltered Trondheim from the rest of the world. Only a scant amount of daylight filtered down to the base of Trondheim, the city of eternal twilight, the elves called it since so little of the sun's radiance entered the city mountain, except for a dazzling half-hour before and after noon during the height of summer, the dwarves illuminated the interior with uncounted numbers of their flameless lanterns. Thousands of them were on glorious display in the chamber. A bright lantern hung from the outside of every other pillar of the curved arcades that lined each level of the city mountain, and even more lanterns were mounted within the arcades, marking the entrances to strange and unknown rooms, as well as the path of Volturin, the endless staircase, which spiralled around the chamber from top to bottom. The effect was both moody and spectacular. The lanterns were of many different colours, making it appear as if the interior of the chamber were dotted with glowing jewels. Their glory, however, paled beside the splendour of a real jewel the greatest jewel of them all, Isidar Mithrim. On the floor of the chamber, 
the dwarves had built a wooden scaffold sixty feet in diameter, and within the enclosure of fitted oak beams, they were, piece by precious piece, reassembling the shattered star sapphire with the utmost care and delicacy. The shards they had yet to place, they had stored in open-topped boxes, padded with nests of raw wool, each box labelled with a line of spidery runes. The boxes were spread out across a large portion of the western side of the vast room. Perhaps three hundred dwarves sat hunched over them, intent on their work, as they strove to fit the shards together into a cohesive whole. Another group bustled about the scaffolding, tending to the fragmented gem within, as well as building additional structures. Aragon watched them at their labour for several minutes, then wandered over to the section of the floor Durza had broken, when he and his Urgal warriors had entered Trondheim from the tunnels below. With the tip of his boot, Aragon tapped the polished stone in front of him. No trace of the damage Durza had wrought remained. The dwarves had done a marvellous job of erasing the marks left by the Battle of Farthandur, although Aragon hoped they would commemorate the battle with a memorial of some sort, for he felt it was important that future generations not forget the cost in blood the dwarves and the Varden had paid during the course of their struggle against Galbatorix. As Aragon walked toward the scaffolding, he nodded at Skegg, who was standing on a platform overlooking the star sapphire. Aragon had met the thin, quick-fingered dwarf before. Skegg was of Durgrim's Gedthral, and it was to him King Hrothgar had entrusted the restoration of the dwarves' most valuable treasure. Skegg gestured for Aragon to climb up onto the platform. A sparkling vista of slanting, needle-sharp spires, glittering paper-thin edges and rippling surfaces confronted Aragon as he heaved himself onto the rough-hewn planks. The top of the star sapphire reminded him of the ice on the Enora River in Palancar Valley at the end of winter, when the ice had melted and refrozen multiple times and was treacherous to walk over on account of the bumps and ridges the swings in temperature had cast up. Only instead of blue, white, or clear, the remnants of the star sapphire were a soft, rosy pink, shot through with traces of dusky orange. How goes it? asked Aragon. Skegg shrugged and fluttered his hands in the air like a pair of butterflies. It goes as it does, Arjit Lam. You can't hurry perfection. It looks to me as if you are making quick progress. With a bony forefinger, Skegg tapped the side of his broad, flat nose. The top of Isidar Mithram, what is now the bottom, Arya broke it into large pieces, which are easy to fit together. The bottom of Isidar Mithram, though, what is now the top. Skegg shook his head his lined face doleful. The force of the break, all the pieces pushing against the face of the gem, pushing away from Arya and the dragon, Sephira, pushing down toward you and that black-hearted shade. It cracked the petals of the rose into ever smaller fragments. And the rose, Arjitlam, the rose is the key to the gem. It is the most complex, the most beautiful part of Isidar Mithrim, and it is in the most pieces. Unless we can resemble it every last speck where it ought to be, we might as well give the gem to our jewellers and have them grind it into rings for our mothers. The words spilled out of Skeg like water from an overflowing beaker. 
he shouted in dwarvish at a dwarf carrying a box across the chamber, then tugged at his white beard and asked, Have you ever heard recounted, Arjitlam, the tale of how Isidar Mithrim was carved in the age of Heron? Aragon hesitated, thinking back to his history lessons in Elasmira. I know it was Durok who carved it. I said Skek. It was Durok Ornthrond, Eagle Eye, as you say in this tongue. It was not he who discovered Isidar Mithrim, but it was he alone who extracted it from the surrounding stone, he who carved it and he who polished it. Fifty-seven years he spent working on the Star Rose. The gem enthralled him as nothing else. Every night he sat crouched over Isidar Mithram until the wee hours of the morning, as he was determined that the star rose should be not just art, but something that would touch the hearts of all who gazed upon it, and would earn him a seat of honour at the table of the gods. His devotion was such that in the thirty-second year of his labours, when his wife told him that either he had to share the burden of the project with his apprentices, or she would leave his hall, Durok said not a word, but turned his shoulder to her and continued grinding the contours of the petal he had begun earlier that year. Durok worked on Isidar Mithrim until he was pleased with its every line and curve. Then he dropped his polishing cloth, took one step back from the star rose, said, Guntera, protect me, it is done, and fell dead on the floor. Skeg tapped his chest, producing a hollow thump. His heart gave out. For what else did he have to live for? That is what we are trying to reconstruct, Arshadlam. Fifty-seven years of ceaseless concentration by one of the finest artists our race has known. Unless we can put Isidar Mithrim back together exactly the way it was, we shall diminish Durok's accomplishment for all who have yet to see the star rose. Knotting his right hand into a fist, Skeg bounced it off his thigh to emphasize his words. Eragon leaned against the hip-high railing in front of him, and watched as five dwarves on the opposite side of the gem lowered a sixth dwarf, who was bound in a rope harness, until he hung inches above the sharp edges of the fractured sapphire. Reaching inside his tunic, the suspended dwarf removed a sliver of Isidar Mithrim from a leather wallet and grasping the sliver with a minuscule set of pincers, fit it into a small gap in the gem below. If the coronation were held three days from now, said Aragon, could you have Isidar Mithram ready by then? Skeg drummed the railing with all ten of his fingers, tapping out a melody Aragon failed to recognize. The dwarf said, We would not rush so with Isidar Mithram if not for the offer of your dragon. This haste is foreign to us, Arjadlam. It is not our nature, as it is humans, to rush about like agitated ants. Still, we shall do our best to have Isidar Mithrim ready in time for the coronation. If that should be three days from now, well, I should not be too hopeful of our prospects. But if it were later in the week, I think we might be finished. Aragon thanked Skeg for his prediction, then took his leave. With his guards trailing after him, Aragon walked to one of the many common eating halls in the city mountain, a long, low room with stone tables arranged in rows on one side and dwarves busying themselves about soapstone ovens on the other. There Aragon dined on sourdough bread, 
fish with white meat that the dwarves caught in underground lakes, mushrooms, and some sort of mashed tuber that he had eaten before in Trondheim, but whose provenance he had yet to learn. Before he began eating, though, he was careful to test the food for poison, using the spells Oromis had taught him. As Aragon washed down the last crust of bread with a sip of thin, watered-down breakfast beer, Oric and his contingent of ten warriors entered the hall. The warriors sat at their own tables, positioning themselves where they could watch both entrances, while Oric joined Aragon, lowering himself onto the stone bench opposite him with a weary sigh. He placed his elbows on the table and rubbed his face with his hands. Aragon cast several spells to prevent anyone from eavesdropping, then asked, Did we suffer another setback? No, no setback. Only these deliberations are trying in the extreme. I noticed, and everyone noticed your frustration, said Oric. You must control yourself better hereafter, Aragon. Revealing weakness of any sort to our opponents does nothing but further their cause. I... Oric fell silent as a portly dwarf waddled up and deposited a plate of steaming food in front of him. Aragon scowled at the edge of the table. But are you any closer to the throne? Have we gained any ground with all of this long-winded prattle? Oric raised a finger while he chewed on a mouthful of bread. We have gained a great deal. Do not be so gloomy. After you left, Havard agreed to lower the tax on the salt Durgrim's Fangher sells to the Ingetum in exchange for summer access to our tunnel to Nalsvrid Myrna, so they may hunt the red deer that gather around the lake during the warm months of the year. You should have seen how Nardo gritted his teeth when Havard accepted my offer. Bah! spat Aragon. Taxes, dear! What does any of it have to do with who succeeds Hrothgar as ruler? Be honest with me, Oric. What is your position compared with the other clan chiefs? And how much longer is this likely to drag on? With every day that passes, it becomes more likely that the Empire will discover our ruse and Galbatorix will strike at the Varden when I am not there to fend off Murtag and Thorn. Oric wiped his mouth on the corner of the tablecloth. My position is sound enough. None of the Grimstborithen have the support to call a vote. But Nardo and I command the greatest followings. If either of us can win over, say, another two or three clans, the balance will quickly tip in that person's favour. Havard is already wavering. It won't take too much more encouragement, I think, to convince him to defect to our camp. Tonight we will break bread with him, and I will see what I can do toward providing that encouragement. Oric devoured a piece of roast mushroom, then said, as for when the clan meet will end, maybe after another week if we are lucky, and maybe two if we're not. Aragon cursed in an undertone. He was so tense, his stomach churned and rumbled and threatened to reject the meal he had just eaten. Reaching across the table, Oric caught Aragon by the wrist. There is nothing you or I can do to further hasten the clan meet's decision, so do not let it upset you overmuch. Worry about what you can change, and leave the rest to sort itself out, eh? 
he released Aragon. Aragon slowly exhaled and leaned on his forearms against the table. I know. It's only that we have so little time, and if we fail... What will be, will be, said Oric. He smiled, but his eyes were sad and hollow. No one can escape fate's design. Couldn't you seize the throne by force? I know you don't have that many troops in Trondheim, but with my support, who could stand against you? Oric paused with his knife halfway between his plate and his mouth, then shook his head and resumed eating. Between mouthfuls, he said, Such a ploy would prove disastrous. Why? Must I explain? Our entire race would turn against us, and instead of seizing control of our nation, I would inherit an empty title. If that came to pass, I would not bet a broken sword we would live to see out the year. Ah. Oryx said nothing more until the food on his plate was gone. Then he downed a mouthful of beer, belched, and resumed the conversation. We are balanced upon a windy mountain path with a mile-high drop on either side. So many of my race hate and fear dragon riders because of the crimes Galbatorix, the Forsworn, and now Murtag have committed against us. And so many of them fear the world beyond the mountains and the tunnels and caverns wherein we hide. He turned his mug around on the table. Nardo and Asweldon Rakhanuin are only worsening the situation. They play upon people's fears and poison their minds against you, the Varden and King Orin. As Sweldern Rak Anuin is the epitome of what we must overcome if I am to be king. Somehow we must needs find a way to allay their concerns and the concerns of those like them, for even if I am king, I will have to give them a fair hearing if I am to retain the support of the clans. A dwarf, king or queen, is always at the mercy of the clans, no matter how strong a ruler they may be. Just as the Grimes Borothin are at the mercy of the families of their clan. Tilting back his head, Oric drained the last of the beer from his mug, then set it down with a sharp clack. Is there anything I could do? Any custom or ceremony of yours I could perform that would appease Vermund and his followers? asked Aragon, naming the current Grimes Borith of Asweldon Rak Anuin. There must be something I can do to put their suspicions to rest and bring this feud to an end. Oric laughed and stood from the table. You could die. Early the next morning, Aragon sat with his back against the curved wall of the round room set deep below the centre of Trondheim, along with a select group of warriors, advisers, servants, and family members of the clan chiefs who were privileged enough to attend the clan meet. The clan chiefs themselves were seated in heavy carved chairs arranged around the edge of a circular table, which, like most objects of note in the lower levels of the city mountain, bore the crest of Corgan and the Ingetum. At the moment, Galdheim, Grimstborith of Durgrimstfeldunost, was speaking. He was short, even for a dwarf, hardly more than two feet in height, and wore patterned robes of gold, russet, and midnight blue. Unlike the dwarves of the Ingetum, he did not trim or braid his beard, and it tumbled across his chest like a tangled bramble. Standing on the seat of his chair, 
he pounded the polished table with his gloved fist and roared, Eta! Narho udim etal os issu vond! Narho udim etal os form von mendunos braken, as vaden hrestfog dur grimstens hadden! As jurgen vren quatrid ne domer on etal... No! Aragon's translator, a dwarf named Hunfast, whispered in his ear, I will not let that happen. I will not let these beardless fools, the Varden, destroy our country. The Dragon War left us weak and not... Aragon stifled a yawn, bored. He allowed his gaze to drift around the granite table, from Galdhin to Nardo, a round-faced dwarf with flaxen hair who was nodding with approval at Galdhim's thundering speech, to Havart, who was using a dagger to clean under the fingernails of the two remaining fingers on his right hand, to Vermund, heavy-browed but otherwise inscrutable behind his purple veil, to Ganel and Undin, who sat leaning toward each other, whispering, while Hadfala, an elderly dwarf woman who was the clan chief of Dorgrimes de Bardak and the third member of Ganel's alliance, frowned at the sheaf of rune-covered parchment she brought with her to every meeting, and then to the chief of Dorgrimes Ledwonu, Manandrath, who sat in profile to Aragon, displaying his long, drooping nose to good effect, to Thordris, Grimstborith of Dorgrimes Nagra, of whom he could see little but her wavy auburn hair, which fell past her shoulders and lay coiled on the floor in a braid twice as long as she was tall, to the back of Oric's head as he slouched to one side in his chair, to Freowin, Grimstborith of Durgrimst Gedthral, an immensely corpulent dwarf who kept his eyes fixed upon the block of wood he was busy carving into the likeness of a hunched raven, and then to Hridomar, Grimstborith of Durgrimst Urjard, who, in contrast with Freowin, was fit and compact, with corded forearms, and who wore a male hauberk and helm to every gathering, and finally to Eorunan, she of the nut-brown skin, marred only by a thin, crescent-shaped scar high upon her left cheekbone, she of the satin-bright hair bound underneath a silver helm wrought in the shape of a snarling wolf's head, she of the vermilion dress and the necklace of flashing emeralds set in squares of gold carved with lines of arcane runes. Eorunan noticed Aragon looking at her. A lazy smile appeared on her lips. With voluptuous ease, she winked at Aragon, obscuring one of her almond-shaped eyes for a pair of heartbeats. Aragon's cheeks stung as blood suffused them and the tips of his ears burned. He shifted his gaze and returned it to Galdheim, who was still busy pontificating, his chest puffed out like that of a strutting pigeon. As Oric had asked, Aragon remained impassive throughout the meeting, concealing his reactions from those who were watching. When the clan meet broke for their midday meal, he hastened over to Oric, and bending so that no one else could hear, said, Do not look for me at your table. I have had my fill of sitting and talking. I'm going to explore the tunnels for a bit. Oric nodded, appearing distracted, and murmured in reply, Do as you wish. Only be sure you are here when we resume. It would not be meet for you to play truant, no matter how tedious these talks be. As you say, 
Aragon edged out of the conference room, along with the press of dwarves eager to have their lunches, and rejoined his four guards in the hallway outside, where they had been playing dice with idle warriors from other clans. With his guards in tow, Aragon struck out in a random direction, allowing his feet to carry him where they would, while he pondered methods of welding the dwarves' contentious factions into a whole, united against Galbatorix. To his exasperation, the only methods he could envision were so far-fetched, it was absurd to imagine they might succeed. Aragon paid little attention to the dwarves he met in the tunnels, aside from mumbled greetings that courtesy occasionally demanded, nor even to his exact surroundings, trusting that Kveister could guide him back to the conference room. Although Aragon did not study his surroundings in any great detail visually, he kept track of the minds of every living creature he was able to sense within a radius of several hundred feet, even down to the smallest spider crouched behind its web in the corner of a room, for Aragon had no desire to be surprised by anyone who might have cause to seek him out. When at last he stopped, he was surprised to find himself in the same dusty room he had discovered during his wanderings the previous day. There to his left were the same five black arches that led to caverns unknown, while there to his right was the same bas-relief carving of the head and shoulders of a snarling bear. Bemused by the coincidence, Aragon sauntered over to the bronze sculpture and gazed up at the bear's gleaming fangs, wondering what had drawn him back. After a moment, he went to the middle of the five archways and gazed through it. The narrow hallway beyond was devoid of lanterns and soon faded into the soft oblivion of shadow. Reaching out with his consciousness, Aragon probed the length of the tunnel and several of the abandoned chambers it opened to. A half-dozen spiders and a sparse collection of moths, millipedes and blind crickets were the only inhabitants. "'Hello!' called Aragon and listened as the hall returned his voice to him with ever-decreasing volume. "'Kveister,' said Aragon, looking at him, "'does no one at all live in these ancient parts?' The fresh-faced dwarf answered, "'Some do. A few strange Nerlin, those to whom empty solitude is more pleasing than the touch of their wife's hand or the sound of their friends' voices.' It was one such Nurlag who warned us of the approach of the Urgul army, if you remember, Ajatlam. Also, although we do not speak of it often, there are those who have broken the laws of our land and whom their clan chiefs have banished on pain of death for a term of years, or, if the offence is severe, for the remainder of their lives. All such are as the walking dead to us. We shun them if we meet them outside of our lands and hang them, if we catch them within our borders. When Kveister had finished speaking, Aragon indicated that he was ready to leave. Kveister took the lead, and Aragon followed him out the doorway through which they had entered, the three other dwarves close behind. They had gone no more than twenty feet when Aragon heard a faint scuffing from the rear. So faint, Kveister did not seem to notice. Aragon glanced back by the amber light cast by the flameless lanterns mounted on either side of the passageway, he saw seven dwarfs garbed entirely in black, their faces masked with dark cloth and their feet muffled with rags, 
running toward his group with a speed that Aragon had assumed was the sole province of elves, shades, and other creatures whose blood hummed with magic. In their right hands the dwarves held long, sharp daggers, with pale blades that flickered with prismatic colours, while in their left each carried a metal buckler with a sharpened spike protruding from the boss. Their minds, like those of the Razak, were hidden from Aragon. Safira was Aragon's first thought. Then he remembered he was alone. Twisting to face the black-garbed dwarves, Aragon reached for the hilt of his falchion while opening his mouth to shout a warning. He was too late. As the first word rang in his throat, three of the strange dwarves grabbed the hindmost of Aragon's guards and lifted their glimmering daggers to stab him. Faster than speech or conscious thought, Aragon plunged his whole being into the flow of magic and, without relying upon the ancient language to structure his spell, rewove the fabric of the world into a pattern more pleasing to him. The three guards who stood between him and the attackers flew toward him as if yanked by invisible strings and landed upon their feet beside him, unharmed but disoriented. Aragon winced at the sudden decrease in his strength. Two of the black-garbed dwarves rushed him, stabbing at his belly with their blood-hungry daggers. Sword in hand, Aragon parried both blows, stunned by the dwarf's speed and ferocity. One of his guards leaped forward, shouting and swinging his axe at the would-be assassins. Before Aragon could grab the dwarf's hauberk and yank him back to safety, a white blade, writhing as with spectral flame, pierced the dwarf's corded neck. As the dwarf fell, Aragon glimpsed his contorted face and was shocked to see Kvyster, and that his throat was glowing molten red as it disintegrated around the dagger. I can't let them so much as scratch me, Aragon thought. Enraged by Kvyster's death, Aragon stabbed at his killer so quickly the black-garbed dwarf had no opportunity to evade the blow and dropped lifeless at Aragon's feet. With all his strength, Aragon shouted, Stay behind me! Thin cracks split the floors and walls, and flakes of stone fell from the ceiling as his voice reverberated through the corridor. The attacking dwarves faltered at the unbridled power of his voice, then resumed their offensive. Aragon retreated several yards to give himself room to manoeuvre free of the corpses and settled into a low crouch, waving the falchion to and fro like a snake preparing to strike. His heart was racing at twice its normal rate, and although the fight had just begun, he was already gasping for breath. The hallway was eight feet wide, which was wide enough for three of his six remaining enemies to attack him at once. They spread out, two attempting to flank him on the right and the left, while the third charged straight at him, slashing with frenzied speed at Aragon's arms and legs. Afraid to duel with the dwarves as he would have if they wielded normal blades, Aragon drove his legs against the floor and jumped up and forward. He spun halfway around and struck the ceiling feet first. He pushed off, spun halfway around again, and landed on his hands and feet a yard behind the three dwarves. Even as they whirled toward him, he stepped forward and beheaded the lot of them with a single backhand blow. Their daggers clattered against the floor an instant before their heads. Leaping over their truncated bodies, Aragon twisted in midair and landed on the spot he had started from. It was not a moment too soon. A breath of wind tickled his neck as the tip of a dagger whipped past his throat. Another blade tugged at the cuff of his leggings, cutting them open. 
he flinched and swung the falchion, trying to gain space to fight. My wards should have turned their blades away, he thought, bewildered. An involuntary cry escaped his throat as his foot struck a patch of slick blood and he lost his balance and toppled over backward. With a sickening crunch, his head collided with the stone floor. Blue lights flashed before his eyes. He gasped. His three remaining guards sprang over him and swung their axes in unison, clearing the air above Aragon and saving him from the bite of the flashing daggers. That was all the time Aragon needed to recover. He flipped upright and, berating himself for not trying this sooner, shouted a spell laced with nine of the twelve death words Oromis had taught him. However, the moment after he loosed his magic, he abandoned the spell, for the black-garbed dwarves were protected by numerous wards. Given a few minutes, he might have been able to evade or defeat the wards, but minutes might as well have been days in a battle such as theirs, where every second was as long as an hour. Having failed with magic, Aragon hardened his thoughts into an iron-hard spear and launched it at where the consciousness of one of the black-garbed dwarves ought to be. The spear skated off mental armour of a sort Aragon had not encountered before. Smooth and seamless, seemingly unbroken by the concerns natural to mortal creatures engaged in a struggle to the death. Someone else is protecting them, Aragon realised. There are more behind this attack than just these seven. Pivoting on one foot, Aragon lunged forward and with his falchion impaled his leftmost attacker in a knee, drawing blood. The dwarf stumbled, and Aragon's guards converged upon him, grasping the dwarf's arms so he could not swing his dire blade, and hacking at him with their curved axes. The nearest of the last two attackers raised his shield in anticipation of the blow Aragon was about to direct at him. Summoning the full measure of his might, Aragon cut at the shield, intending to shear it and the arm underneath in half, as he had often done with Zarok. In the fever of battle, though, he forgot to account for the dwarf's inexplicable speed. As the falchion neared its target, the dwarf tilted his shield so as to deflect the blow to the side. Two plumes of sparks erupted from the surface of the shield, as the falchion glanced off the upper part, and then the steel spike mounted in the center. Momentum carried the falchion farther than Aragon had intended, and it continued flying through the air until it struck edge-first against a wall, jarring Aragon's arm. With a crystalline sound, the blade of the falchion shattered into a dozen pieces, leaving him with a six-inch spike of jagged metal protruding from the hilt. Dismayed, Aragon dropped the broken sword and gripped the rim of the dwarf's buckler, resting with him back and forth and struggling to keep the shield between him and the dagger graced with a halo of translucent colours. The dwarf was incredibly tough. He matched Aragon's efforts and even succeeded in pushing him back a step. Releasing the buckler with his right hand but still holding on with his left, Aragon drew back his arm and struck the shield as hard as he could, punching through the tempered steel as easily as if it were made of rotten wood. Because of the calluses on his knuckles, he felt no pain from the impact. The force of the blow threw the dwarf against the opposite wall. His head lolling upon a boneless neck, the dwarf dropped to the ground like a puppet whose strings had been severed. Aragon pulled his hand back through the jagged hole in the shield, scratching himself on the torn metal, and drew his hunting knife.
Then the last of the black-garbed dwarves was upon him. Eragon parried his dagger twice, thrice, and then cut through the dwarf's padded sleeve and scored his dagger arm from the elbow to the wrist. The dwarf hissed with pain, blue eyes furious above his cloth mask. He initiated a series of blows, the dagger whistling through the air faster than the eye could follow, which forced Eragon to hop away to avoid the deadly edge. The dwarf pressed the attack. For several yards, Eragon succeeded in evading him, until his heel struck a body, and in attempting to step around it, he stumbled and fell against a wall, bruising his shoulder. With an evil laugh, the dwarf pounced, stabbing downward toward Eragon's exposed chest. Throwing up an arm in a futile attempt to protect himself, Eragon rolled farther down the hallway, knowing that this time his luck had run out, and he would not be able to escape. As he completed a revolution, and his face was momentarily turned toward the dwarf again, Eragon glimpsed the pale dagger descending toward his flesh like a bolt of lightning from on high. Then, to his astonishment, the tip of the dagger caught on one of the flameless lanterns mounted on the wall. Eragon whirled away before he could see more, but an instant later a burning hot hand seemed to strike him from behind, throwing him a good twenty feet through the hall until he fetched up against the edge of an open archway, instantly accumulating a new collection of scrapes and bruises. A booming report deafened him. Feeling as if someone were driving splinters into his eardrums, Eragon clapped his hands over his ears and curled into a ball, howling. When the noise and the pain had subsided, he lowered his hands and staggered to his feet, clenching his teeth as his injuries announced their presence with a myriad of unpleasant sensations. Groggy and confused, he gazed upon the sight of the explosion. The blast had blackened a ten-foot length of the hallway with soot. Soft flakes of ash tumbled through the air, which was as hot as the air from a heated forge. The dwarf who had been about to strike Aragon lay on the ground, thrashing, his body covered with burns. After a few more convulsions, he grew still. Eragon's three remaining guards lay at the edge of the soot, where the explosion had thrown them. Even as he watched, they staggered upright, blood dripping from their ears and gaping mouths, their beards singed and in disarray. The links along the fringe of their hauberks glowed red, but their leather underarmor seemed to have protected them from the worst of the heat. Eragon took a single step forward, then stopped and groaned as a patch of agony bloomed between his shoulder blades. He tried to twist his arm around to feel the extent of the wound, but as his skin stretched, the pain became too great to continue. Nearly losing consciousness, he leaned against the wall for support. He glanced at the burnt dwarf again. I must have suffered similar injuries on my back. Forcing himself to concentrate, he recited two of the spells designed to heal burns that Brom had taught him during their travels. As they took effect, it felt as if cool, soothing water were flowing across his back. He sighed with relief and straightened. Are you hurt? he asked as his guards hobbled over. The lead dwarf frowned, tapped his right ear and shook his head. Eragon muttered a curse and only then did he notice he could not hear his own voice. Again, drawing upon the reserves of energy within his body, he cast a spell to repair the inner mechanisms of his ears 
and of theirs. As the incantation concluded, an irritating itch squirmed inside his ears, then faded along with the spell. Are you hurt? The dwarf on the right, a burly fellow with a forked beard, coughed and spat out a glob of congealed blood, then growled, Nothing that time won't mend. What of you, Shade Slayer? I'll live. Testing the floor with every step, Aragon entered the soot-blackened area and knelt beside Kvaistor, hoping that he might still save the dwarf from the clutches of death. As soon as he beheld Kvaistor's wound again, he knew it was not to be. Aragon bowed his head, the memory of recent and former bloodshed bitter to his soul. He stood. Why did the lantern explode? They are filled with heat and light, Arjitlam, one of his guards replied. If they are broken, all of it escapes at once, and then it is better to be far away. Gesturing at the crumpled corpses of their attackers, Aragon asked, Do you know of which clan they are? The dwarf with a forked beard rifled through the clothes of several of the black-garbed dwarves, then said, Bazul! They carry no marks upon them, such as you would recognize, Arjatlam, but they carry this. He held up a bracelet made of braided horsehair, set with polished cabochons of amethyst. What does it mean? This amethyst, said the dwarf, and tapped one of the cabochons with a soot-streaked fingernail. This particular variety of amethyst, it grows in only four parts of the Beor Mountains, and three of them belong to Asweldin Rak Anuin. Aragon frowned. Grinst Borith Vermund ordered this attack? I cannot say for sure, Arjatlam. Another clan might have left the bracelet for us to find. They might want us to think it was Asweldin Rak Anuin so we do not realize who our foes really are. But if I had to wager, Arjatlam, I would wager a cartload of gold that it is Asweldenrak Anuin who is responsible. Blast them, Aragon murmured. Whoever it was, blast them. He clenched his fists to stop them from shaking. With the side of his boot, he nudged one of the prismatic daggers the assassins had wielded. The spells on these weapons, and on the... on the men, he motioned with his chin. Men, dwarves, be as it may, they must have required an incredible amount of energy, and I cannot even imagine how complex their wording was. Casting them would have been hard and dangerous. Aragon looked at each of his guards in turn and said, As you are my witnesses... I swear I shall not let this attack nor Kveister's death go unpunished. Whichever clan or clan sent these dung-faced killers, when I learn their names, they will wish they had never thought to strike at me. And by striking at me, strike at Durgrimstin Jeetum. This I swear to you as a dragon rider and as a fellow member of Durgrimstin Jeetum. And if any ask you of it, Repeat my promise to them, as I have given it to you. The dwarves bowed before him, and he with the forked beard replied, As you command, so we shall obey, Arjitlam. You honour Hrothgar's memory by your words. Then another of the dwarves said, Whichever clan it was, 
They have violated the law of hospitality. They have attacked a guest. They are not even so high as rats. They are Manerlin. He spat on the floor, and the other dwarves spat with him. Eragon walked to where the remains of his falchion lay. He knelt in the soot, and with the tip of a finger touched one of the pieces of metal, tracing its ragged edges. I must have hit the shield and the wall so hard. I overwhelmed the spells I used to reinforce the steel, he thought. Then he thought, I need a sword. I need a rider's sword. A Matter of Perspective The wind of morning heat above flat land, which was different from the wind of morning heat above hills, shifted. Zephira adjusted the angle of her wings to compensate for the changes in the speed and pressure of the air that supported her weight thousands of feet above the sun-bathed land below. She closed her double eyelids for a moment, luxuriating in the soft bed of the wind, as well as the warmth of the morning rays beating down upon her sinewy length. She imagined how the light must make her scales sparkle, and how those who saw her circling in the sky must marvel at the sight, and she hummed with pleasure content in the knowledge that she was the most beautiful creature in Allegasia, for who could hope to match the glory of her scales and her long, tapering tail and her wings so fair and well-formed and her curved claws and her long white fangs with which she could sever the neck of a wild ox with a single bite? Not Glader of the Gold Scales, who had lost a leg during the fall of the riders, nor could Thorn nor Shruken, for they were both slaves to Galbatorix, and their forced servitude had twisted their minds. A dragon who was not free to do as he or she wished was not a dragon at all. Besides, they were males, and while males might appear majestic, they could not embody the beauty she did. No. She was the most stunning creature in Allegasia, and that was as it should be. Sophia wriggled with satisfaction all the way from the base of her head to the tip of her tail. Today was a perfect day. The heat of the sun made her feel as if she were lying in a nest of coals. Her belly was full, the sky was clear, and there was nothing she needed to attend to besides watching for foes who might wish to fight, which he did anyway as a matter of habit. Her happiness had only one flaw, but it was a profound flaw, and the longer she considered it, the more discontented she grew, until she realized she was no longer satisfied. She wished Aragon were there to share the day with her. She growled and loosed a brief jet of blue flame from between her jaws, searing the air in front of her, then constricted her throat, cutting off the stream of liquid fire. Her tongue tingled from the flames that had run over it. When was Aragon, partner of her mind and heart, Aragon, going to contact Nasawada from Tronjim and ask for her, Sephira, to join him? She had urged him to obey Nasawada and travel to the mountains higher than she could fly, 
but now too long had passed and Sephira felt cold and empty in her gut. There is a shadow in the world, she thought. That is what has upset me. Something is wrong with Aragon. He is in danger, or he was in danger recently, and I cannot help him. She was not a wild dragon. Since she had hatched, she had shared her entire life with Aragon, and without him, she was only half herself. If he died because she was not there to protect him, she would have no reason to continue living, save for revenge. She knew she would tear his killers apart, and then she would fly on the black city of the egg-breaker traitor who had kept her imprisoned for so many decades, and she would do her best to slay him, no matter that it would mean certain death for her. Sophia growled again and snapped at a tiny sparrow that was foolish enough to fly within range of her teeth. She missed, and the sparrow darted past and continued on its way unmolested, which only exacerbated her foul mood. For a moment she considered chasing the sparrow, but then decided it was not worth bothering herself over such an inconsequential speck of bones and feathers. It would not even make a good snack. Tilting on the wind, and swinging her tail in the opposite direction to facilitate her turn, she wheeled around, studying the ground far below, and all the small, scurrying things that strove to hide from her hunter's eyes. Even from her height of thousands of feet, she could count the number of feathers on the back of a chicken hawk that was skimming the fields of planted wheat west of the Jeet River. She could see the blur of brown fur as a rabbit dashed to the safety of its warren, she could pick out the small herd of deer cowering underneath the branches of the current bushes, clustered along a tributary of the Jeet River, and she could hear the high-pitched squeaks of frightened animals warning their brethren of her presence. Their wavering cries gratified her. It was only right that her food should fear her. If ever she should fear it, she would know it was her time to die. A league farther upstream, the Varden were packed against the Jeet River like a herd of red deer against the edge of a cliff. The Varden had arrived at the crossing yesterday, and since then, perhaps a third of the men who were friends, and the Urgles who were friends, and the horses she must not eat, had forded the river. The army moved so slowly, she sometimes wondered how humans ever had time to do anything other than travel, considering how short their lives were. It would be much more convenient if they could fly, she thought, and wondered why they did not choose to. Flying was so easy, it never ceased to puzzle her why any creature would remain earthbound. Even Aragon retained his attachment to the soft, hard ground, when she knew he could join her in the sky at any time, merely by uttering a few words in the ancient language. But then she did not always understand the actions of those who tottered about on two legs, whether they had round ears, pointed ears, or horns, or were so short she could squash them under her feet. A flicker of movement to the northeast caught her attention, and she angled toward it, curious. She saw a line of five-and-forty weary horses trudging toward the Varden. Most of the horses were riderless. Therefore it did not occur to her until another half-hour had elapsed and she could make out the faces of the men in the saddles that the group might be Rorans returning from their raid. She wondered what had happened to so reduce their numbers, 
and felt a momentary twinge of unease. She was not bonded to Roran, but Eragon cared for him, and that was reason enough for her to worry about his well-being. Pushing her consciousness down toward the disorganized Varden, she searched until she found the music of Arya's mind, and once the elf acknowledged her and allowed access to her thoughts, Sephira said, Roran shall be here by late afternoon. However, his company is sore diminished. Some great evil befell them this trip. Thank you, Sephira, said Arya. I shall inform Nasawada. As Sephira withdrew from Arya's mind, she felt the questing touch of black-blue wolf-hair blodgarm. I am not a hatchling, she snapped. You need not check on my health every few minutes. You have my most humble apologies, Bjartskula. Only you have been gone for quite some time now. And if any are watching, they will begin to wonder why you and— Yes, I know, she growled. Shortening her wingspan, she tilted downward, the sensation of weight leaving her and gyrated in slow spirals as she dove toward the turgid river. I shall be there shortly. A thousand feet above the water, she flared her wings and felt the strain in her flight membranes as the wind pressed against them with immense force. She slowed to a near standstill, then spilled air from her wings and accelerated once more, gliding to within a hundred feet of the brown, not-good-to-drink water. With an occasional flap to maintain her altitude, she flew up the Jeet River, alert for the sudden changes of pressure that plagued cool air above flowing water and that could push her in an unexpected direction, or worse, into sharp pointy trees, or the breakbone ground. She swept high above the Varden gathered next to the river, high enough that her arrival would not unduly frighten the silly horses. Then drifting downward upon still wings, she landed in a clearing among the tents, a clearing Nasuada had ordered set aside just for her, and crawled through the camp, to Eragon's empty tent, where Blodgarm and the eleven other elves he commanded were waiting for her. She greeted them with a blink of her eyes and a flick of her tongue, and then curled up in front of Eragon's tent, resigned to dozing and waiting for dark, as she would if Eragon were actually in the tent and he and she were flying missions at night. It was dull, tedious work lying there day after day, but it was necessary in order to maintain the deception that Eragon was still with the Varden. So Sephira did not complain, even if after twelve or more hours spent on the rough, hard ground, dirtying her scales, she felt like fighting a thousand soldiers, or raising a forest with tooth and claw and fire, or leaping up and flying until she could fly no more, or until she reached the end of earth, water and air. Growling to herself, she kneaded the ground with her claws, softening it, then lay her head across her forelegs and closed her inner eyelids so she could rest and still watch those who walked by. A dragonfly buzzed over her head, and not for the first time she wondered what could have possibly inspired some feeble-minded runtling to name the insect after her race. It looks nothing like a dragon, she grumbled then drifted off into a light sleep. The big round fire in the sky was close to the horizon, 
when Sephira heard the shouts and cries of welcome that meant Roran and his fellow warriors had reached the camp. She roused herself. As he had before, Blodgarm half sang, half whispered a spell that created an insubstantial likeness of Eragon, which the elf caused to walk out of the tent and climb onto Sephira's back, where it sat looking around in a perfect imitation of independent life. Visually the apparition was flawless, but it had no mind of its own, and if any of Galbatorix's agents tried to eavesdrop upon Eragon's thoughts, they would discover the deceit forthwith. Therefore the success of the ploy depended upon Sephira ferrying the apparition through the camp and out of sight as quickly as possible, and upon the hope that Eragon's reputation was so formidable it would discourage clandestine observers from attempting to glean information about the Varden from his consciousness for fear of his vengeance. Sephira started up and bounded through the camp, the twelve elves running in formation around her. Men leaped out of their path, shouting, Hail Shadeslayer! and Hail Sephira! which kindled a warm glow in her belly. When she arrived at Nasawada's folded wing red butterfly chrysalis tent, she crouched and stuck her head inside the dark gap along one wall, where Nasawada's guards had pulled aside a panel of fabric to allow her access. Blodgarm resumed his soft singing then, and the Eragon wraith climbed down off Sephira, entered the crimson tent, and once it was out of sight of the gawking onlookers outside, dissolved into nothingness. Do you think our ruse was discovered? Nasawada asked from her high-backed chair. Blodgarm bowed with an elegant gesture. Again, Lady Nasawada, I cannot say for sure. We will have to wait and see if the Empire moves to take advantage of Aragon's absence before we will know the answer to that question. Thank you, Blodgarm. That will be all. With another bow, the elf withdrew from the tent and took up a position several yards behind Sephira, guarding her flank. Sephira settled down onto her underside and began to lick clean the scales around the third claw on her left forefoot, between which there had accumulated unsightly lines of the dry white clay she remembered standing in when she ate her last kill. Not a minute later, Martland Redbeard, Roran, and a man with round ears, whom she did not recognize, entered the red tent and bowed to Nasawada. Sephira paused in her cleaning to taste the air with her tongue and discerned the tang of dried blood, the bitter sour musk of sweat, the scent of horse and leather intermingled, and, faint but unmistakable, the sharp spike of man-fear. She examined the trio again, and saw that the red long-beard man had lost his right hand, then returned to excavating the clay from around her scales. She continued licking her foot, restoring every scale to pristine brilliance, while first Martland, then the man with round ears who was Ulhart, then Roran, told a tale of blood and fire and of laughing men who refused to die at their allotted times but insisted upon continuing to fight long past when Angvard had called their names. As was her wont, Sephira held her peace, while others, specifically Nasawada and her adviser, long man gaunt-faced Jormunda, questioned the warriors about the details of their ill-fated mission. Sephira knew it sometimes puzzled Eragon why she did not participate more in conversations. Her reasons for silence were simple. 
save for Arya or Gleda, she felt most comfortable communicating only with Aragon, and in her opinion most conversations were nothing more than pointless dithering. Whether round ear, pointed ear, horned or short, two legs seemed addicted to dithering. Brom had not dithered, which was something Sephira had liked about him. For her, choices were simple. Either there was an action she could take to improve the situation, in which case she took it, or there was not, and everything else said on the subject was so much meaningless noise. In any event, she did not worry herself about the future, except where Aragon was concerned. Him she always worried about. When the questions were finished, Nasawada expressed her condolences to Martland for his lost hand, then dismissed Martland and Ulhart, but not Roran, to whom she said, You have demonstrated your prowess once again, Stronghammer. I am well pleased with your abilities. Thank you, my lady. Our best healers will attend to him, but Martland will still need time to recover from his injury. Even once he does, he cannot lead raids such as these with only one hand. From now on, he will have to serve the Varden from the back of the army, not the front. I think, perhaps, that I shall promote him and make him one of my battle advisers. Jormunder, what think you of that idea? I think it an excellent idea, my lady. Nasawada nodded, appearing satisfied. This means, however, that I must find another captain for you to serve under, Roran. Then Roran said, My lady, what of my own command? Have I not proven myself to your satisfaction with these two raids, as well as with my past accomplishments? If you continue to distinguish yourself as you have, Stronghammer, you will win your command soon enough. However, you must be patient and abide a while longer. Two missions alone, however impressive, may not reveal the full scope of a man's character. I am a cautious person when it comes to entrusting my people to others, Stronghammer. In this, you must humor me. Roran gripped the head of the hammer stuck through his belt, veins and tendons standing out on his hand, but his tone remained polite. Of course, Lady Nesawada. Very good. A page will bring you your new assignment later today. Oh, and see to it that you have a large meal once you and Katrina finish celebrating your reunion. That's an order, Stronghammer. You look as if you're about to fall over. My lady. As Roran started to leave, Nasawada raised a hand and said, Roran? He paused. Now that you have fought these men who feel no pain, do you believe that having similar protection from the agonies of the flesh would make it easier to defeat them? Roran hesitated, then shook his head. Their strength is their weakness. They do not shield themselves as they would if they feared the bite of a sword or the stab of an arrow, and thus they are careless with their lives. It is true they can continue fighting long past when an ordinary man would have dropped dead and that is no small advantage in battle. But they also die in greater numbers because they do not protect their bodies as they ought. In their numb confidence, they will walk into traps and peril we would go to great lengths to avoid. As long as the Varden spirits remain high, I believe that with the right tactics we can prevail against these laughing monsters. If we were like them, though, we would hack each other into oblivion and neither of us would care since we would have no thought for self-preservation. 
Those are my thoughts. Thank you, Roran. When Roran had gone, Safira said, Nothing yet from Aragon? Nasawada shook her head. No, nothing yet from him, and his silence is beginning to concern me. If he has not contacted us by the day after tomorrow, I will have Arya send a message to one of Auric's spellcasters, demanding a report from him. If Aragon is unable to hasten the end of the dwarf's clanmate, then I fear we will no longer be able to count on the dwarves as allies during the battles to come. The only good of such a disastrous outcome would be that Aragon could return to us without further delay. When Sephira was ready to leave the red chrysalis tent, Blodgarm again summoned up the apparition of Aragon and placed it on Sephira's back. Then Sephira withdrew her head from the confines of the tent, and as she had before, bounded through the camp, the lithe elves keeping step with her the entire way. Once she reached Aragon's tent, and the coloured shadow Aragon disappeared inside it, Sephira lowered herself to the ground and resigned herself to waiting out the remainder of the day in unrelieved monotony. Before she resumed her reluctant nap, however, she extended her mind toward Roran and Katrina's tent and pressed against Roran's mind until he lowered the barriers around his consciousness. Safira? he asked. Do you know another such as me? Of course not. You just surprised me. I am, uh, somewhat occupied at the moment. She studied the colour of his emotions as well as those of Katrina and was amused by her findings. I only wished to welcome you back. I'm glad you were not injured. Roran's thoughts flashed quick, hot, muddled cold, and he seemed to have difficulty forming a coherent answer. Eventually he said, That's very kind of you, Safira. If you can, come visit me tomorrow, when we may speak at greater length. I grow restless sitting here day after day. Perhaps you could tell me more about how Aragon was before I hatched for him. It... it would be my honour. Satisfied she had fulfilled the demands of Round Ears Two Legs courtesy by welcoming Roran, and heartened by the knowledge that the following day would not be as boring, for it was unthinkable anyone would dare ignore her request for an audience. Sephira made herself as comfortable as she could on the bare earth, wishing, as she often did, for the soft nest that was hers in Aragon's wind-rocked treehouse in Ellesmira. A puff of smoke escaped her as she sighed and fell asleep and dreamed that she flew higher than she ever had before. She flapped and she flapped until she rose above the unreachable peaks of the Beor Mountains. There she circled for a time, gazing down at the whole of Alagasia laid out before her. Then an uncontrollable desire entered her to climb even higher and see what she might, and so she began flapping again, and in what seemed like the blink of an eye she soared past the glaring moon until only she and the silver stars hung in the black sky. She drifted among the heavens for an indeterminate period, queen of the bright, jewel-like world below. But then disquiet entered her soul, 
and she cried out with her thoughts, Aragon, where are you? Kiss me, sweet. Waking, Roran extricated himself from Katrina's smooth arms and sat bare-chested on the edge of the cot they shared. He yawned and rubbed his eyes, then gazed at the pale strip of firelight that glowed between the two entrance flaps, feeling dull and stupid with accumulated exhaustion. A chill crept over him, but he remained where he was, motionless. Roran? Katrina asked in a sleep-smeared voice. She propped herself up on one arm and reached for him with the other. He did not react as she touched him, sliding her hand across his upper back and rubbing his neck. Sleep. You need your rest. You'll be gone again before long. He shook his head, not looking at her. What is it? she asked. Sitting upright, she pulled a blanket over his shoulders, then leaned against him, her cheek warm against his arm. Are you worried about your new captain? Or where Nasawada may send you next? No. She was silent for a while. Every time you leave, I feel as if less of you returns to me. You have become so grim and quiet. If you want to tell me about what is troubling you, you can, you know, no matter how terrible it is. I am the daughter of a butcher, and I have seen my share of men fall in battle. Want! Roran exclaimed, choking on the word. I don't ever want to think about it again. He clenched his fists, his breathing uncertain. A true warrior would not feel as I do. A true warrior, she said, does not fight because he wishes to, but because he has to. A man who yearns for war, a man who enjoys his killing, he is a brute and a monster. No matter how much glory he wins on the battlefield, that cannot erase the fact that he is no better than a rabid wolf who will turn on his friends and family as soon as his foes. She brushed his hair away from his brow and stroked the top of his head, light and slow. You once told me that the Song of Gerund was your favourite of Brom stories, that it was why you fight with a hammer instead of a blade. Remember how Gerund disliked killing and how reluctant he was to take up arms again? Aye. And yet he was considered the greatest warrior of his age. She cupped his cheek in her hand and turned his face toward her so that he was forced to gaze into her solemn eyes. And you are the greatest warrior I know of, Roran, here or anywhere. With a dry mouth he said, What of Aragon, or— They are not half so valorous as you. Aragon, Murtag, Galbatorix, the elves— all of them march into battle with spells upon their lips and might that far exceeds ours. But you, she kissed him on the nose, you are no more than a man. You face your foes on your own two feet. You are not a magician, and yet you slew the twins. You are only as fast and as strong as a human may be, and yet you did not shirk from attacking the Razak in their lair and freeing me from their dungeon. He swallowed. I had wards from Aragon to protect me. But no longer. Besides, you did not have any wards in Carverhull either. And did you flee from the Razak then? When he was unresponsive, she said, You are no more than a man. 
but you have done things not even Aragon or Murtag could have. To me, that makes you the greatest warrior in Alagasia. I cannot think of anyone else in Carvajal who would have gone to the lengths you did to rescue me. Your father would have, he said. He felt her shiver against him. Yes, he would have, she whispered. But he never would have been able to convince others to follow him as you did. She tightened her arm around him. Whatever you have seen or done, you will always have me. That is all I will ever need, he said, and clasped her in his arms and held her for a span. Then he sighed. Still, I wish this war were at an end. I wish I could till a field again and sow my crops and harvest them when they ripened. Farming is back-breaking work, but at least it is honest labour. This killing isn't honest. It is thievery, the thievery of men's lives, and no right-minded person should aspire to it. As I said. As you said. Difficult as it was, he made himself smile. I have forgotten myself. Here I am, burdening you with my troubles, when you have worries enough of your own. And he placed a hand over her rounding womb. Your troubles shall always be my troubles, so long as we are married, she murmured, and nuzzled his arm. Some troubles, he said, no one else should have to endure, especially not those you love. She withdrew an inch or two from him, and he saw her eyes become bleak and listless as they did whenever she felt to brooding over the time she had spent imprisoned in Hellgrind. No, she whispered. Some troubles no one else should have to endure. Oh, do not be sad. He pulled her closer and rocked back and forth with her and wished with all his might that Aragon had not found Zephira's egg in the spine. After a while, when Katrina had grown soft in his arms again, and even he no longer felt quite so tense. He caressed the curve of her neck. Come, kiss me, sweet, and then let us return to bed, for I am tired and I would sleep. She laughed at him then, and kissed him most sweetly, and then they lay upon the cot as they had before, and outside the tent all was still and quiet, except for the Jeet River, which flowed past the camp, never pausing, never stopping and poured itself into Roran's dreams, where he imagined himself standing at the prow of a ship, Katrina by his side, and gazing into the moor of the giant whirlpool, the boar's eye. And he thought, How can we hope to escape? Gloomra Hundreds of feet below Trondheim, the stone opened up into a cavern thousands of feet long, with a still black lake of unknown depth along one side, and a marble shore on the other. Brown and ivory stalactites dripped from the ceiling, while stalagmites stabbed upward from the ground, and in places the two joined, to form bulging pillars thicker around than even the largest trees in Duweldenwarden. Scattered among the pillars were mounds of compost, studded with mushrooms as well as three-and-twenty low stone huts. A flameless lantern glowed iron-red next to each of their doors. Beyond the reach of the lanterns, shadows abounded. 
Inside one of the huts, Aragon sat in a chair that was too small for him, at a granite table no higher than his knees. The smell of soft goat cheese, sliced mushrooms, yeast, stew, pigeon eggs, and coal dust pervaded the air. Across from him, Glumra, a dwarf woman of the family of Maud, she who was the mother of Kvaistor, Aragon's slain guard, wailed and tore at her hair and beat at her breast with her fists. Glistening tracks marked where her tears had rolled down her plump face. The two of them were alone in the hut. Aragon's four guards, their numbers replenished by Thrand, a warrior from Oryx's retinue, were waiting outside, along with Hundfast, Aragon's translator, whom Aragon had dismissed from the hut once he learned that Glumra could speak his language. After the attempt on his life, Aragon had contacted Oryk with his mind, whereupon Oryk insisted Aragon run as fast as he could to the chambers of the Injitum, where he would be safe from any more assassins. Aragon had obeyed, and there he had remained while Oryk forced the clanmeet to adjourn until the following morning, on the grounds that an emergency had arisen within his clan that required his immediate attention. Then Oryk marched with his stoutest warriors and most adept spellcaster to the site of the ambush, which they studied and recorded with means both magical and mundane. Once Oryk was satisfied they had learned all they could, he had hurried back to his chambers, where he said to Aragon, We have much to do, and little time in which to do it. Before the clan meet resumes upon the third morning hour of tomorrow, we must attempt to establish beyond all doubt who ordered the attack. If we can, then we will have leverage to use against them. If not, then we will be flailing in the dark, uncertain of our enemies. We can keep the attack a secret until the clan meet, but no longer. Nurlan will have heard echoes of your fight throughout the tunnels under Tronchim, and even now I know they will be searching for the source of the disturbance, for fear there may have been a cave-in or similar catastrophe that might undermine the city above. Oryk stamped his feet and cursed the ancestors of whoever had sent the assassins, then planted his fists on his hips and said, A clan war was already threatening us, but now it stands upon our very threshold. We must move quickly if we are to avert that dread fate. There are Nurlan to find, questions to ask, threats to make, bribes to offer, and scrolls to steal, and all before morn. What of me? Aragon asked. You should remain here until we know if Asweldenrak Anuin or some other clan has a larger force massed elsewhere to kill you. Also, as long as we can hide from your attackers, whether you are alive, dead, or wounded, the longer we may keep them uncertain as to the safety of the rock beneath their feet. At first Aragon agreed with Oryx's proposal, but as he watched the dwarf bustle about issuing orders, he felt increasingly uneasy and helpless. Finally he caught Oryx by the arm and said, If I have to sit here and stare at the wall while you search for the villains who did this— I'll grind my teeth down to nubs. There must be something I can do to help. What of Kvaistor? Do any of his family live in Trondheim? Has anyone told them of his death yet? Because if not, I would be the one to bring them the tidings, for it was me he died defending. Oryk inquired of his guards, and from them they learnt that Kvaistor did indeed have family in Trondheim, 
or more accurately, underneath Tronchin. When he heard, Oric frowned and muttered a strange word in Dwarvish. They are deep dwellers, he said. Nolan, who have forsaken the surface of the land for the world below, except for occasional forays above. More of them live here below Trondheim and Farthendur than anywhere else because they can come out in Farthendur and not feel as if they are actually outside, which most of them cannot bear. They are so accustomed to closed-in spaces. I had not known Kveister was of their number. Would you mind if I go to visit his family? Aragon asked. Among these rooms there are stairs that lead below, am I right? We could leave without anyone being the wiser. Oric thought for a moment, then nodded. You're right. The path is safe enough, and no one would think to look for you among the deep dwellers. They would come here first, and here they would otherwise find you. Go, and do not return until I send a messenger for you, even if the family of Maud turns you away, and you must sit on a stalagmite until morn. But Aragon, be you careful. The deep dwellers keep to themselves for the most part, and they are prickly to an extreme about their honour, and they have strange customs of their own. Tread carefully as if you were on rotten shale, eh? And so, with Thrand added to his guards, and Hundfast accompanying them, and with a short dwarf sword belted around his waist, Aragon went to the nearest staircase leading downward, and following it, he descended farther into the bowels of the earth than ever he had before. And in due time he found Glumra, and informed her of Kveister's demise, and now he sat listening as she grieved for her slain child, alternating between wordless howls and scraps of dwarvish sung in a haunting, dissonant key. Discomforted by the strength of her sorrow, Aragon glanced away from her face. He looked at the green soapstone stove that stood against one wall, and the worn carvings of geometric design that adorned its edges. He studied the green and brown rug that lay before the hearth, and the churn in the corner, and the provisions hanging from the beams of the ceiling. He gazed at the heavy timbered loom that stood underneath a round window with panes of lavender glass. Then at the height of her wailing, Glumra caught Aragon's eye as she rose from the table, went to the counter, and placed her left hand on the cutting board. Before Aragon could stop her, she took a carving knife and cut off the first joint of her little finger. She groaned and doubled over. Aragon sprang halfway up with an involuntary exclamation. He wondered what madness had overcome the dwarf woman, and whether he should attempt to restrain her, lest she should do herself additional harm. He opened his mouth to ask if she wanted him to heal the wound, but then he thought better of it, remembering Oryx's admonishments about the deep-dweller's strange customs and strong sense of honour. She might consider the offer an insult, he realised. Closing his mouth, he sank back into his too small chair. After a minute, Glumra straightened out of her hunched position, took a deep breath, and then quietly and calmly washed the raw end of her finger with brandy, smeared it with a yellow salve, and bandaged the wound. Her moon face still pale from the shock, she lowered herself into the chair opposite Aragon. I thank you, Shade Slayer, 
for bringing me news of mine son's fate yourself. I am glad to know that he died proudly, as a warrior ought to. He was most brave, Aragon said. He could see that our enemies were as fast as elves, and yet he still leaped forward to protect me. His sacrifice brought me time to escape their blades, and also revealed the danger of the enchantments they had placed on their weapons. If not for his actions, I doubt I would be here now. Glumra nodded slowly, eyes downcast, and smoothed the front of her dress. Do you know who was responsible for this attack on our clan, Shadeslayer? We have only suspicions. Grimes Borithoric is trying to determine the truth of the matter even as we speak. Was it as Swelden Rak Anuin? Glumra asked, surprising Aragon with the astuteness of her guest. He did his best to conceal his reaction. When he remained silent, she said, We all know of their blood feud with you, Arjatlan. Every Nurla within these mountains knows. Some of us have looked with favour upon their opposition of you. But if they thought to actually kill you, then they have misjudged the lay of the rock and doomed themselves because of it. Aragon raised an eyebrow, interested. Doomed? How? It was you, Shadeslayer, who slew Durza, and so allowed us to save Tronchim and the dwellings below from the clutches of Galbatorix. Our race shall never forget that, so long as Tronchim remains standing. And then there is word come by the tunnels that your dragon shall make whole again Isidar Mithrim. Aragon nodded. That is good of you, Shadeslayer. You have done much for our race, and whichever clan it was attacked you, we shall turn against them and have our vengeance. I swore before witnesses, Aragon said, and I swear to you as well that I will punish whoever sent those backstabbing murderers and that I'll make them wish they had never thought of such a foul deed. However, thank you, Shadeslayer. Aragon hesitated, then inclined his head. However, we must not do anything that would ignite a clan war. Not now. If force is to be used, it should be Grimes Borith Oric who decides when and where we draw our swords. Don't you agree? I will think upon what you have said, Shadeslayer, Glumra replied. Oric is... Whatever she was going to say next caught in her mouth. Her thick eyelids drooped and she sagged forward for a moment, pressing her maimed hand against her abdomen. When the bout passed, she pushed herself upright and held the back of the hand against her opposite cheek and swayed from side to side, moaning. Oh, mine son, mine beautiful son. Standing, she staggered around the table, heading toward a small collection of swords and axes, mounted on the wall behind Aragon, next to an alcove covered by a curtain of red silk. Afraid that she intended to cause herself further injury, Aragon leaped to his feet, knocking over the oak chair in his haste. He reached for her, and then saw that she was walking toward the curtained alcove, not the weapons, and he snatched his arm back before he caused offence. The brass rings sewn on top of the silk drapery clattered against one another, as Glumra swept aside the cloth, to expose a deep, shadowed shelf, 
carved with runes and shapes of such fantastic detail. Aragon thought he could stare at them for hours and still not grasp them in their entirety. On the low shelf rested statues of the six major dwarf gods, as well as nine other entities Aragon was unfamiliar with, all carved with exaggerated features and postures to better convey the character of the being portrayed. Glumra removed an amulet of gold and silver from within her bodice, which she kissed and then held against the hollow of her throat as she knelt before the alcove, her voice rising and falling in the strange patterns of dwarf music. She began to croon a dirge in her native language. The melody brought tears to Aragon's eyes. For several minutes, Glumra sang, and then she fell silent and continued to gaze at the figurines. And as she gazed, the lines of her grief-ravaged face softened. And where before Aragon had perceived only anger, distress, and hopelessness, her countenance assumed an air of calm acceptance of peacefulness, and of sublime transcendence. A soft glow seemed to emanate from her features. So complete was Glumra's transformation, Aragon almost did not recognize her. She said, Tonight, Kvaistor will dine in Morgothol's hall. That I know. She kissed her amulet again. I wish I might break bread with him along with mine husband, Bowden. But it is not mine time to sleep in the catacombs of Trondheim, and Morgothal refuses entry to his hall to those who quicken their arrival. But in time our family shall be reunited, including all of our ancestors since Guntera created the world from darkness. That I know. Aragon knelt next to her, and in a hoarse voice he asked, how do you know this? I know because it is so. Her movements slow and respectful, Glumra touched the chiseled feet of each of the gods with the tips of her fingers. How could it be otherwise? Since the world could not have created itself any more than a sword or a helm might, and since the only beings with the wherewithal to forge the earth and the heavens into shape are those with divine power, it is to the gods we must look for our answers. Them I trust to ensure the rightness of the world, and by mine trust I free myself of the burdens of mine flesh. She spoke with such conviction, Aragon felt a sudden desire to share in her belief. He longed to toss aside his doubts and fears, and to know that however horrible the world might seem at times, life was not mere confusion. He wished to know for certain that who he was would not end if a sword should shear off his head, and that one day he would meet again with Brom, Garrow, and everyone else he had cared for and lost. A desperate yearning for hope and comfort filled him, confused him, left him unsteady upon the face of the earth. And yet, part of himself held back and would not allow him to commit to the dwarf gods and bind his identity and his sense of well-being to something he did not understand. He also had difficulty accepting that if gods did exist, the dwarf gods were the only ones. Aragorn was certain that if he asked Nargajvag or a member of the nomad tribes or even the black 
priests of Helgrind if their gods were real. They would uphold the supremacy of their deities just as vigorously as Glumra would uphold hers. How am I supposed to know which religion is the true religion? He wondered. Just because someone follows a certain faith does not necessarily mean it is the right path. Perhaps no one religion contains all of the truth of the world. Perhaps every religion contains fragments of the truth, and it is our responsibility to identify those fragments and piece them together. Or perhaps the elves are right and there are no gods. But how can I know for sure? With a long sigh, Glumra murmured a phrase in Dwarvish, then rose from her knees and drew close the silk curtain over the alcove. Aragon likewise stood, wincing as his battle-sore muscles stretched, and followed her to the table where he returned to his chair. From a stone cupboard set into the wall, the dwarf woman took two pewter mugs, then retrieved a bladder full of wine from where it hung from the ceiling and poured a drink for both her and Aragon. She raised her mug and uttered a toast in dwarvish which Aragon struggled to imitate, and then they drank. It is good, said Glumra, to know that Kvaistor still lives on, to know that even now he is garbed in robes fit for a king while he enjoys the evening feast in Morgothol's hall. May he win much honour in the service of the gods. And she drank again. Once he had emptied his mug, Aragon began to bid farewell to Glumra, but she forestalled him with a motion of her hand. Have you a place to stay, Shadeslayer, safe from those who wish you dead? Whereupon Aragon told her how he was supposed to remain hidden underneath Tronchim until Oryx sent a messenger for him. Glumra nodded with a short, definitive jerk of her chin and said, then you and your companions must wait here until the messenger arrives, Shadeslayer. I insist upon it. Aragon started to protest, but she shook her head. I could not allow the men who fought with mine son to languish in the damp and the dark of the caves while I yet have life in mine bones. Summon your companions, and we shall eat and be merry this gloomy night. Aragon realized that he could not leave without upsetting Glumra. So he called to his guards and his translator. Together they helped Glumra to prepare a dinner of bread, meat, and pie. And when it was ready, the lot of them ate and drank and talked late into the night. Glumra was particularly lively. She drank the most, laughed the loudest, and was always the first to make a witty remark. At first Aragon was shocked by her behavior. But then he noticed how her smiles never reached her eyes and how, if she thought no one was looking, the mirth would drain from her face, and her expression would become one of sombre quietude. Entertaining them, he concluded, was her way of celebrating her son's memory, as well as fending off her grief at Kveister's death. I have never met anyone like you before, he thought as he watched her. Long after midnight, someone knocked on the door of the hut. Unfast ushered in a dwarf who was garbed in full armour and who seemed edgy and ill at ease. He kept glancing at the doors and windows and shadowed corners. With a series of phrases in the ancient language he convinced Aragon that he was Oryx's messenger, and then he said, I am Farn, son of Flossie, Arjitlam. Oryx bids you return with all possible haste. 
He has most important tidings concerning the events of today. At the doorway, Glumra grasped Aragon's left forearm with fingers like steel, and as he gazed down into her flinty eyes, she said, Remember your oath, Shadeslayer, and do not let the killers of mine son escape without retribution. That I shall not, he promised. Clan Meat The dwarves, standing watch outside of Oryx's chambers, threw open the double doors that led inside as Aragon strode toward them. The entryway beyond was long and ornate, furnished with three circular seats upholstered with red fabric set in a line down the middle of the room. Embroidered hangings decorated the walls, along with the dwarves' ubiquitous flameless lanterns, while the ceiling had been carved to depict a famous battle from dwarven history. Oryx stood consulting with a group of his warriors and several grey-bearded dwarves of Durgrimstingetum. As Aragon approached, Oryx turned toward him, his face grim. Good, you did not delay. Hunfast, you may retire to your quarters now. We must need speak in private. Aragon's translator bowed and disappeared through an archway to the left, his footsteps echoing on the polished agate floor. Once he was out of hearing, Aragon said, You don't trust him? Oryx shrugged. I do not know whom to trust at the moment. The fewer people who know what we have discovered, the better. We cannot risk the news escaping to another clan before tomorrow. If it does, it will certainly mean a clan war. The dwarves behind him muttered among themselves, appearing disconcerted. What is your news, though? asked Aragon, worried. The warriors gathered behind Oryk moved aside as he gestured at them, revealing as they did so three bound and bloodied dwarves stacked on top of one another in the corner. The dwarf on the bottom groaned and kicked his feet in the air, but was unable to extricate himself from under his fellow prisoners. Who were they? asked Aragon. Oryk replied, I heard several of our smiths examine the daggers your attackers carried. They identified the craftsmanship as that of one Kiefna Longnose, a bladesmith of our clan who has achieved great renown among our people. So he can tell us who bought the daggers and thus who our enemies are. A brusque laugh shook Oryx's chest. <laughs> Hardly, but we were able to track the daggers from Kiefna to an armorer in Dalgon, many leagues from here, who sold them to a Nurlaf with... A Nurlaf? Aragon asked. Oryx scowled. A woman, a woman with seven fingers on each hand, bought the daggers two months ago. And did you find her? There can't be very many women with that number of fingers. Actually, the condition is fairly common among our people, said Oryk. Be that as it may, after quite a bit of difficulty we managed to locate the woman in Dalgon. My warriors there questioned her most closely. She is of Dorgrimst Nagra, but so far as we can determine, she was acting of her own accord, and not under orders from the leaders of her clan. From her we learned that a dwarf had engaged her to buy the daggers, and then to deliver them to a wine merchant who would take them with him from Dalgon. The woman's employer did not tell her where the daggers were destined, but by asking among the merchants of the city, 
we discovered that he travelled directly from Dalgon to one of the cities held by Dur Grimst as Swelden Rak Anuin. So it was them, Aragon exclaimed. That, or it could have been someone who wished us to think it was them. We needed more evidence before we could establish as Swelden Rak Anuin's guilt for certain. A twinkle appeared in Oric's eyes, and he raised a finger. So, by means of a very, very clever spell, we retraced the path of the assassins back through the tunnels and caves and up to a deserted area on the twelfth level of Tronjim, off the subadjunct auxiliary hall of the southern spoke in the western quadrant, along the... Ah, oh, well, it does not matter. But some day I will have to teach you how the rooms are arranged in Tronjim so that if ever you need to find a place within the city by yourself, you can. In any event, the trail led us to an abandoned storeroom, where those three, he gestured toward the bound dwarves, had been staying. They were not expecting us, and so we were able to capture them alive, although they tried to kill themselves. It was not easy. But we broke the minds of two of them, leaving the third for the other Grimstborothen to interrogate at their pleasure. And we took from them everything they knew about this matter. Oric pointed at the prisoners again. It was they who equipped the assassins for the attack, gave them the daggers and their black clothes, and fed and sheltered them last night. Who are they? asked Aragon. Bah! exclaimed Oric and spat on the floor. They are vile Grimston, warriors who have disgraced themselves and are now clanless. No one deals with such filth unless they are engaged in villainy themselves and do not wish others to know of it. And so it was with those three. They took their orders directly from Grimst Borith Vermund of Asweldon Rak Anuin. There is no doubt? Oric shook his head. There is no doubt. It is Aswaldenrak Anuin who tried to kill you, Aragon. We will probably never know if any other clans joined them in the attempt. But if we expose Aswaldenrak Anuin's treachery, it will force everyone else who might have been involved in the plot to disparage their former confederates, to abandon, or at least delay, further attacks on Durgrimst in Jeetum. And if this is handled properly, to give me their vote for king. An image flashed in Aragon's mind, of the prismatic blade emerging from the back of Kvaistor's neck, and of the dwarf's agonized expression as he had fallen to the floor, dying. How will we punish Asvelden Rakanuin for this crime? Should we kill Vermund? Ah, <laughs> leave that to me, said Oric, and tapped the side of his nose. I have a plan, but we must tread carefully, for this is a situation of the utmost delicacy. Such a betrayal has not occurred in many long years. As an outsider, you cannot know how abhorrent we find it that one of our own should attack a guest. You being the only free rider left to oppose Galbatorix only worsens the offence. Further bloodshed may yet be necessary, but at the moment it would only bring about another clan war. 
A clan war might be the only way to deal with Asweldon Rakanwin, Aragon pointed out. I think not. But if I am mistaken and war is unavoidable, we must ensure it is a war between the rest of the clans and Asweldon Rakanwin. That would not be so bad. Together we could crush them inside of a week. A war with the clan split into two or three factions, however, would destroy our country. It is crucial, then, that before we draw our swords, we convince the other clans of what Aswaldanalak Anuin has done. Toward that end, will you allow magicians from different clans to examine your memories of the attack so they may see it happened as we shall say it did? and that we did not stage it for our own benefit. Aragon hesitated, reluctant to open his mind to strangers, then nodded toward the three dwarves stacked on top of one another. What about them? Won't their memories be enough to convince the clans of Asweldon Rak Anuin's guilt? Oric grimaced. They ought to be, but in order to be thorough... The clan chiefs will insist upon verifying their memories against yours. And if you refuse, as Sweldenrak Anuin will claim we are hiding something from the clan meat, and that our accusations are nothing more than slanderous fiction. Very well, said Aragon. If I must, I must. But if any of the magicians stray where they are not supposed to, even if by accident... I will have no choice but to burn what they have seen out of their minds. There are some things I cannot allow to become common knowledge. Nodding, Oric said, Aye, I can think of at least one three-legged piece of information that would cause us some consternation if it were to be trumpeted throughout the land, eh? I am sure the clan chiefs will accept your conditions, for they all have secrets of their own they would not want bandied about, just as I am sure they will order their magicians to proceed regardless of the danger. This attack has the potential to incite such turmoil among our race that Grimes Borithan will feel compelled to determine the truth about it, though it may cost them their most skilled spellcasters drawing himself upright then, to the full extent of his limited height. Oric ordered the prisoners removed from the ornate entryway and dismissed all of his vassals, save for Aragon and a contingent of twenty-six of his finest warriors. With a graceful flourish, Oric grasped Aragon's left elbow and conducted him toward the inner rooms of his chambers. Tonight you must remain here with me, where Aswaldenrak Arnuin will not dare to strike. If you intend to sleep, said Aragon, I must warn you, I cannot rest, not tonight. My blood still churns from the tumult of the fight, and my thoughts are likewise uneasy. Oric replied, Rest or not, as you will, you shall not disturb my slumber, for I shall pull a thick woolen cap low over my eyes. I urge you to try and calm yourself, however. Perhaps with some of the techniques the elves taught you, and recover what strength you may. The new day is already upon us, and but a few hours remain until the clan meet shall be assembled. We should both be as fresh as possible for what is to come. 
What we do and say today shall determine the ultimate fate of mine people, mine country, and the rest of Allegasia. Oh, do not look so grim about the mouth. Think of this instead. Whether success or failure awaits us, and I surely hope we prevail, our names shall be remembered until the end of time for how we comport ourselves at this clan meet. That at least is an accomplishment to fill your belly with pride. The gods are fickle, and the only immortality we can count on is that which we win through our deeds. Fame or infamy, either one is preferable to being forgotten when you have passed from this realm. Later that night, in the dead hours before morning, Aragon's thoughts wandered as he sat slumped within the embrace of the padded arms of a dwarf couch, and the frame of his consciousness dissolved into the disordered fantasy of his waking dreams. Yet conscious of the mosaic of coloured stones mounted upon the wall opposite him, he also beheld, as if a glowing scrim draped over the mosaic, scenes of his life in Palancar Valley before momentous and bloody fate had intervened in his existence. The scenes diverged from established fact, however, and immersed him in imaginary situations, constructed piecemeal from fragments of what had actually been. In the last few moments before he roused himself from his stupor, his vision flickered, and the images acquired a sense of heightened reality. He was standing in Horst's workshop, the doors of which hung open, loose upon their hinges, like an idiot's slack-jaw grin. Outside was a starless night, and the all-consuming darkness seemed to press against the edges of the dull red light cast by the coals, as if eager to devour everything within the scope of that ruddy sphere. Next to the forge, Horst loomed like a giant, the shifting shadows upon his face and beard fearsome to behold. His burly arm rose and fell, and a bell-like clang shivered the air as the hammer he wielded struck the end of a yellow glowing bar of steel. A burst of sparks extinguished itself on the ground. Four more times the smith smote the metal. Then he lifted the bar from his anvil and plunged it into a barrel of oil. Wraith-like flames, blue and gossamer, flickered across the surface of the oil and then vanished with small shrieks of fury. Removing the bar from the barrel, Horst turned toward Aragon and frowned at him. He said, why have you come here, Aragon? I need a dragon rider's sword. Be gone with you. I have no time to forge you a rider's sword. Cannot you see I am working on a pothook for Elaine? She must have it for the battle. Are you alone? I do not know. Where is your father? Where is your mother? I do not know. Then a new voice sounded a well-polished voice of strength and power, and it said, Good Smith, he is not alone. He came with me. And who might you be? demanded Horst. I am his father. Between the gaping doors, a huge figure rimmed with pale light emerged from the clotted darkness and stood upon the threshold of the workshop. A red cape billowed from shoulders wider than a cull's. In the man's left hand gleamed Zarok, sharp as pain. Through the slits of his brightly polished helm, his blue eyes 
bored into Aragon, pinning him into place like an arrow through a rabbit. He lifted his free hand and held it out toward Aragon. My son, come with me. Together we can destroy the Varden, kill Galbatorix, and conquer all of Alagasia. But give me your heart, and we shall be invincible. Give me your heart, my son. With a strangled exclamation, Aragon leaped out of the couch and stood staring at the floor, his fists clenched, his chest heaving. Oryx's guards gave him inquisitive glances, but he ignored them, too upset to explain his outburst. The hour was still early, so after a time Aragon settled back onto the couch. But thereafter he remained alert and did not allow himself to sink into the land of dreams for fear of what manifestations might torment him. Aragon stood with his back to the wall, his hand on the pommel of his dwarf sword, as he watched the various clan chiefs file into the round conference room buried beneath Tronchim. He kept an especially close eye on Vermund, the Grimstborith of Asweldon Rak Anuin. But if the purple-veiled dwarf was surprised to see Aragon alive and well, he did not show it. Aragon felt Oryx's boot nudge his own. Without looking away from Vermund, Aragon leaned over toward Oryx and heard him whisper, Remember, to the left and three doorways down, referring to the place where Oryx had stationed a hundred of his warriors without the other clan chiefs knowing. Whispering as well, Aragon said, If blood is shed, should I seize the opportunity to kill that snake, Vermund? Unless he is attempting the same with you or me, please do not. A low chuckle emanated from Oryk. It would hardly endear you to the other Grimesborithen. Ah, I must go now. Pray to Sindri for luck, would you? We are about to venture into a lava field none have dared cross before. And Aragon prayed. When all of the clan chiefs were seated around the table in the centre of the room, those watching from the perimeter, including Aragon, took their own seats from among the ring of chairs set against the curving wall. Aragon did not relax into his, however, as many of the dwarves did, but sat upon the edge, ready to fight at the slightest hint of danger. As Ganel, the black-eyed warrior priest of Durgrimst Quan, rose from the table and began to speak in dwarvish, Hundfast sidled closer to Aragon's right side and murmured a continuous translation. The dwarf said, Greetings again, mine fellow clan chiefs, but whether tis well met or not, I am undecided. For certain disturbing rumours, rumours of rumours, if truth be told, have reached mine ears. I have no information beyond these vague and worrisome mutterings, nor proof upon which to found an accusation of misdeeds. However, as today is mine day to preside over this, our congregation, I propose that we delay our most serious debates for the moment, and if you are agreeable, allow me to pose a few questions to the meat. The clan chiefs muttered among themselves, and then Eorunan, bright, dimpling Eorunan, said, I have no objection, Grimst Boreth Gannel. You have aroused my curiosity with these cryptic insinuations. 
let us hear what questions you have. Aye, let us hear them, said Nardo. Let us hear them, agreed Mandrath, and all the rest of the clan chiefs, including Vermund. Having received the permission he sought, Ganel rested his knuckles upon the table and was silent for a span, garnering the attention of everyone in the room. Then he spoke. Yesterday, while we were lunching in our chosen places of repast, Nerlan throughout the tunnels underneath the southern quadrant of Tronchim heard a noise. Reports of its loudness differ, but that so many noticed it over so large an area proves that it was no small disturbance. Like you, I received the usual warnings of a possible cave-in. What you may not be aware of, however, is that just two hours passed. Hundfast hesitated and quickly whispered, The word is difficult to render in this tongue. Runners of the tunnels, I think. And then he resumed translating as before. Runners of the tunnels discovered evidence of a mighty fight within one of the ancient tunnels that our famed forefather, Corgan Longbeard, excavated. The floor was painted with blood, the walls were dark with soot from a lantern a warrior of careless blade did breach. Cracks split the surrounding stone, and sprawled throughout were seven charred and mangled bodies, with signs that others may have been removed. Nor were these the remnants of some obscure skirmish from the Battle of Farthandur, no, for the blood had yet to dry, the soot was soft, the cracks were most obviously freshly broken, and I am told the residue of powerful magics could still be detected within the area. Even now, several of our most accomplished spellcasters are attempting to reconstruct a pictorial facsimile of what occurred, but they have little hope of success, as those involved were wrapped about with such devious enchantments. So my first question for the meat is this. Do any of you possess further knowledge of this mysterious action? As Ganel concluded his speech, Aragon tensed his legs, ready to spring up if the purple-veiled dwarves of Asweldon Rakanuin should reach for their blades. Oric cleared his throat and said, I believe that I can satisfy some of your curiosity upon that point, Ganel. However, since my answer must of necessity be a lengthy one, I suggest you ask your other questions before I begin. A frown darkened Ganel's brow. Wrapping his knuckles against the table, he said, Very well. In what is undoubtedly related to the clash of arms in Corgan's tunnels, I have had reports of numerous Nerlan moving through Tronjim, and with furtive intent, gathering here and there into large bands of armed men. My agents were unable to ascertain the clan of the warriors, but that any of this council should attempt to surreptitiously marshal their forces whilst we are engaged in a meet to decide who should succeed King Hrothgar suggests motives of the darkest kind. So my second question for the meet is this. Who is responsible for this ill-thought-of maneuvering? And if none are willing to admit their misconduct, I move most strongly 
that we order all warriors, regardless of their clan, expelled from Trondheim for the duration of the meet, and that we immediately appoint a reader of law to investigate these doings and determine whom we should censure. Gannel's revelation, question, and subsequent proposal aroused a flurry of heated conversation among the clan chiefs, with the dwarves hurling accusations, denials, and counter-accusations at each other with increasing vitriol, until at last, when an infuriated Thordris was shouting at a red-faced Goldheim, Oric cleared his throat again, causing everyone to stop and stare at him. In a mild tone, Oric said, This too, I believe I can explain to you, Gannel, at least in part. I cannot speak to the activities of the other clans, but several hundred of the warriors who have been hurrying through the servants' halls in Trondheim have been of Durgrimst in Jeetum. This I freely admit. All was silent, until Eorunan said, And what explanation have you for this belligerent behavior, Oric, Thrift's son? As I said before, fair Eorunan, my answer must of necessity be a lengthy one. So if you, Gannel, have any other questions to ask, I suggest you proceed forthwith. Gannel's frown deepened until his projecting eyebrows nearly touched. He said, I will withhold mine other questions, for the time being, for they all pertain to those I have already put to the meat, and it seems we must wait upon your pleasure to learn any more of those subjects. However, since you are involved fist and foot with these doubtful activities, a new question has occurred to me that I would ask of you specifically, Grimesboleth Oric. For what reason did you desert yesterday's meat? And let me warn you, I will brook no evasions. You have already intimated you have knowledge of these affairs. Well, time is for you to provide a full accounting of yourself, Grimes Boreth Oric. Oric stood even as Gannel sat, and he said, It shall be mine pleasure. Lowering his bearded chin until it rested upon his chest, Oric paused for a brief span, and then began to speak in a sonorous voice. But he did not begin as Aragon had expected, nor Aragon surmised as the rest of the congregation had expected. Instead of describing the attempt on Aragon's life, and thus explaining why he had terminated the previous clan meet prematurely, Oric commenced by recounting how at the dawn of history the race of dwarves had migrated from the once verdant fields of the Hadarak Desert to the Beor Mountains, where they had excavated their uncounted miles of tunnels, built their magnificent cities both above and below the ground, and waged lusty war between their various factions, as well as with the dragons, whom for thousands of years the dwarves had regarded with a combination of hate, fear, and reluctant awe. Then Oryx spoke of the elves' arrival in Allegasia, and of how the elves had fought with the dragons until they nearly destroyed each other, and of how as a result the two races had agreed to create the dragon riders to maintain the peace thereafter. And what was our response when we learned of their intentions? demanded Oryx his voice ringing loud in the chamber. Did we ask to be included in their pact? 
Did we aspire to share in the power that would be the dragon riders? No. We clung to our old ways, our old hatreds, and we rejected the very thought of bonding with the dragons or allowing anyone outside our realm to police us. To preserve our authority, we sacrificed our future. For I am convinced that if some of the dragon riders had been Nerlin, Galbatorix might have never risen to power. Even if I am wrong, and I mean not to belittle Aragon, who has proven himself a fine rider, the dragon Saphira might have hatched for one of our race and not a human. And then what glory might have been ours? Instead, our importance in Alagasia has diminished ever since Queen Tarmonora and Aragon's namesake made peace with the dragons. At first, our lessened status was not so bitter a draught to swallow, and often it was easier to deny than to accept. But then came the Urgles, and then the humans, and the elves amended their spells so humans might be riders as well. And then did we seek to be included in their accord as well we might have, as was our right? Oric shook his head. Our pride would not allow it. Why should we, the oldest race in the land, beg the elves for the favor of their magic? We did not need to chain our fate to the dragons in order to save our race from destruction, as had the elves and humans. We ignored, of course, the battles we waged among ourselves. Those, we reasoned, were private affairs, and of no concern to anyone else. The listening clan chiefs stirred. Many of them bore expressions of dissatisfaction at Oryx's criticism, whereas the rest seemed more receptive to his comments and were thoughtful of countenance. Oryx continued, While the riders watched over Alagasia, we enjoyed the greatest period of prosperity ever recorded in the annals of our realm. We flourished as never before, and yet we had no share in the cause of it the dragon riders. When the riders fell, our fortunes faltered, but again we had no share in the cause of it, the riders. Neither state of affairs is, I deem, fitting for a race of our stature. We are not a country of vassals, subject to the whims of foreign masters. Nor should those who are not the descendants of Odgar and Hlodus dictate our fate. This line of reasoning was more to the liking of the clan chiefs. They nodded and smiled, and Havard even clapped a few times at the final line. Consider now our present era, said Oric. Galbatorix is ascendant, and every race fights to remain free of his rule. He has grown so powerful the only reason we are not already his slaves is that, so far, he has not chosen to fly out upon his black dragon and attack us directly. If he did, we would fall before him like saplings before an avalanche. Fortunately, he seems content to wait for us to slaughter our way to the gates of his citadel in Urubain. Now, I remind you, that before Aragon and Sephira turned up wet and bedraggled on our front doorstep 
with a hundred yammering cull hard upon their heels, our only hope of defeating Galbatorix was that some day, somewhere, Sephira would hatch for her chosen rider, and that this unknown person would, perhaps, perchance, if we were luckier than every gambler who has ever won a toss of dice, be able to overthrow Galbatorix. Hope? Ah, we did not even have hope. We had a hope of a hope. When Aragon first presented himself, many of us were dismayed by his appearance, myself included. He is but a boy, we said. It would have been better if he had been an elf, we said. But lo, he has shown himself to be the embodiment of our every hope. He slew Durza and so allowed us to save our most beloved city, Trondheim. His dragon, Sephira, has promised to restore the Star Rose to its former glory. During the Battle of the Burning Plains, he drove off Murtag and Thorn, and so allowed us to win the day. And look, he even now wears the semblance of an elf, and through their strange magics he has acquired their speed and their strength. Oric raised a finger for emphasis. Moreover, King Hrothgar, in his wisdom, did what no other king or Grimesborith has ever done. He offered to adopt Aragon into Dur Grimst in Jeetum and to make him a member of his own family. Aragon was under no obligation to accept this offer. Indeed, he was aware that many of the families of the Injitum objected to it, and that in general many Nurlan would not regard it with favor. Yet in spite of that discouragement, and in spite of the fact that he was already bound in fealty to Nasawada, Aragon accepted Hrothgar's gift, knowing full well that it would only make his life harder. As he has told me himself, Aragon swore the whole oath upon the heart of stone because of the sense of obligation he feels toward all the races of Alagasia, and especially toward us, since we, by the actions of Hrothgar, showed him and Sephira such kindness. Because of Hrothgar's genius, the last free rider of Alagasia, and our one and only hope against Galbatorix freely chose to become a Nurla in all but blood. Since then, Aragon has abided by our laws and traditions to the best of his knowledge, and he has sought to learn ever more about our culture, so that he may honor the true meaning of his oath. When Hrothgar fell, struck down by the traitor Murtag, Aragon swore to me upon every stone in Alagasia, and also as a member of Durgrimstingitum, that he would strive to avenge Hrothgar's death. He has given me the respect and obedience I am due as Grimstborith, and I am proud to regard him as mine foster brother. Aragon glanced downward, his cheeks and the tips of his ears burning. He wished Oric were not so free with his praise. It would only make his position harder to maintain in the future. 
sweeping his arms out to include the other clan chiefs, Oric exclaimed, Everything we could have ever wished for in a dragon rider, we have received in Aragon. He exists, he is powerful, and he has embraced our people as no other dragon rider ever has. Then Oric lowered his arms, and with them the volume of his voice, until Aragon had to strain to hear his words. How have we responded to his friendship, though? In the main, with sneers and slights and surly resentment. We are an ungrateful race, I say, and our memories are too long for our own good. There are even those who have become so filled with festering hatred they have turned to violence to slake the thirst of their anger. Perhaps they still believe they are doing what is best for our people, but if so, then their minds are as mouldy as a lump of year-old cheese. Otherwise, why would they try to kill Aragon? The listening clan chiefs became perfectly still, their eyes riveted to Oryx's face. So intense was their concentration, the corpulent Grimstborith Freowin had set aside his carving of a raven and folded his hands on top of his ample belly, appearing for all the world like one of the dwarves' statues. As they gazed at him with unblinking eyes, Oric related to the clanmeet how the seven black-clad dwarves had attacked Eragon and his guards while they were meandering among the tunnels underneath Trondheim. Then Oric told them of the braided horsehair bracelet set with amethyst cabochons that Eragon's guards had found upon one of the corpses. Do not think to blame this attack upon mine clan based upon such paltry evidence, exclaimed Vermund, bolting upright. One can buy similar trinkets in most every market of our realm. Quite so, said Oric, and inclined his head toward Vermund. In a dispassionate voice and with a quick pace, Oric proceeded to tell his audience, as he had told Aragon the previous night, how his subjects in Dalgon had confirmed for him that the strange flickering daggers the assassins had wielded had been forged by the smith Kiefner and also how his subjects had discovered that the dwarf who had bought the weapons had arranged for them to be transported from Dalgon to one of the cities held by Asweldon Rak Anuin. Uttering a low, growling oath, Vermund leaped to his feet again. Those daggers might never have reached our city, and even if they did, you can draw no conclusions from that fact. Nurlan of many clans stay within our walls as they do within the walls of Bregenhold, for example. It signifies nothing. Be careful what you say next, Grimstborithoric, for you have no grounds upon which to level accusations against mine clan. I was of the same opinion as you, Grimstborithvermund, Oric replied. Therefore, last night, my spellcasters and I retraced the assassin's path back to their place of origin, and on the twelfth level of Trondheim we captured three Nurlan who were hiding in a dusty storeroom. We broke the minds of two of them, and from them we learned they provisioned the assassins for their attack. And, said Oric, 
his voice growing harsh and terrible. From them we learned the identity of their master. I name you Grimst Boris Vermund. I name you murderer and oath-breaker. I name you an enemy of Dur Grimst in Jeetum, and I name you a traitor to your kind, for it was you and your clan who attempted to kill Aragorn. The clan meet erupted into chaos as every clan chief except Oric and Vermund began to shout and wave their hands and otherwise attempt to dominate the conversation. Aragorn stood and loosened his borrowed sword in its sheath, drawing it out a half-inch so he could respond with all possible speed if Vermund or one of his dwarves chose that moment to attack. Vermund did not move, however, nor did Oric. They stared at each other like rival wolves and paid no attention to the commotion around them. When at last Ganel succeeded in restoring order, he said, Grimst Borith Vermund, can you refute these charges? In a flat, emotionless voice, Vermund replied, I deny them with every bone in my body, and I challenge anyone to prove them to the satisfaction of a reader of law. Gannel turned toward Oric. Present your evidence then, Grimst Borith Oric, that we may judge whether it is valid or not. There are five readers of law here today, if I am not mistaken. He motioned toward the wall, where five white-bearded dwarves stood and bowed. They will ensure that we do not stray beyond the boundaries of the law in our investigation. Are we agreed? I am agreed, said Undin. I am agreed, said Hadfala, and all the rest of the clan chiefs after her, save Vermund. First, Oric placed the amethyst bracelet upon the table. Every clan chief had one of their magicians examine it, and all agreed that as evidence it was inconclusive. Then Oric had an aide bring in a mirror mounted on a bronze tripod. One of the magicians within his retinue cast a spell, and upon the glossy surface of the mirror there appeared the image of a small, book-filled room. A moment passed, and then a dwarf rushed into the room and bowed toward the clan meet from within the mirror. In a breathless voice, he introduced himself as Rimmar, and after swearing oaths in the ancient language to ensure his honesty, he told the clanmate how he and his assistants had made their discoveries concerning the daggers Aragon's attackers had wielded. When the clan chiefs finished questioning Rimmar, Oric had his warriors bring in the three dwarves the Injitum had captured. Ganel ordered them to swear the oaths of truthfulness in the ancient language, but they cursed at him and spat on the floor and refused. Then magicians from all of the different clans joined their thoughts, invaded the prisoners' minds, and wrested from them the information the clan meet desired. Without exception, the magicians confirmed what Oric had already said. Lastly, Oric called upon Eragon to testify. Eragon felt nervous as he walked over to the table, and the thirteen grim clan chiefs stared at him. He gazed across the room at a small whirl of colour on a marble pillar and tried to ignore his discomfort. He repeated the oaths of truthfulness as one of the dwarf magicians gave them to him, and then, speaking no more than was necessary, 
Aragon told the clan chiefs how he and his guards had been attacked. Afterward, he answered the dwarves' inevitable questions, and then allowed two of the magicians, whom Ganel chose at random from among those assembled, to examine his memories of the event. As Aragon lowered the barriers around his mind, he noted that the two magicians appeared apprehensive, and he drew some comfort from the observation. Good, he thought. They will be less likely to wander where they should not if they fear me. To Aragon's relief, the inspection went without incident, and the magicians corroborated his account to the clan chiefs. Gannel rose from his chair and addressed the readers of law, asking them, Are you satisfied with the quality of the evidence Grimst Boreth Oric and Aragon Shadeslayer have shown us? The five white-bearded dwarves bowed, and the middle dwarf said, We are Grimst Boreth Gannel. Gannel grunted, seeming unsurprised. Grimst Boreth Vermund, you are responsible for the death of Quaestor, son of Bowden, and you attempted to kill a guest. By doing so, you have brought shame upon our entire race. What say you to this? The clan chief of Azweldon Rak Anuin pressed his hands flat against the table, veins bulging underneath his tanned skin. If this dragon rider is a nurler in all but blood, then he is no guest, and we may treat him as we would any of our enemies from a different clan. Why, that's preposterous! exclaimed Oric, almost sputtering with outrage. You can't say he— Still your tongue, if you please, Oric, said Gannel. Shouting will not settle this point. Oric, Nardo, Eorunun, if you will come with me. Worry began to gnaw at Aragon, as the four dwarves went and conferred with the readers of law for several minutes. Surely they won't let Vermund escape punishment just because of some verbal trickery, he thought. Returning to the table, Eorunun said, The readers of law are unanimous. Even though Aragon is a sworn member of Durgrimstingitum, he also holds positions of importance beyond our realm, namely that of Dragon Rider, but also that of an official envoy of the Varden, sent by Nasawada to witness the coronation of our next ruler, and also that of a friend of high influence with Queen Islanzadi and her race as a whole. For those reasons, Aragon is due the same hospitality we would extend to any visiting ambassador, prince, monarch, or other person of significance. The dwarf woman glanced sidelong at Aragon, her dark, flashing eyes bold upon his limbs. In short, he is our honoured guest, and we should treat him as such, which every nurler who is not cave-mad ought to know. Aye, he is our guest, concurred Nardo. His lips were pinched and white and his cheeks drawn, as if he had just bitten into an apple, only to discover it was not yet ripe. What say you now, Vermund? demanded Gannel. Rising from his seat, the purple-veiled dwarf looked around the table, gazing at each of the clan chiefs in turn. I say this, 
And hear me well, Grimest Borathin, if any clan turns their axe against Asweldon Arak Anuin because of these false accusations, we shall consider it an act of war, and we shall respond appropriately. If you imprison me, that too we shall consider an act of war, and we shall respond appropriately. Aragon saw Vermin's veil twitch, and he thought the dwarf might have smiled underneath. If you strike at us in any possible way, whether with steel or with words, no matter how mild your rebuke, we shall consider it an act of war, and we shall respond appropriately. Unless you are eager to rend our country into a thousand bloody scraps, I suggest you let the wind waft away this morning's discussion, and in its place fill your minds with thoughts of who should next rule from upon the granite throne. The clan chiefs sat in silence for a long while. Eragon had to bite his tongue to keep from jumping onto the table and railing against Vermund, until the dwarves agreed to hang him for his crimes. He reminded himself that he had promised Oric that he would follow Oric's lead when dealing with the clan meat. Oric is my clan chief, and I must let him respond to this as he sees fit. Freowin unfolded his hands and slapped the table with a meaty palm. With his hoarse, baritone voice, which carried throughout the room, although it seemed no louder than a whisper, the corpulent dwarf said, You have shamed our race, Vermund. We cannot retain our honour as Nurlan, and ignore your trespass. The elderly dwarf woman, Hadfala, shuffled her sheaf of rune-covered pages, and said, What did you think to accomplish besides our doom by killing Aragon? Even if the Varden could unseat Galbatorix without him, what of the sorrow the dragon Saphira would rain down upon us if we slew her rider? She would fill Farthendur with a sea of our own blood. Not a word came from Vermund. Laughter broke the quiet. The sound was so unexpected, at first Aragon did not realize it was coming from Oric. His mirth subsiding, Oric said, If we move against you or Asweldon Rak Anuin, you will consider it an act of war, Vermund. Very well, then we shall not move against you. Not at all. Vermund's brow beetled. How can this provide you with a source of amusement? Oric chuckled again. Because I have thought of something you have not, Vermund. You wish us to leave you and your clan alone? Then I propose to the clan meet that we do as Vermund wishes. If Vermund had acted upon his own and not as a Grimstborith, he would be banished for his offences upon pain of death. Therefore let us treat the clan as we would treat the person. Let us banish Asweldon Rak Anuin from our hearts and minds until they choose to replace Vermund with a Grimstborith of a more moderate temperament, and until they acknowledge their villainy and repent of it to the clan meet, even if we must wait a thousand years. 
The wrinkled skin around Vermon's eyes went pale. You would not dare! Oryx smiled. Ah, but we would not lay a finger upon you or your kind. We will simply ignore you and refuse to trade with Aswelden Rak Anuin. Will you declare war upon us for doing nothing, Vermund? For if the meat agrees with me, that is exactly what we shall do. Nothing. Will you force us at sword point to buy your honey and your cloth and your amethyst jewelry? You have not the warriors to compel us so. Turning to the rest of the table, Oric asked, What say the rest of you? The clan meet did not take long to decide. One by one, the clan chiefs stood and voted to banish Aswelden Rak Anuin. Even Nardo, Galtim and Havard, Vermund's erstwhile allies, supported Oric's proposal. With every vote of affirmation, what skin was visible of Vermund's face grew ever whiter, until he appeared like a ghost, dressed in the clothes of his former life. When the vote was finished, Ganel pointed toward the door and said, Be gone, Vargrimston Vermund. Leave Tronchim this very day, and may none of Aswelden Rak Anuin trouble the clan meet until they have fulfilled the conditions we have set forth. Until such time as that happens, we shall shun every member of Aswelden Rak Anuin. Know this, however, while your clan may absolve themselves of their dishonor, you, Vermund, shall always remain Vargrimston, even unto your dying day. Such is the will of the clan meet. His declaration concluded, Gannel sat. Vermund remained where he was, his shoulders quivering with an emotion Aragon could not identify. It is you who have shamed and betrayed our race, he growled. The dragon riders killed all of our clan, save Anuin and her guards. You expect us to forget this? You expect us to forgive this? Bah! I spit on the graves of your ancestors. We at least have not lost our beards. We shall not cavort with this puppet of the elves while our dead family members still cry out for vengeance. Outrage gripped Aragon when none of the other clan chiefs replied, and he was about to answer Vermund's tirade with harsh words of his own when Oric glanced over at him and shook his head ever so slightly. Difficult as it was, Aragon kept his anger in check, although he wondered why Oric would allow such dire insults to pass uncontested. It's almost as if... Oh! Pushing himself away from the table, Vermund stood, his hands balled into fists and his shoulders hunched high. He resumed speaking berating and disparaging the clan chiefs with increasing passion until he was shouting at the top of his lungs. No matter how vile Vermund's imprecations were, however, the clan chiefs did not respond. They gazed into the distance, as if pondering complex dilemmas, and their eyes slid over Vermund without pause. When, in his fury, Vermund grasped Hridomar by the front of his male hauberk, Three of Hridomar's guards jumped forward 
and pulled Vermund away. But as they did, Aragon noticed their expressions remained bland and unchanging, as if they were merely helping Hridermar to straighten his hauberk. Once they released Vermund, the guards did not look at him again. A chill crept up Aragon's spine. The dwarves acted as if Vermund had ceased to exist. So this is what it means to be banished among the dwarves. Aragon thought he would rather be killed than suffer such a fate, and for a moment he felt a stir of pity for Vermund. But his pity vanished an instant later as he remembered Kvaistor's dying expression. With a final oath, Vermund strode out of the room, followed by those of his clan who had accompanied him to the meet. The mood among the remaining clan chiefs eased as the door swung shut behind Vermund. Once again the dwarves gazed around without restriction, and they resumed talking in loud voices, discussing what else they would need to do with regard to Asweldon Rak Anuin. Then Oric wrapped the pommel of his dagger against the table, and everyone turned to hear what he had to say. Now that we have dealt with Vermund, there is another issue I wish the meat to consider. Our purpose in assembling here is to elect Hrothgar's successor. We have all had much to say upon the topic, but now I believe the time is ripe to put words behind us and allow our actions to speak for us. So I call upon the meat to decide whether we are ready, and we are more than ready, in mine opinion, to proceed to the final vote three days hence, as is our law. My vote, as I cast it, is I. Freowin looked at Hadfala, who looked at Ganel, who looked at Manandrath, who tugged on his drooping nose and looked at Nardo, sunk low in his chair and biting the inside of his cheek. I, said Eorunan. I, said Undin. I, said Nardo, and so did the eight other clan chiefs. Hours later, when the clan meet broke for lunch, Oric and Aragon returned to Oric's chambers to eat. Neither of them spoke until they entered his rooms, which were proofed against eavesdroppers. There, Aragon allowed himself to smile. You planned all along to banish Asweldon Rakanoin, didn't you? A satisfied expression on his face, Oric smiled as well and slapped his stomach. That I did! It was the only action I could take that would not inevitably lead to a clan war. We may still have a clan war, but it shall not be of our making. I doubt such a calamity will come to pass, though. As much as they hate you, most of Asweldon Rakhanuin will be appalled by what Vermund has done in their name. He will not remain Grimstporeth for long, I think. And now you have ensured that the vote for the new king, or queen, or queen, shall take place. Aragon hesitated, reluctant to tarnish Oryx's enjoyment of his triumph. But then he asked, Do you really have the support you need to win the throne? Oryx shrugged. Before this morning no one had the support they needed. Now the balance has shifted 
and for the time being sympathies lie with us. We might as well strike while the iron is hot. We shall never have a better opportunity than this. In any case, we cannot allow the clan meet to drag on any longer. If you do not return to the Vardan soon, all may be lost. What shall we do while we wait for the vote? First, we shall celebrate our success with a feast, Oric declared. Then, when we are sated, we shall continue as before, attempting to gather additional votes while defending those we have already won. Oric's teeth flashed white underneath the fringe of his beard as he smiled again. But before we consume so much as a single sip of meat, there is something you must attend to, which you have forgotten. What? asked Aragon, puzzled by Oric's obvious delight. Why, you must summon Sephira to Trondheim, of course. Whether I become king or not, we shall crown a new monarch in three days' time. If Sephira is to attend the ceremony, she will need to fly quickly in order to arrive here before then. With a wordless exclamation, Aragon ran to find a mirror. Insubordination the rich, black soil was cool against Rorin's hand. He picked up a loose clod and crumbled it between his fingers, noting with approval that it was moist and full of decomposing leaves, stems, moss, and other organic matter that would provide excellent food for crops. He pressed it to his lips and tongue. The soil tasted alive, full of hundreds of flavors from pulverized mountains to beetles and punky wood and the tender tips of grass roots. This is good farmland, thought Roran. He cast his mind back to Palancar Valley, and again he saw the autumn sun streaming through the field of barley outside his family's house, neat rows of golden stalks shifting in the breeze, with the Honora River to the west and the snow-capped mountains rising high on either side of the valley. That is where I should be. Ploughing the earth and raising a family with Katrina, not watering the ground with the sap of men's limbs. Ho there! cried Captain Edric, pointing toward Roran from on his horse. Have an end to your dawdling, Stronghammer, lest I change my mind about you and leave you to stand guard with the archers. Dusting his hands on his leggings, Roran rose from a kneeling position. Yes, sir, as you wish, sir, he said, suppressing his dislike for Edric. Since he had joined Edric's company, Roran had attempted to learn what he could of the man's history. From what he heard, Roran had concluded Edric was a competent commander. Nasawada never would have put him in charge of such an important mission otherwise. But he had an abrasive personality, and he disciplined his warriors for even the slightest deviation from established practice, as Roran had learned to his chagrin upon three separate occasions during his first day with Edric's company. It was, Roran believed, a style of command that undermined a man's morale, as well as discouraged creativity and invention from those underneath you. Perhaps Nasawada gave me to him for those very reasons, thought Roran. Or perhaps this is another test of hers. Perhaps she wants to know whether I can swallow my pride long enough to work with a man like Edric. Getting back onto Snowfire, Roran rode to the front of the column of two hundred and fifty men. 
Their mission was simple. Since Nasuada and King Orin had withdrawn the bulk of their forces from Surda, Galbatorix had apparently decided to take advantage of their absence and wreak havoc throughout the defenseless country, sacking towns and villages and burning the crops needed to sustain the invasion of the empire. The easiest way to eliminate the soldiers would have been for Sephira to fly out and tear them to pieces, but unless she was winging her way toward Eragon, everyone agreed it would be too dangerous for the Varden to be without her for so long. So Nasawada had sent Edric's company to repel the soldiers, whose number her spies had initially estimated to be around three hundred. However, two days ago, Roran and the rest of the warriors had been dismayed when they came across tracks that indicated the size of Galbatorix's force was closer to seven hundred. Roran reined in Snowfire next to Khan on his dappled mare and scratched his chin while he studied the lay of the land. Before them was a vast expanse of undulating grass, dotted with occasional stands of willow and cottonwood trees. Hawks hunted above, while below the grass was full of squeaking mice, rabbits, burrowing rodents and other wildlife. The only evidence that men had ever visited the place before was the swath of trampled vegetation that led toward the eastern horizon, marking the soldier's trail. Khan glanced up at the noonday sun, the skin pulling tight around his drooping eyes as he squinted. We should overtake them before our shadows are longer than we are tall. And then we'll discover whether there are enough of us to drive them away, muttered Roran, or whether they will just massacre us. For once I'd like to outnumber our enemies. A grim smile appeared on Khan's face. It is always thus with the Varden. Form up, shouted Edric, and spurred his horse down the trail trampled through the grass. Roran clamped his jaw shut and touched his heels to Snowfire's flanks as the company followed their captain. Six hours later, Roran sat on Snowfire, hidden within a cluster of beech trees that grew along the edge of a small flat stream, clotted with rushes and strands of floating algae. Through the net of branches that hung before him, Roran gazed upon a crumbling, grey-sided village of no more than twenty houses. Roran had watched with ever-increasing fury as the villagers had spotted the soldiers advancing from the west and then had gathered up a few bundles of possessions and fled south toward the heart of Surda. If it had been up to him, Roran would have revealed their presence to the villagers and assured them they were not about to lose their houses not if he and the rest of his companions could prevent it, for he well remembered the pain and desperation and sense of hopelessness that abandoning Carvajal had caused him, and he would have spared them that if he could. Also, he would have asked the men of the village to fight with them. Another ten or twenty sets of arms might mean the difference between victory or defeat, and Roran knew better than most the fervour with which people would fight to defend their homes. However, Edric had rejected the idea, and insisted that the Varden remain concealed in the hills southeast of the village. We're lucky they're on foot, murmured Khan, indicating the red column of soldiers marching toward the village. We would not be able to get here first otherwise. Roran glanced back at the men gathered behind him. Edric had given him temporary command over eighty-one warriors. They consisted of swordsmen, spearmen, 
and a half-dozen archers. One of Edric's familiars, Sand, led another eighty-one of the company, while Edric headed the rest himself. All three groups were pressed against one another among the beech trees, which Roran thought was a mistake. The time it took to organise themselves once they broke from cover would be extra time the soldiers would have to marshal their defences. Leaning over toward Khan, Roran said, I don't see any of them with missing hands or legs or other injuries of note, but that proves nothing one way or another. Can you tell if any of them are men who cannot feel pain? Khan sighed. I wish I could. Your cousin might be able to, for Murtag and Galbatorix are the only spellcasters Eragon need fear. But I am a poor magician, and I dare not test the soldiers. If there are any magicians disguised among the soldiers, they would know of my spying, and there is every chance I would not be able to break their minds before they alerted their companions we are here. We seem to have this discussion every time we are about to fight, Roran observed, studying the soldiers' armaments and trying to decide how best to deploy his men. With a laugh, Khan said, That's all right. I only hope we keep having it, because if not, one or both of us will be dead, or Nasawada will have reassigned us to different captains, and then we might as well be dead, because no one else will guard our backs as well. Roran concluded. A smile touched his lips. It had become an old joke between them. He drew his hammer from his belt and then winced as his right leg twinged where the ox had ripped his flesh with its horn. Scowling, he reached down and massaged the location of the wound. Khan saw and asked, Are you well? It won't kill me, said Roran, then reconsidered his words. Well... Maybe it will, but I'll be blasted if I'm going to wait here while you go off and cut those bumbling oafs to pieces. When the soldiers reached the village, they marched straight through it, pausing only to break down the door to each house and tramp through the rooms to see if anyone was hiding inside. A dog ran out from behind a rain barrel, his ruff standing on end, and began barking at the soldiers. One of the men stepped forward and threw his spear at the dog, killing it. As the first of the soldiers reached the far side of the village, Roran tightened his hand around the haft of his hammer in preparation for the charge. But then he heard a series of high-pitched screams, and a sense of dread gripped him. A squad of soldiers emerged from the second-to-last house, dragging three struggling people. A lanky, white-haired man, a young woman with a torn blouse, and a boy no older than eleven. Sweat sprang up on Roran's brow. In a low, slow monotone he began to swear, cursing the three captives for not having fled with their neighbours, cursing the soldiers for what they had done and might yet do, cursing Galbatorix and cursing whatever whim of fate had resulted in the situation as it was. Behind him he was aware of his men shifting and muttering with anger, eager to punish the soldiers for their brutality. Having searched all of the houses, the mass of soldiers retraced their steps to the centre of the village and formed a rough semicircle around their prisoners. Yes! crowed Roran to himself as the soldiers turned their backs to the Varden. Edric's plan had been to wait for them to do just that. In anticipation of the order to charge, 
Roran rose up several inches above his saddle, his entire body tense. He tried to swallow, but his throat was too dry. The officer in charge of the soldiers, who was the only man among them on a horse, dismounted his steed and exchanged a few inaudible words with the white-haired villager. Without warning, the officer drew his sabre and decapitated the man, then hopped backward to avoid the resulting spray of blood. The young woman screamed even louder than before. Charge, said Edric. It took Roran a half-second to comprehend that the word Edric had uttered so calmly was the command he had been waiting for. Charge! shouted Sand on the other side of Edric and galloped out of the copse of beech trees along with his men. Charge! shouted Roran and dug his heels into Snowfire's sides. He ducked behind his shield as Snowfire carried him through the net of branches, then lowered it again when they were in the open, flying down the side of the hill with the thunder of hoofbeats surrounding them. Desperate to save the woman and the boy, Roran urged Snowfire to the limit of his speed. Looking back, he was heartened to see that his contingent of men had separated from the rest of the Varden without too much trouble. Aside from a few stragglers, the majority were in a single bunch not thirty feet behind him. Roran glimpsed Khan riding at the vanguard of Edric's men, his grey cloak flapping in the wind. Once again, Roran wished Edric had allowed them to remain in the same group. As were his orders, Roran did not enter the village head on, but rather veered to the left and rode around the buildings so as to flank the soldiers and attack them from another direction. Sand did the same on the right, while Edric and his warriors drove straight into the village. A line of houses concealed the initial clash from Roran, but he heard a chorus of frantic shouts, then a series of strange metallic twangs, and then the screams of men and horses. Worry knotted Roran's gut. What was that noise? Could it be metal bows? Do they exist? Regardless of the cause, he knew there should not have been so many horses crying out in agony. Roran's limbs went cold as he realized with utter certainty that the attack had somehow gone wrong and that the battle might already be lost. He pulled hard on Snowfire's reins as they passed the last house, steering him toward the center of the village. Behind him his men did the same. Two hundred yards ahead, Roran saw a triple line of soldiers positioned between two houses so as to block their way. The soldiers seemed unafraid of the horses racing toward them. Roran hesitated. His orders were clear. He and his men were to charge the western flank and cut their way through Galbatorix's troops until they rejoined Sand and Edric. However, Edric had not told Roran what he should do if riding straight up to the soldiers no longer seemed a good idea once he and his men were in position. And Roran knew that if he deviated from his orders, even if it was to prevent his men from being massacred, he would be guilty of insubordination, and Edric could punish him accordingly. Then the soldiers swept aside their voluminous cloaks and raised drawn crossbows to their shoulders. In that instant, Roran decided that he would do whatever was necessary in order to ensure the Varden won the battle. He was not about to let the soldiers destroy his force with a single volley of arrows just because he wished to avoid the unpleasant consequences of defying his captain. Take cover! shouted Roran, and wrenched Snowfire's head to the right, 
forcing the animal to swerve behind a house. A dozen quarrels buried themselves in the side of the building a second later. Turning around, Roran saw that all but one of his warriors had managed to duck behind nearby houses before the soldiers fired. The man who had been too slow lay bleeding in the dirt, a pair of quarrels projecting from his chest. The bolts had torn through his male hauberk as if it were no thicker than a sheet of tissue. Frightened by the smell of blood, his horse kicked up its heels and fled the village, leaving a plume of dust rising in its wake. Roran reached over and grasped the edge of a beam in the side of the house, holding Snowfire in place while he desperately tried to figure out how to proceed. The soldiers had him and his men pinned down. They could not step back out into the open without being shot so full of quarrels they would resemble hedgehogs. A group of Roran's warriors rode up to him from a house that his own building partially shielded from the soldiers' line of sight. What should we do, strong hammer? they asked him. They did not seem bothered by the fact that he had disobeyed his orders. To the contrary, they looked at him with expressions of newfound trust. Thinking as fast as he could, Roran cast his gaze around. By chance, his eyes alighted upon the bow and quiver strapped behind one of the men's saddles. Roran smiled. Only a few of the warriors fought as archers, but they all carried a bow and arrows so they could hunt for food and help feed the company when they were alone in the wilderness without support from the rest of the Varden. Roran pointed toward the house he was leaning against and said, Take your bows and climb onto the roof, as many of you as will fit, but if you value your lives, stay out of sight until I say otherwise. When I tell you to, start shooting and keep shooting until you run out of arrows, or until every last soldier is dead. Understood? Yes, sir. Get going, then. The rest of you find buildings of your own where you can pick off the soldiers. Harold, spread the word to everyone else and find ten of our best spearmen and ten of our best swordsmen and bring them here as fast as you can. Yes, sir. With a flurry of motion, the warriors hurried to obey. Those who were closest to Roran retrieved their bows and quivers from behind their saddles and then, standing upon the backs of their horses, pulled themselves onto the thatched roof of the house. Four minutes later, the majority of Roran's men were in place on the roofs of seven different houses, with about eight men per roof, and Harold had returned with the requested swordsmen and spearmen in tow. To the warriors gathered around him, Roran said, Right, now listen. When I give the order, the men up there will start shooting. As soon as the first flight of arrows strikes the soldiers, we're going to ride out and attempt to rescue Captain Edric. If we can't, we'll have to settle for giving the red tunics a taste of good cold steel. The archers should provide enough confusion for us to close with the soldiers before they can use their crossbows. Am I understood? Yes, sir. Then fire! Roran shouted. With full-throated yells, the men stationed on the houses rose up above the ridges of the roofs and as one fired their bows at the soldiers below. The swarm of arrows whistled through the air like bloodthirsty shrikes diving toward their prey. An instant later, when soldiers began to howl with agony at their wounds, Roran said, Now ride! and jabbed his heels into snowfire. Together, he and his men galloped around the side of the house, pulling their steeds into such a tight turn that they nearly fell over. Relying on his speed and the skill of the archers for protection, Roran skirted the soldiers, who were flailing in disarray until he came upon the sight of Edric's disastrous charge. 
There the ground was slick with blood, and the corpses of many good men and fine horses littered the space between the houses. Edric's remaining forces were engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the soldiers. To Roran's surprise, Edric was still alive, fighting back-to-back -back with five of his men. Stay with me! Roran shouted to his companions as they raced into the battle. Lashing out with his hooves, Snowfire knocked two soldiers to the ground, breaking their sword arms and staving in their ribcages. Pleased with the stallion, Roran laid about himself with his hammer, snarling with the fierce joy of battle as he felled soldier after soldier, none of whom could withstand the ferocity of his assault. To me! he shouted as he drew abreast of Edric and the other survivors. To me! In front of him, arrows continued to rain down upon the mass of soldiers, forcing them to cover themselves with their shields, while at the same time trying to fend off the Varden's swords and spears. Once he and his warriors had surrounded the Varden who were on foot, Roran shouted, Back! Back! To the houses! Step by step, the lot of them withdrew until they were out of reach of the soldiers' blades, and then they turned and ran toward the nearest house. The soldiers shot and killed three of the Varden along the way, but the rest arrived at the building unharmed. Edric slumped against the side of the house, gasping for breath. When again he was able to speak, he gestured at Roran's men and said, Your intervention is most timely and welcome, Stronghammer. But why do I see you here, and not riding out from among the soldiers, as I expected? Then Roran explained what he had done, and pointed out the archers on the roofs. A dark scowl appeared on Edric's brow as he listened to Roran's account. However, he did not chastise Roran for his disobedience, but merely said, Have those men come down at once. They have succeeded in breaking the soldiers' discipline. Now we must rely upon honest blade work to dispose of them. There are too few of us left to attack the soldiers directly, protested Roran. They outnumber us better than three to one. Then we shall make up in valour what we lack in numbers, Edric bellowed. I was told you had courage, Stronghammer, but obviously rumour is mistaken and you are as timid as a frightened rabbit. Now do as you're told and do not question me again. The captain indicated one of Roran's warriors. You there, lend me your steed. After the man dismounted, Edric pulled himself into the saddle and said, Half of you on horse, follow me. I go to reinforce Sand. Everyone else remain with Roran. Kicking his mount in the sides, Edric galloped away with the men who chose to follow him, racing from building to building as they worked their way around the soldiers clumped in the centre of the village. Roran shook with fury as he watched them depart. Never before had he allowed anyone to question his courage without answering his critic with words or blows. So long as the battle persisted, however, it would be inappropriate for him to confront Edric. Very well, Roran thought. I shall demonstrate to Edric the courage he thinks I lack, but that is all he shall have from me. I will not send the archers to fight the soldiers face to face when they are safer and more effective where they are. Roran turned and inspected the men Edric had left to him. Among those they had rescued... Roran was delighted to see Karn, who was scratched and bloody, but on the whole unharmed. They nodded to each other, 
and then Roran addressed the group. You have heard what Edric said. I disagree. If we do as he wishes, all of us will end up piled in a cairn before sunset. We can still win this battle, but not by marching to our own deaths. What we lack in numbers, we can make up with cunning. You know how I came to join the Varden. You know I have fought and defeated the Empire before, and in just such a village. This I can do, I swear to you. But I cannot do it alone. Will you follow me? Think carefully. I will claim responsibility for ignoring Edric's orders. But he and Nasawada may still punish everyone who was involved. Then they would be fools, growled Khan. Would they prefer that we died here? No, I think not. You may count on me, Roran. As Khan made his declaration, Roran saw how the other men squared their shoulders and set their jaws, and how their eyes burned with renewed determination, and he knew they had decided to cast their lot with him, if only because they would not want to be parted from the only magician in their company. Many was the warrior of the Varden who owed his life to a member of Duvrangargata, and the men-at-arms Roran had met would sooner stab themselves in a foot than go into battle without a spellcaster close at hand. Aye, said Harold. You may count on us as well, Stronghammer. Then follow me, said Roran. Reaching down, he pulled Khan up onto Snowfire behind himself, then hurried with his group back around the village to where the bowmen on the roofs continued to fire arrows at the soldiers. As Roran and the men with him dashed from house to house, quarrels buzzed past them, sounding like giant angry insects, and one even buried itself halfway through Harold's shield. Once they were safely behind cover, Roran had the men who were still mounted give their bows and arrows to the men on foot, whom he then sent to climb the houses and join the other archers. As they scrambled to obey him, Roran beckoned to Khan, who had jumped off snowfire the moment they ceased moving, and said, I need a spell of you. Can you shield me and ten others from these bolts? Khan hesitated. For how long? A minute, an hour, who knows? Shielding that many people from more than a handful of bolts would soon exceed the bounds of my strength. Although if you don't care if I stop the bolts in their tracks, I could deflect them from you, which... that would be fine. Who exactly do you want me to protect? Roran pointed at the men he had picked to join him, and Khan asked each of them their names. Standing with his shoulders hunched inward, Khan began to mutter in the ancient language, his face pale and strained. Three times he tried to cast the spell, and three times he failed. I'm sorry, he said, and released an unsteady breath. I can't seem to concentrate. Blast it, don't apologize, growled Roran. Just do it. Leaping down from Snowfire, he grasped Khan on either side of his head, holding him in place. Look at me. Look into the center of my eyes. That's it. Keep staring at me. Good. Now, place the ward around us. Khan's features cleared and his shoulders loosened, and then, in a confident voice, he recited the incantation. As he uttered the last word, he sagged slightly in Roran's grip before recovering. It is done, he said. Roran patted him on the shoulder, then clambered into Snowfire's saddle again. 
sweeping his gaze over the ten horsemen, he said, Guard my sides and my back, but otherwise keep behind me so long as I am able to swing my hammer. Yes, sir. Remember the bolts cannot harm you now. Khan, you stay here. Don't move too much. Conserve your strength. If you feel like you can't maintain the spell any longer, signal us before you end it. Agreed? Khan sat on the front step of the house and nodded. Agreed. Renewing his grip on his shield and hammer, Roran took a deep breath, attempting to calm himself. Brace yourselves, he said, and clucked his tongue to Snowfire. With the ten horsemen following, Roran rode out into the middle of the dirt street that ran between the houses and faced the soldiers once more. Five hundred or so of Galbatorix's troops remained in the centre of the village, most of them crouching or kneeling behind their shields while they struggled to reload their crossbows. Occasionally a soldier would stand and loose a bolt at one of the archers on the roofs before dropping back behind his shield as a flight of arrows sliced through the air where he had just been. Throughout the corpse-strewn clearing, patches of arrows studded the ground like reeds sprouting from the bloody soil. Several hundred feet away, on the far side of the soldiers, Roran could see a knot of thrashing bodies, and he assumed that was where Sand, Edric, and whatever remained of their forces were fighting the soldiers. If the young woman and the boy were still in the clearing, he did not notice them. A quarrel buzzed toward Roran. When the bolt was less than a yard from his chest, it abruptly changed direction and hurtled off at an angle, missing him and his men. Roran flinched, but the missile was already past. His throat constricted, and his heartbeat doubled. Glancing around, Roran spotted a broken wagon leaning against a house off to his left. He pointed at it and said, Pull that over here and lay it upside down. Block as much of the street as you can. To the archers, he shouted, Don't let the soldiers sneak around and attack us from the sides. When they come at us, thin out their ranks as much as you can. And as soon as you run out of arrows, come join us. Yes, sir. Just be careful you don't shoot us by accident, or I swear I'll haunt your halls for the rest of time. Yes, sir. More quarrels flew at Roran and the other horsemen in the street, but in every case the bolts glanced off Khan's ward and veered into a wall or the ground, or vanished into the sky. Roran watched his men drag the wagon into the street. When they were nearly finished, he lifted his chin, filled his lungs, and then, projecting his voice toward the soldiers, he roared, Hold there, you cowering, carrion dogs! See how only eleven of us bar your way! Win past us, and you win your freedom! Try your hand if you have the guts! What? You hesitate? Where is your manhood, you deformed maggots, you bilious, swine-faced murderers? Your fathers were dribbling half-wits who should have been drowned at birth. Aye, and your mothers were poxy trollops and the consorts of Urgals. Roran smiled with satisfaction as several of the soldiers howled with outrage and began to insult him in return. One of the soldiers, however, seemed to lose his will to continue fighting, for he sprang to his feet and ran northward, covering himself with his shield 
and darting from side to side in a desperate attempt to avoid the archers. Despite his efforts, the Varden shot him dead before he had gone more than a hundred feet. Ha! exclaimed Roran. Cowards you are, every last one of you, you verminous river rats. If it will give you spine, then know this. Roran Stronghammer is my name, and Aragon Shadeslayer is my cousin. Kill me, and that foul king of yours will reward you with an earldom or more. But you will have to kill me with a blade. Your crossbows are of no use against me. Come now, you slugs, you leeches, you starving white-bellied ticks. Come and best me if you can. With a flurry of battle cries, a group of thirty soldiers dropped their crossbows, drew their flashing swords, and with shields held high, ran toward Roran and his men. From over his right shoulder, Roran heard Harold say, Sir, there are many more of them than us. Aye, Roran said, keeping his eyes fixed on the approaching soldiers. Four of them stumbled and then lay motionless on the ground, pierced through by numerous shafts. If they all charge us at once, we won't stand a chance. Yes, but they won't. Look, they're confused and disorganized. Their commander must have fallen. As long as we maintain order, they cannot overwhelm us. But, Stronghammer, we cannot kill that many men ourselves. Roran glanced back at Harold. Of course we can. We fight to protect our families and to reclaim our homes and our lands. They fight because Galbatorix forces them to. They have not the heart for this battle. So think of your families, think of your homes, and remember it is they you are defending. A man who fights for something greater than himself may kill a hundred enemies with ease. As he spoke, Roran saw in his mind an image of Katrina clad in her blue wedding dress, and he smelled the scent of her skin, and he heard the muted tones of her voice from their discussions late at night. Katrina! Then the soldiers were upon them, and for a span Roran heard nothing but the thud of swords bouncing off his shield and the clang of his hammer as he struck the soldiers' helms and the cries of the soldiers as they crumpled underneath his blows. The soldiers threw themselves against him with desperate strength, but they were no match for him or his men. When he vanquished the last of the attacking soldiers, Roran burst out laughing, exhilarated. What a joy it was to crush those who would harm his wife and his unborn child. He was pleased to see that none of his warriors had been seriously injured. He also noticed that during the fray several of the archers had descended from the roofs to fight on horseback with them. Roran grinned at the newcomers and said, Welcome to the battle. A warm welcome indeed, one of them replied. Pointing with his gore-covered hammer toward the right side of the street, Roran said, You, you and you, pile the bodies over there. Make a funnel out of them and the wagon, so that only two or three soldiers can get to us at once. Yes, sir, the warriors answered, swinging down from their horses. A quarrel whizzed toward Roran. He ignored it and focused on the main body of soldiers where a group, perhaps a hundred strong, was massing in preparation for a second onslaught. Hurry! 
he shouted to the men shifting the corpses. They're almost upon us! Harold, go help! Roran wet his lips, nervous, as he watched his men labour while the soldiers advanced. To his relief, the four Varden dragged the last body into place and clambered back onto their steeds moments before the wave of soldiers struck. The houses on either side of the street, as well as the overturned wagon and the gruesome barricade of human remains, slowed and compressed the flow of soldiers until they were nearly at a standstill when they reached Roran. The soldiers were packed so tightly they were helpless to escape the arrows that streaked toward them from above. The first two ranks of soldiers carried spears with which they menaced Roran and the other Varden. Roran parried three separate thrusts, cursing the whole while as he realized that he could not reach past the spears with his hammer. Then a soldier stabbed Snowfire in the shoulder, and Roran leaned forward to keep from being thrown as the stallion squealed and reared. As Snowfire landed on all fours, Roran slid out of the saddle, keeping the stallion between him and the hedge of spear-wielding soldiers. Snowfire bucked as another spear pierced his hide. Before the soldiers could wound him again, Roran pulled on Snowfire's reins and forced him to prance backward until there was enough room among the other horses for the stallion to turn around. Yah! he shouted and slapped Snowfire on the rump, sending him galloping out of the village. Make way! Roran bellowed, waving at the Varden. They cleared a path for him between their steeds, and he bounded to the forefront of the fight again sticking his hammer through his belt as he did. A soldier jabbed a spear at Roran's chest. He blocked it with his wrist, bruising himself on the hard wooden shaft, and then yanked the spear out of the soldier's hands. The man fell flat on his face. Twirling the weapon, Roran stabbed the man, then lunged forward and lanced two more soldiers. Roran took a wide stance, planting his feet firmly in the rich soil, where once he would have sought to raise crops, and shook the spear at his foes, shouting, Come, you misbegotten bastards! Kill me if you can! I am Roran Stronghammer, and I fear no man alive! The soldiers shuffled forward, three men stepping over the bodies of their former comrades to exchange blows with Roran. Dancing to the side, Roran drove his spear into the jaw of the rightmost soldier, shattering his teeth. A pennant of blood trailed the blade as Roran withdrew the weapon and, dropping to one knee, impaled the central soldier through an armpit. An impact jarred Roran's left shoulder. His shield seemed to double in weight. Rising, he saw a spear buried in the oak planks of his shield and the remaining soldier of the trio rushing at him with a drawn sword. Roran lifted his spear above his head as if he were about to throw it, and when the soldier faltered, kicked him between the fork of his legs. He dispatched the man with a single blow. During the momentary lulling combat that followed, Roran disengaged his arm from the useless shield and cast it and the attached spear under the feet of his enemies, hoping to tangle their legs. More soldiers shuffled forward, quailing before Roran's feral grin and stabbing spear. A mound of bodies grew before him. When it reached the height of his waist, Roran bounded to the top of the blood-soaked berm, and there he remained, despite the treacherous footing, for the height gave him an advantage. 
since the soldiers were forced to climb up a ramp of corpses to reach him. He was able to kill many of them when they stumbled over an arm or a leg, or stepped upon the soft neck of one of their predecessors, or slipped on a slanting shield. From his elevated position, Roran could see that the rest of the soldiers had chosen to join the assault, save for a score across the village who were still battling Sands and Edric's warriors. He realized he would have no more rest until the battle had concluded. Roran acquired dozens of wounds as the day wore on. Many of his injuries were minor, a cut on the inside of a forearm, a broken finger, a scratch across his ribs where a dagger had shorn through his mail. But others were not. From where he lay on the pile of bodies, a soldier stabbed Roran through his right calf muscle, hobbling him. Soon afterward, a heavy-set man, smelling of onions and cheese, fell against Roran, and with his dying breath, shoved the bolt of a crossbow into Roran's left shoulder, which thereafter prevented Roran from lifting his arm overhead. Roran left the bolt embedded in his flesh, for he knew he might bleed to death if he pulled it out. Pain became Roran's ruling sensation. Every movement caused him fresh agony, but to stand still was to die, and so he kept dealing death blows, regardless of his wounds and regardless of his weariness. Roran was sometimes aware of the Varden behind or beside him, such as when they threw a spear past him, or when the blade of a sword would dart around his shoulder to fell a soldier who was about to brain him, but for the most part Roran faced the soldiers alone because of the pile of bodies he stood on and the restricted amount of space between the overturned wagon and the sides of the houses. Above, the archers who still had arrows maintained their lethal barrage, their grey goose shafts penetrating bone and sinew alike. Late in the battle, Roran thrust his spear at a soldier, and as the tip struck the man's armour, the haft cracked and split along its length. That he was still alive seemed to catch the soldier by surprise, for he hesitated before swinging his sword in retaliation. His imprudent delay allowed Roran to duck underneath the length of singing steel and seize another spear from the ground with which he slew the soldier. To Roran's dismay and disgust, the second spear lasted less than a minute before it too shattered in his grip. Throwing the splintered remains at the soldiers, Roran took a shield from a corpse and drew his hammer from his belt. His hammer, at least, had never failed him. Exhaustion proved to be Roran's greatest adversary. As the last of the soldiers gradually approached, each man waiting his turn to duel him. Roran's limbs felt heavy and lifeless, his vision flickered and he could not seem to get enough air, and yet he somehow always managed to summon the energy to defeat his next opponent. As his reflexes slowed, the soldiers dealt him numerous cuts and bruises that he could have easily avoided earlier. When gaps appeared between the soldiers, and through them Roran could see open space, he knew his ordeal was nearly at an end. He did not offer the final twelve men mercy, nor did they ask it of him, even though they could not have hoped to battle their way past him as well as the Varden beyond. Nor did they attempt to flee. Instead, they rushed at him, snarling, cursing, desiring only to kill the man who had slain so many of their comrades, 
before they too passed into the void. In a way, Roran admired their courage. Arrows sprouted from the chests of four of the men, downing them. A spear thrown from somewhere behind Roran took a fifth man under the collarbone, and he too toppled onto a bed of corpses. Two more spears claimed their victims, and then the men reached Roran. The lead soldier hewed at Roran with a spiked axe, although Roran could feel the head of the crossbow bolt grating against his bone, he threw up his left arm and blocked the axe with his shield. Howling with pain and anger as well as an overwhelming desire for the battle to end, Roran whipped his hammer around and slew the soldier with a blow to the head. Without pause, Roran hopped forward on his good leg and struck the next soldier twice in the chest before he could defend himself, cracking his ribs. The third man parried two of Roran's attacks, but then Roran deceived him with a feint and slew him as well. The final two soldiers converged on Roran from either side, swinging at his ankles as they climbed to the summit of the piled corpses. His strength flagging, Roran sparred with them for a long and wearisome while, both giving and receiving wounds, until at last he killed one man by caving in his helm and the other by breaking his neck with a well-placed blow. Roran swayed and then collapsed. He felt himself being lifted up and opened his eyes to see Harold holding a wineskin to his lips. Drink this, Harold said. You'll feel better. His chest heaving, Roran consumed several draughts between gasps. The sun-warmed wine stung the inside of his battered mouth. He felt his legs steady and said, It's all right. You can let go of me now. Roran leaned against his hammer and surveyed the battleground. For the first time he appreciated how high the mound of bodies had grown. He and his companions stood at least twenty feet in the air, which was nearly level with the tops of the houses on either side. Roran saw that most of the soldiers had died of arrows, but even so he knew that he had slain a vast number by himself. How, how many? he asked Harold. The blood-spattered warrior shook his head. I lost count after thirty-two. Perhaps another can say. What you did, Stronghammer. Never have I seen such a feat before, not by a man of human abilities. The dragon Sephira chose well. The men of your family are fighters like no others. Your prowess is unmatched by any mortal, Stronghammer. However many you slew here today, I... It was one hundred and ninety-three, cried Khan, clambering toward them from below. Are you sure? asked Roran, unbelieving. Khan nodded as he reached them. I, I watched, and I kept careful count. One hundred and ninety-three it was. Ninety-four if you count the man you stabbed through the gut before the archers finished him off. The tally astounded Roran. He had not suspected the total was quite so large. A hoarse chuckle escaped him. A <laughs> pity there are no more of them. Another seven, and I would have an even two hundred. The other men laughed as well. His thin face furrowed with concern, Khan reached for the bolt sticking out of Roran's left shoulder, saying, Here, let me see to your wounds. 
No, said Roran and brushed him away. There may be others who are more seriously injured than I am. Tend to them first. Roran, several of those cuts could prove fatal unless I stanched the bleeding. It won't take but a... I'm fine, he growled. Leave me alone. Roran, just look at yourself. He did and averted his gaze. Be quick about it, then. Roran stared into the featureless sky, his mind empty of thought, while Khan pulled the bolt out of his shoulder and muttered various spells. In every spot where the magic took effect, Roran felt his skin itch and crawl, followed by a blessed cessation of pain. When Khan had finished, Roran still hurt, but he did not hurt quite so badly, and his mind was clearer than before. The healing left Khan grey-faced and shaking. He leaned against his knees until his tremors stopped. I will go, he paused for breath. Go, help the rest of the wounded now. He straightened and picked his way down the mound, lurching from side to side as if he were drunk. Roran watched him go, concerned. Then it occurred to him to wonder about the fate of the rest of their expedition. He looked toward the far side of the village and saw nothing but scattered bodies, some clad in the red of the Empire, others in the brown wool favoured by the Varden. What of Edric and Sand? he asked Harold. I'm sorry, Stronghammer, but I saw nothing beyond the reach of my sword. Calling to the few men who still stood on the roofs of the houses, Roran asked, What of Edric and Sand? We do not know, Stronghammer, they replied. Steadying himself with his hammer, Roran slowly picked his way down the tumbled ramp of bodies, and with Harold and three other men by his side, crossed the clearing in the centre of the village, executing every soldier they found still alive. When they arrived at the edge of the clearing, where the number of slain Varden surpassed the number of slain soldiers, Harold banged his sword on his shield and shouted, Is anyone still alive? After a moment, a voice came back at them from among the houses. Name yourself! Harold and Roran Stronghammer and others of the Varden! If you serve the Empire, then surrender, for your comrades are dead, and you cannot defeat us! From somewhere between the houses came a crash of falling metal, and then, in ones and twos, warriors of the Varden emerged from hiding and limped toward the clearing many of them supporting their wounded comrades. They appeared dazed, and some were stained with so much blood, Roran at first mistook them for captured soldiers. He counted four and twenty men. Among the final group of stragglers was Edric, helping along a man who had lost his right arm during the fighting. Roran motioned, and two of his men hurried to relieve Edric of his burden. The captain straightened from under the weight. With slow steps, he walked over to Roran and looked him straight in the eye, his expression unreadable. Neither he nor Roran moved, and Roran was aware that the clearing had grown exceptionally quiet. Edric was the first to speak. How many of your men survived? Most. Not all, but most. Edric nodded. And Khan? He lives. What of sand? A soldier shot him during his charge, 
He died but a few minutes ago. Edric looked past Roran, then toward the mound of bodies. You defied my orders, Stronghammer. I did. Edric held out an open hand toward him. Captain, no! exclaimed Harold, stepping forward. If it weren't for Roran, none of us would be standing here. And you should have seen what he did. He slew nearly two hundred by himself. Harold's pleas made no impression on Edric, who continued to hold out his hand. Roran remained impassive as well. Turning to him then, Harold said, Roran, you know the men are yours. Just say the word and we will... Roran silenced him with a glare. Don't be a fool. Between thin lips, Edric said, At least you're not completely devoid of sense. Harold, keep your teeth shut unless you want to lead the pack horses the whole way back. Lifting his hammer, Roran handed it to Edric. Then he unbuckled his belt, upon which hung his sword and his dagger, and those too he surrendered to Edric. I have no other weapons, he said. Edric nodded, grim, and slung the sword belt over one shoulder. Roran Stronghammer, I hereby relieve you of command. Have I your word of honour you will not attempt to flee? You do. Then you will make yourself useful where you may, but in all else you will comport yourself as a prisoner. Edric looked around and pointed at another warrior. Fuller, you will assume Roran's position until we return to the main body of the Varden, and Nasoada can decide what is to be done about this. Yes, sir, said Fuller. 